This is Audible. These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. They are produced by the Teaching Company. The Great Courses cover a broad array of university-level disciplines. The lectures in each course are either 30 or 45 minutes long. By listening for less than an hour a day, you can finish even the longest course in just weeks. Browse our catalog or website and imagine how much you could learn if you spent just 30 minutes a day for the next year in the best college classrooms in the world. The lecturers are university professors carefully selected by the teaching company and its customers for intellectual distinction and teaching excellence. These lectures are titled "World War One: The Great War, Part One." The lecturer is Professor Vejas Gabriel Lulavichus. Dr. Lulavichus is associate professor of history at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. He earned his BA from the University of Chicago and his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania, where he specialized in modern German history. After receiving his doctorate, Dr. Lulavichus spent a year as a postdoctoral research fellow at the Hoover Institution on War, Peace, and Revolution at Stanford University. He has published numerous scholarly articles, and his first book, *Warland on the Eastern Front: Culture, National Identity, and German Occupation in the First World War*, was published in 2000. In 2003, he was the recipient of the Excellence in Teaching Award for his outstanding classes on such subjects as Nazi Germany, World War One, and Utopian Thought. Professor Lulavich has prepared the course guide that comes with these lectures. The course guide includes a detailed outline of each lecture, a glossary, a timeline, biographical notes, maps, and an annotated bibliography. To get the most out of this course, you may find it useful to follow along with the outlines or review them before or after each lecture. Lecture One: The Century's Initial Catastrophe. Welcome to this course on the First World War, the man-made catastrophe that launched the 20th century on its violent course, and indeed a key event of modern times. In this lecture, we will begin by presenting the main themes of the course. Beginning with the crucial concept of total war, as many historians consider the First World War the first example of this modern phenomenon, total war is a phrase used to describe not merely a contest between professional armies on the battlefield, but rather represents something far vaster—a clash of entire societies mobilized for total victory, including their economies, their political establishments, the intellectual life of a society, all of the passions. And feelings, emotions, and convictions of an entire population. Our other important themes will include the role that ideology and fervent beliefs had in determining the war's course and its conduct. Also, the meanings that were ascribed to the war as it was going on, as well as in its aftermath. And we'll examine here great contrasts in how the war was understood. As well, the shock of new experiences, a continual process of the shock of the new. And a process, a steady process of brutalization, and finally the implications of this great war for our civilization and for our own times. It's necessary thus to engage in a, a very difficult but 
nonetheless essential task of historical imagination, to seek to envision the war in its totality. This is in many ways a very difficult task that faces us. We're removed from the war by a distance of nearly a century. Uh, The war itself, the contemporaries, was of such a scale and of such novelty that they called it the Great War to express something of its all-encompassing nature. And then finally, another reason why it's difficult for us to envision the war in its totality is because that war has done so much to shape our modern world, as we'll see in coming lectures. One way, however, to begin the task of envisioning the experience of the war is to consider bookend scenes of that conflict, scenes accompanying its start as well as its end, that say much to us about the mixed nature of experiences in the First World War, some of its ambiguities and its diversity. In August of 1914, the war began, and it did so with a break at long last to tension that had gripped many Europeans. In August of 1914, with the declarations of war, that tension at last broke, and a remarkable emotional reaction set in. Vast cheering crowds throughout the capitals of Europe welcomed the war. In London, in Paris, in Berlin, in St. Petersburg, Crowds gathered to sing national anthems, to wave national flags, to cheer, and to volunteer for the conflict. This event, this emotional reaction, came to be called the August Madness, and for many was an unforgettable experience. At the same time as you had these vast celebrations, however, there were also contrary phenomena, quiet leave-takings as soldiers left for the front, well aware that they might not return, Individual foreboding, for not everyone cheered, not everyone celebrated, many understood the suffering that war would bring, if not ultimately its scale. And then finally, there's also the case of ethnic minorities in the multinational empires of Europe. The Poles, for instance, divided between three empires who well understood that it was not their national cause that they would be asked to sacrifice and die for, but rather that of a foreign regime. At the end of the war, four years later, in November of 1918, as the guns at last fell silent, as opposed to the tremendous celebration of four years previously, now quiet reigned. An unnatural stillness settled on the cemeteries and the battlefields that had been the site of the suffering of four years previous. At the same time, however, in a contrary phenomenon, elsewhere in Europe, especially in Eastern Europe, There emerged new nations from the wreckage of empire, and crowds celebrated there the message of national rebirth and independence. These scenes bookending the conflict suggest something of its diversity and its complexity. Another challenge for us is to try to even take in the magnitude of the war's scale, one of the reasons why contemporaries called it the Great War. Mass armies were mobilized on a scale that simply had been unimaginable hitherto. An estimated 70 million soldiers participated in the war worldwide, and of them, over 9 million would be killed. To give some sense of this otherwise astronomical figure, one might mention that on average this works out to about 6,000 soldiers dying for every day of the war as it took its course. At the same time, we need to mention that even these astronomical figures lack a total precision. The precise number of deaths and casualties 
will likely never be known exactly, given the disorder and the lack of certainty about these figures that dominated at the end of the conflict. Another question which historians are still debating today is that of civilian casualties. Those numbers are not clear, but some estimates run to almost 6 million. A further key aspect of this war that we need to try to assimilate or take aboard is its identity as a world war. World war was a term used at the time as well to express the magnitude of this great war. Contemporaries obviously were not yet calling it the First World War. Uh, Even the most pessimistic couldn't expect that this would be the first in a series of conflicts. Uh, Nonetheless, the concept itself took on an important uh, dimension. Earlier wars, such as the Seven Years' War of the 18th century, the Napoleonic Wars of the early 19th century, had had a global dimension, but in some sense this war had an even more extended global aspect. And one reason for this was the extent of 19th century imperialism spreading the conflict around the globe. If our largest undertaking in this course is to try to take in some of the reality of this conflict in its totality, we want also to outline some of the aims of the course as we proceed. We'll be presenting not only a chronological narrative, and we certainly will be doing that as well, we'll also be combining this with a thematic approach, uh, taking a moment now and again to really focus in on particular themes and topics of crucial importance. At the same time as we'll be covering military history, we'll also be seeking to include in our survey cultural, social, and political aspects of the conflict as well. We'll also be trying to present a narrative that's balanced between the different war fronts, rather than being, as is sometimes the case, almost exclusively focused on the more familiar and riveting scenes of the Western Front. We need now to outline some of the main themes of the course, and these are essentially five. The first one concerns the totality of war, defining total war as a concept. Total war was a term that was coined and used during the war itself in an attempt to sum up what contemporaries felt was the all-encompassing nature of this modern industrial conflict. This new kind of war demanded total mobilization of mass armies, economies, societies, and the hearts of minds of people in the war, not merely soldiers on the battlefield. In this sense, this was not merely a war determined by government cabinets and elites, but in a very real sense, a people's war. And certain implications flowed from the totality of this new conflict. Increasingly, the stakes of total war were seen as total as well. Not merely an adjustment of competitive advantage as a result of battles or of territorial loss or gain, but total victory or total defeat would become the final outcome, not compromise. This long, grinding process of total war also would not bring quick victory, but the winner, in fact, would be the last one standing after a long, drawn-out process of attrition. Total war had other important implications as well. Because not only soldiers were involved, but also civilians, civilians took on a new importance. They, too, were mobilized to work for their country's victory on what came to be called the home front. This is a marvelously expressive phrase that really captures a key aspect of total war. And as a result of this new importance, civilians were increasingly the targets of violence as well. 
very clearly, total war as a modern industrial conflict would also have a crucial economic dimension, as victory would not be found on the battlefield alone. And thus, economic weapons, like the naval blockade of the British, of Germany, to deny enemy resources was an obvious tool. The enormous demands and strains of this phenomenon of total war would also tear at all of the societies engaged in the conflict. And these strains in society could take many different forms. Gaps could grow between the soldiers in the trenches, the civilians on the home front, with incomprehension growing between these parties, and alienation from the government seeking to fight the war to a successful conclusion. All too often, social tensions could also lead to the search for scapegoats in minorities in one's own midst. Now, though the term total war was new and was used during the First World War itself, it actually really came into its own in popular usage after the war. As participants, contemporaries who had survived the conflict tried to think out the implications of what they had lived through. And it's unfortunately a fact that the concept of total war in part came into its own because it was used by those who were already thinking about the next war and preparing for it, World War II. The experience of total war also affected political movements that in a sense arose out of the ruins of that conflict. These radical political movements were often called totalitarian because of their total claims upon people and societies. These included communism in Soviet Russia, fascism in Italy, and Nazism in Hitler's Germany. The ambitions of these movements, however different their ideologies were, were often rooted in the experience of the Great War. Their aims were to produce completely mobilized societies acting in unison and in ideological struggle. The second major theme that we'll be returning to over the course of this course is the neglected role of ideology. The First World War has often been depicted uh, by historians as a conflict over geopolitics, the balance of power, and political issues, as opposed to the Second World War, which is seen as much more ideological, a complicated contact, uh, contest between democracies, Nazism, and the Soviet Union. In fact, this juxtaposition is overdrawn. Ideas and beliefs clearly played a crucial role throughout World War I and need to be understood. Some historians today are stressing this in their scholarship. They're urging us to conceptualize the context of the First World War as a distinct war culture, which developed over the course of the conflict and which had a very serious ideological dimension. The eagerness with which the war was met the eagerness which the war elicited was afterwards, they argue, willfully forgotten in a narrative of disillusionment. Given such hopes and emotions from the very beginning of the war, what changes might follow? Our th uh, next major theme is that of the meanings assigned to the war. How was the war understood by those who participated in it and remembered it afterwards? It's crucial to acknowledge one central point, in the experience of contemporaries, we might say that there wasn't merely one First World War, but rather a multiplicity of wars. And this is something we'll be returning to in our lectures. The war on the Western Front was very different from that of the Eastern Front or the other fronts. And thus, all of these different experiences need to be taken into account. Western memory of the Great War is very different from that that uh, is dominant in Eastern Europe uh, in the 20th century. 
the memory of Western Europeans of the Great War tended to focus in the decades after that conflict on senseless sacrifice, on the uh, bloody extinction of an entire generation of youth. For what? By contrast, a very different set of meanings were assigned to the Great War in Eastern Europe in its aftermath. In newly independent nation-states, by contrast, in Eastern Europe, the Great War was seen not as senseless or meaningless, but instead as the very exemplar of a purposeful event producing, producing national independence in a baptism of fire. And likewise, in a related and paradoxical reversal, some of these contrasts reverberate later in the 20th century. In Western Europe, World War II is often regarded as the good war. The perspective in Eastern Europe on the Second World War is much more ambivalent. By contrast, there, Nazi rule was replaced by decades of communist control, and the narrative is not simply one of liberation. The next major theme is the process of repeated shocks of new experiences that needed to be assimilated or taken aboard, culminating in an overall and prolonged process of brutalization. The war presented an unceasing series of novelties that unfortunately later became increasingly ordinary and feature in our own times. These included the use of vast new technologically sophisticated weapons systems, including tanks, airplanes, as well as a dreadful weapon, poison gas. These included new approaches to war that targeted civilians. They included also the devastating modern phenomenon of genocide, including the Armenian massacres in the Ottoman Empire that we'll be discussing in a later lecture. It also expanded the powers of the state and created new strategies for dealing with populations in what came to be called population policy. Ultimately, though extremely difficult to measure, many contemporaries, especially the more sensitive and thoughtful ones, felt that they were living through a process of brutalization in which the sensibilities of ordinary individuals as well as societies were, in a sense, hardening and the value of human life was being altered and downgraded. The war thus functioned as a hinge of violence in modern history, preparing greater horrors to come. Our last major theme of the course are the implications of the Great War in the largest sense, because the First World War has left its mark on us in this day in ways both small as well as large. Its traces, indeed, are to be found in our language today. Um, these include phrases uh, that we utter perhaps in the workplace about going into the trenches or fighting, slogging it out in the trenches. Uh, a, another phrase is that of a no-man's land, which crops up uh, in our everyday language as well, which originally designated those territories located between the trench lines uh, which represented the central area of combat. And then a phrase also harking back to the First World War, the phrase going over the top, which represented, in fact, the notion of a frontal attack of troops leaping up out of the trenches, heading out across no man's land in order to engage in, it was hoped, a victorious assault on the enemy side. Uh, these are traces left in our language uh, other objects that to us are quite ordinary also are rooted in the experience of the First World War. 
Uh, these include mundane objects like wristwatches. Uh, indeed, in the 19th century, a proper gentleman would wear a pocket watch rather than a wristwatch. But in the trenches of the First World War, the use of wristwatches in order to readily coordinate attacks going over the top at a precisely predetermined and planned time produced the popularity of the wristwatch replacing pocket watches. Uh, Even trench coats still worn today are very much artifacts of that time and that place. Uh, An ordinary phenomenon that we experience twice a year, that of daylight savings time, the transition in how we lead our lives on an ordinary schedule, harkens back to the First World War as nations mobilizing for total conflict. uh, The state would determine when it was necessary to change our experience of time itself in order to prolong the working day. At the most significant level, the war also led to changes of really profound nature in the status of the state, that's to say the government, and the powers that it was willing to claim and that individuals were willing to accept uh, as claims. A status of society changed as well in the calls that it could make on individuals. And then also the status of the individual himself or herself changed as a result of this vast conflict as well. Indeed, some historians have argued on a very profound level that even our language changed. And we'll be discussing in later lectures uh, this remarkable and provocative thesis that the English language itself, uh, among others, changed in the way certain words operated. The argument gets made that after the searing disillusionment of the First World War, the words honor and duty for instance, could never be spoken again without an element of irony. Uh, This is a claim that we'll be examining in a later lecture. At the same time, paradoxically, one of the outcomes of the First World War and even of this alleged process of disillusionment was not a loss of faith, but a renewed and even more explosive political faith, the production of fierce new ideological politics in a new age of belief. The decades that followed the First World War were ones of extreme politics, with ideological choices in which individuals were not afforded the right to any kind of neutrality, but instead would have to make choices between opposed ideologies. The growth of this extremism across the political spectrum ultimately culminated in a repetition of the phenomenon of total war in the Second World War. And the linkages between these two global conflicts are made clear in a very ordinary way in some of the figures whom we'll encounter in the course of our lectures who played roles in both the First World War and later in the Second World War. These include the British politician and later leader Winston Churchill. They include the young officer during the First World War, Charles de Gaulle, who would later rally the French resistance cause. They include an ordinary soldier who would later become the dictator of Nazi Germany, Adolf Hitler, as well as another future dictator, Benito Mussolini, and many others. The linkages between these two world wars are such that historians have begun to provocatively suggest that it may very well be that we need to think not only of separate conflicts, but rather of an extended continuum of conflict, of clash, that we might need to think about as a 30 years war 
of the 20th century rather than as distinct conflicts. And it's likely to be the case that as we recede in time from the experience of both world wars, from the perspective of uh, those who come later, these events will draw closer and closer and the perspective will be altered for people in the future. What was clearly recognized by contemporaries was that the First World War and then later the Second World War seemingly normalized a massive brutalization of our shared civilization. In a famous phrase still echoed uh, by historians as nearly obligatory, the American diplomat and historian George Kennan described the First World War as the seminal catastrophe of the 20th century. And what he meant by that was that the First World War had unleashed a whole series of processes and dynamics that ultimately would set the 20th century on its destructive course. In many ways, as we'll be exploring in our course, the First World War has shaped the world we know today. Many of its political borders, its regional conflicts, many of the perils, nightmares, and hopes that are with us still. We'd like to briefly provide an overview of the individual lectures to see the trajectory that our course will be taking. In our first six lectures, we will be examining the outbreak of the war after having provided a uh, overview of the context in which Europe and the world found itself in 1914 and immediately before. We will have examined a crisis in politics and culture. We'll examine a still very lively debate about the causes of the war, and we'll take a much closer look at this riveting mass psychological phenomenon of the August Madness of 1914, immediately before an unexpected breakdown in the war plans, which were to bring, it was hoped, a quick victory to the fighting sides. In our following three lectures, we'll examine the Western Front, which has such an iconic and clearly very important status as a site of modernity for our own times. We'll examine the experience of what it was like to live and die in the trenches. We'll examine the titanic battles that were fought on the Western Front and which brought so little in terms of victory. We'll then shift our attention to view other fronts and other dimensions of the war's experience. We'll examine what has been called the unknown war on the Eastern Front. We'll examine the Southern Fronts and the Mediterranean as another crucial area of operations. Our course then will turn for our next four lectures uh, for a, an extended and careful look at particular themes that span the fighting fronts as well as chronological uh, scope. We'll examine the war aims of the fighting powers, what it was that they were willing to state that they were fighting for. And we'll also examine the experience bound up in war aims of occupations and its attempts to seize territory. We'll examine as well soldiers in their identity, not merely as fighters, but also as victims. The dimensions of violence in the battlefield, what it meant physically, as well as the experience that many soldiers shared in of captivity, of being prisoners. We'll examine reactions to the war and its experience at the battlefront in the form of stormtroopers, soldiers who exulted in the experience of war, and future dictators, Hitler and Mussolini. We then will examine also the total war of technology, 
and trace a remarkable process of ever-accelerating advances in technological change with ever more destructive potential realized. Our next lectures will turn to examine other theaters of the war, the war in the air and the war at sea, as well as a lecture devoted entirely to the global reach and the scope of the war. Our next five lectures, then, will turn to examine the experience of the war at home, what it meant for governments, societies, and individuals as they mobilized for the conflict itself. We'll examine the invention of the wartime state as vast new powers accrued to governments mobilizing populations and economies for all-out victory. We'll examine the remarkable and increasing sophistication of propaganda, the attempt to motivate society's hearts and minds for endurance as well as victory in the war. We'll then examine more closely the experience of endurance and the stress that was very much a part of the experience of the home fronts. We'll examine the possibilities for dissent against the war and the limits placed upon it. And then in a special lecture, we'll look more closely at the remarkable challenge that the essentially the midpoint of the war represented in terms of a renewed tensing of energies and a mustering of will to continue the fight from 1916 to 1917 on. Our next lectures will be devoted then to examining some of the destructive consequences of the strains of total war. We'll devote a lecture to look more closely at how the First World War provided the context for an act of modern genocide, the massacres against the Armenians in 1915 in the Ottoman Empire, a program of population policy tipped over into genocide. That's to say the killing of a group of people, not because of what they've done, but rather because of who they are and what they represent to those committing this crime. We'll examine also the plethora of social and national revolts that erupted as a result of the strains of war, especially felt keenly by multinational empires unable to mobilize effectively for the conflict itself. Our next lectures, then, will turn to two world historical events that take place in 1917 and that truly, as we've already suggested earlier in this lecture, uh, in some sense reverberate through the rest of the 20th century. In 1917, the Russian revolutions break out and the United States enters the war uh, with remarkable and important results. We'll examine the complicated course of revolutionary events within Russia itself in 1917, with successive changes of revolutionary regimes culminating in the coming to power of Lenin and the Bolsheviks announcing a new world order on the lines of their communist ideology. We'll also examine the other paired historical world historical event of 1917, America's entry into the war. Also, with an announced ideological goal of reshaping the world order and with a very keen and important ideological charge. We'll examine in detail not only the reasons for America's entry into the war, but also the experience of Americans in the war over there, across the Atlantic, as well as in wartime America at home. We'll then examine the remarkable and quick series of events in 1918 
which brought an end to the wartime efforts of the central powers, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Turkey, we'll examine the emotions that attended the ending of the war in 1918, the collapse of empires with remarkable rapidity, and the achievement of national independence by many independent states in Eastern Europe. We will bring our course to a close by examining attempts at peacemaking, in particular the Versailles Treaty and the Paris Settlement, as well as the aftershocks that followed the war, which didn't have a neat end, but instead continued in a very real sense for years afterwards. We'll examine also the echoes of the war in the form of monuments, memory, myth, as well as conspiracy theories about the war and its meaning, and as a result of the tremendous experiences and devastation of the First World War, the beginning of the rise of mass dictatorships, which would have everything to do with the unleashing of the Second World War. In our very last lecture, we'll examine the legacies of the Great War and indicate not only how it changed the course of modern history, but how it continues to affect us to this very day. Lecture 2, Europe in 1914. In this lecture, entitled Europe in 1914, we'll be setting the stage for the explosion of the First World War in 1914 by examining the state of Europe and the world at large before the cataclysm itself. We'll be examining the states that would be the major players in the opening of the war itself that were called by the very evocative name the Great Powers, and this was always capitalized, capital G, capital B, uh, P, the Great Powers, which were Great Britain, France, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Russia, uh, the great uh, powers of the European continent, as well as other contenders for great power status, making a bid for that stature. We'll examine the diplomatic history as well, of their dynamic interaction. And this is summed up in a concept which is crucial to diplomatic history, the concept of the balance of power. The balance of power as a concept suggests that whenever in a multipolar international system, that's to say without one or two dominant players, but a multiplicity of players, uh, as a result of this phenomenon called the balance of power, one power which makes a bid to control all the others or to displace the others, will find itself faced with a coalition opposing it of other powers. So a balance of power mechanism suggests that there will always be a complicated game of balancing, of shifting coalitions against the bid of any one power uh, to achieve uh, total control. We'll examine in particular, with special reference to this concept of the balance of power, the changes which were brought about in that balance of power dynamic by a new factor in European politics, the emergence of the German Empire in the late 19th century, and the turmoil that this caused in the international system. We'll also examine worldwide trends of worldwide imperialism, a growing arms race on land and at sea, and also increasing international tensions, which were moving Europe after a century of general peace towards a general war by 1914. European society 
at the start of the new 20th century, shared in a common civilization. For all of the national differences, there were nonetheless dialogues, a, a, a sense of shared values uh, that were part of a self-confident European civilization. Organized into separate nation-states or multinational empires, Europeans, for all of their national differences and their own national pride or nationalism, in many ways recognized that they shared a common worldview. And this was underlined in the sense that Europeans had a right, uh, so that many of them felt, uh, to a special role in imperialism in dominating non-Western peoples. Within Western civilization, however, within the multiplicity of states and of countries and of ethnic groups, some states, those known as the great powers, uh, played a dominant role in international affairs. The litmus test of a great power was whether it was capable of asserting its own will in international affairs without needing uh, to seek the approval of another great power. Other states, which didn't fully have the status of being great powers in terms of international recognition, certainly aspired to such a role. Let's consider, in turn, the great powers. We'll begin with the great power which was viewed as the conservative, status quo, dominant superpower of the 19th century, Great Britain. Great Britain was very clearly an industrial and commercial power which had played an enormous role in the 19th century. It had spearheaded that complicated process called the Industrial Revolution, which had put production uh, as well as economy on a new industrial basis. And Britain also had won for itself uh, over the decades and the centuries a world empire. This world empire on which the British proudly stated the sun never set was uh, of enormous extent. Uh, By one estimate, it covered some 20% of the world's entire inhabitable land surface. It included the dominions of British settlers in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. It also included territories like India, which was proudly claimed as the jewel of the British Empire, and also earlier and older imperial possessions like Ireland, which was always a perennial uh, focus for unrest uh, in Britain's own colonial backyard. Britain's own population was 45 million, and in its island fastness, it was an empire that was dependent on trade. Britain had made itself the preeminent naval power to protect access to its overseas possessions and to secure the sea lanes, And the British preferred in this complicated game of the balance of power that we'll be talking more about uh, in today's lecture, they preferred to take the stance not of direct involvement in the affairs of the continent, but rather to maintain what they proudly called splendid isolation, intervening in the affairs of the European continent only as necessary to preserve the balance of power. Britain's political system was a constitutional monarchy, And Britain at this point had a liberal government, which was proud of the achievements of the British monarchy and the British Empire. Uh, There was much to be proud of. A sense of preeminence in financial terms was among these factors. London was clearly the banking capital of the world. And at the start of the 20th century, the British looked back upon not only a record of imperial dominance, uh, but also uh, a sense of investment in the status quo, 
a sense of being a conservative power which wanted to preserve its preeminence among other great powers. At the same time, however, as we turn to examine another great power, British supremacy had been challenged by a brash, young contender in the game of the great powers, and that was Germany. The German Empire had been created recently, and it had been created by war. It had been the uh, it had been born of the war in 1870 to 1871, when the German Kingdom of Prussia had led German armies, its allies of other German states, to victory against France, considered the hereditary enemy. As a result of this war, it was possible to establish a German Empire around Prussian leadership, which a, a tactic which was pursued and won by the so-called Iron Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, uh, the leader of Prussian politics. Otto von Bismarck was a peerless practitioner of Realpolitik, a German phrase often translated in English as power politics. As the chief servant of the royal family of Prussia, the Hohenzollerns, Bismarck carefully engineered German unification around a hard core of Prussian militarism in a succession of wars against Austria in 1866 and then against France, sealing the establishment of the German Empire. This new young Germany had become, at a stroke, in 1870 to 1871, the strongest power on the continent. It was endowed with proud Prussian militarist traditions, it had an enormous and growing population of 65 million, and its booming economy likewise made it an industrial powerhouse in a new surge of industrial revolution. The creation of this German empire was of such importance to international affairs that contemporaries had to struggle with the question of how to come to terms with this new political fact. Uh, indeed, where earlier one had had essentially a power vacuum at the center of Europe, there was this new principle, this new factor in power politics. Contemporaries at the time spoke of this unprecedented event as the German Revolution. And by calling it this, they were very clearly placing it on a par with the French Revolution at the end of the 18th century that had overturned the political order, this, in international terms, was a fact that needed to be dealt with. And the German Revolution had produced what contemporaries called the German question. The German question, which continued to haunt international politics through much of the 20th century, was essentially a way of asking what role would this new Germany play in European affairs? Would it be an anchor of European stability, or would it be a factor for instability, chaos, and perhaps war? Otto von Bismarck, a international politician of enormous sophistication, also had to deal with the German question, and he dealt with it in part by trying to calm the potential fears of other great powers, to ensure in part that Germany wouldn't face a hostile coalition of powers balancing off against its perceived threat. He aimed to reassure the other great powers that Germany had only peaceful intentions. Bismarck's principle was to present Germany at all junctures as a satisfied power that had what it wanted, that was satiated, and that now, after being a revolutionary factor in international politics, 
would become a conservative factor in international politics. These cautious policies, these attempts to calm the fears, potential fears of neighbors, uh, were simply too mild a policy prescription for the young emperor, the word in German is Kaiser, by the name of Wilhelm II, who ascended to the throne in 1888. He objected to Bismarck's attempts to calm other powers and instead insisted on a far more energetic policy. He soon dismissed Bismarck in 1890 and set about crafting a far more assertive approach to international politics. His slogan was announced with the words, full steam ahead. Now under his control, nobody was really sure exactly what the course would be, but it was clear that it would be fast and it would be aggressive. A few words about this really remarkable personality of Wilhelm II would be in place here. Uh, he was, on the one hand, uh, the descendant of a long and distinguished aristocratic line, the royal family of the House of Prussia, the family of Hohenzollern. Uh, he was also, as it turns out, the grandson of Queen Victoria of Great Britain. Uh, this speaks volumes about the interrelated kinship networks between the royal families of Europe. Uh, but Wilhelm II distinguished himself also by many other unfortunate characteristics. He was notoriously emotionally unstable. He was given to macho posturing and extremely aggressive language. Uh, in famous newsreels uh, of this period, uh, his figure is always very quickly to be picked out from a crowd of aristocrats because he is the one who is gesturing with wide and dramatic uh, very aggressive gestures, uh, even when engaged in making small talk with fellow aristocrats. Um, according to historians who place a lot of store by personal psychology, um, Wilhelm II's physical infirmity, the fact that he was born with a withered arm as a result of a, a difficult birth process, uh, according to some historians, goes some way towards explaining his posturing, his overcompensation in terms of aggressive militarism uh, for what he perceived as uh, a physical malady that a warrior or warlord uh, shouldn't have. Uh, his militarism was reflected in his love of resplendent uniforms and his militaristic language that often would produce a really characteristic talent for disaster. Um, Wilhelm II would often engage in incautious interviews with the international press, uh, which would produce uh, scandals that he then would have to retreat from. One problem is that this intemperate man was also surrounded by figures at court who were not very helpful in taming some of his policies. Um, one famous case which made clear that he was surrounded by irresponsible individuals uh, involved uh, news leaking out uh, at the start of the 20th century uh, that at one point when Wilhelm II had to be cheered up from one of these public relations disasters he had unleashed, uh, some of his own generals dressed up as ballerinas and danced for him at court. Um, one of those generals actually had a heart attack and fell, fell dead uh, while dancing uh, for the emperor dressed as a ballerina. And as news of this filtered out, it was not very much calculated to reassure people that Germany's leadership was in firm and responsible hands. Wilhelm II's policies were determined, above all, to win respect and status for Germany. In his words, Germany deserved its place in the sun. 
And as a result, he sanctioned an aggressive foreign policy that very shortly alienated many other of the great powers, precisely the thing that Bismarck had aimed to avoid. Germany itself was a strange political creation. Though it had a parliament called the Reichstag, the empire was in fact an uneasy mix of constitutionalism and some democratic-seeming elements on the one hand, and on the other hand, authoritarianism, the personal rule of an unbalanced individual like Wilhelm II. German domestic politics, in fact, were fragmented along class, regional, and religious lines. So there was a certain volatility to German politics, which further was exacerbated by the phenomenon of rapid, very thorough, and late industrialization within Germany, which brought social disruption. This social disruption for German conservatives and German ruling elites was summed up in the figure of one new political force that many of them feared. This was the SPD. The SPD, the initials stood for the Social Democratic Party of Germany, was a party that identified itself with the working classes. Founded in 1875, the Social Democratic Party, the SPD, adhered to Marx's ideas of a revolution overcoming capitalism and ushering in an age of workers' control, uh, the SPD was a self-consciously revolutionary party. It was well-organized and disciplined and became a model for other socialists worldwide, including in the United States, who sought to emulate this elder brother of the international socialist movement. And to the horror of Germany's ruling elites, the SPD, in the voting in 1912, became the largest party in Germany. A sense of crisis was building from uh, these political facts, and Germany's established elites and German nationalists sought some way in which it might be possible to escape from these domestic problems. There arose now a plethora of nationalist leagues, pressing and endorsing Wilhelm II's uh, demand for a more aggressive foreign policy, in some cases even outdoing his bellicose sentiments. These included the Navy League, the Army League, the Colonial League, and the Pan-German League, arguing that all Germans living around the world needed to together engage in a mission of national greatness. They all agitated for a more assertive foreign policy, in part as a way of escaping this sense of internal domestic crisis. A mood of crisis and pessimism about the future haunted German elites, and many historians argue affected the decisions made at the time of the outbreak of the Second World War. Let's turn next to examine the case of what had been a dominant superpower, France. France had been the superpower of Europe in the 18th century, but had suffered a crucial defeat later in the 19th century in its war against Prussia in 1870 to 1871. Its defeat had led not only to a crisis of political morale, within France itself, but also internationally had tended to downgrade the power status of France. After that war, France remained anxious about its new neighbor, Germany. The German problem or the German question was existential for France. France's own population of about 35 million was overshadowed by Germany's larger population. Many French politicians also longed for the recovery of the lost provinces of Alsace and Lorraine, with many French speakers that had been annexed by Germany after the French defeat in the Franco-Prussian War. 
France itself was a republic beset nonetheless by serious internal divisions between different kinds of political orientations, conservatives, republicans, and socialists. France also had a colonial empire where it sought in part to compensate for the loss to its prestige in Europe. And in almost a textbook case of the operation of the balance of power, a weakened France sought allies which might help it to oppose a future German threat. We'll turn next to examine the enigmatic and huge, outsized great power of the Russian Empire. Russia to the east was an enormous and in many ways mysterious empire ruled by the Romanov dynasty spanning several continents, Europe as well as Asia. With a huge population of 164 million, as well as vast uh, natural resources, the Russian Empire was vast in potential, but still at present backward in terms of its industrial development compared to Central or Western Europe. It was ruled over not by a constitutional or democratic system, but rather by a Tsar, an emperor, Nicholas II, who ruled over a traditional autocratic system that was already under strain. Though certain accommodations had been made to introduce some elements of constitutionalism or more democratic government, the Tsar, Nicholas II, took very seriously his own role as the personal ruler of these lands. In particular, his reign was marked by two disasters, which had overtaken the Russian Empire at the start of the 20th century in 1905. Russia had been defeated in the 1904 to 1905 Russo-Japanese War, something that was unheard of, the defeat by a non-European power of a European great power. And as a result of this humiliation and the crisis of that war, in 1905, Russia itself had been racked by a revolution, the revolution of 1905, which very nearly brought the regime down within Russia itself. In the years that followed, Russia sought to develop its vast potential, both economically and militarily, with ambitious reform programs. But there was much ground to make up. The Russian peasantry, the serfs, had only been freed in 1861, and it lagged behind in agricultural as well as industrial development. In part because of the repressiveness of Russia's political authorities, which tended to make revolutionaries out of people who otherwise might have been reformers, a varied revolutionary movement within Russia grew up and envisioned the overthrow of the state and the establishment of a new system by terrorism if necessary. On the peripheries of this Russian-dominated empire, there were also many dissatisfied nationalities that were not Russian. These included the Poles, Lithuanians, Latvians, Estonians, Finns, and others who denounced Russia not as a glorious multinational empire, but rather as a prison of nations, denying them their longed-after national independence. Paradoxically, the same system of the Tsarist empire presented itself outside with the nationalist ideology of pan-Slavism as the patron of other Slavic nationalities, uh, and taking a leading role in the liberation of Slavic peoples not under Russian rule. The other traditional empire that played a great power role was Austria-Hungary. It was a venerable old empire under the Habsburg ruling house. This multinational state of 50 million had been presided over by the now aged Emperor Franz Josef from his capital in Vienna. He had ruled since 1848 
and had become so intensely identified with Austro-Hungarian legitimacy that many grew to worry about whether his passing with time might not undermine the empire's own existence. The empire consisted of 12 major ethnic groups held together by dynastic tradition and power, not by one unified nationalism, a force that Austrian leaders, on the contrary, feared. This older empire had been reorganized into the so-called dual monarchy of shared rule between the German-speaking Austrians and the Hungarian elites in 1867, after the Habsburg Empire had been defeated by Bismarck's Prussia in 1866. Henceforth, it would be known as the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The demands of dissatisfied ethnic groups, the challenges of underdeveloped industrialization, and the anxieties for the survival of the empire itself beset its leadership. Geographically, the Balkans were an area of special concern to the empire to the south, both as a field of potential activity for themselves as well as a potential threat of nationalism to their rule. Austro-Hungary's precarious position, its uncertain chances for survival, tended to force it into an ever closer and closer partnership with the imperial Germany. Other powers that were not of great power status but nonetheless figured included the Ottoman Empire or Turkey. This was often called the sick man of Europe because of its steady geopolitical decline, which contrasted in such dramatic terms with its glorious past as the once great Islamic sultanate uh, stretching from North Africa all the way to Persia in the east. Ottoman Turkey's lagging development, nationalist revolts in its few remaining Balkan territories, and the ambitions of European powers to carve up its imperial holdings made its future especially uncertain. How to deal with its expected demise was called by European politicians the Eastern question, how very polite, and in fact occupied European diplomats intensely. In a last-ditch effort to save what remained of the Ottoman Empire, in 1908, a so-called Young Turk nationalist revolutionary movement came to power with the aim of reviving the empire. Turkey itself came increasingly under German influence with military advisors, railway projects, and council from that patron power. Another contender for great power status was Italy. The Italian lands had been unified late, as Germany would later be, under the ruling house of Savoy from 1860. With a population of 36 million, thus smaller than the other great powers, Italy had intense ambitions for great power status, but within faced internal problems of underdevelopment and political disunity. Italian nationalists also were keenly aware the territories that they still claimed, and they called them the irredenta, or unredeemed lands, remained outside of Italy's geographic scope. Austria-Hungary held these territories, and this was a source of friction between the, great po- between the powers. Colonial rivalries with France also created international animosity in Italian foreign relations. Most certainly not a great power, but a regional power, was the Kingdom of Serbia in the Balkans. The Kingdom of Serbia was a proud Balkan state which had fought for and gained its independence from Ottoman rule over the course of the 19th century, but its ambitions were even larger. They were to lead someday a Balkan League uniting the South Slavic-related peoples under Serbian patronage. And they enjoyed in this aim the support of Russia, uh, a Slavic great power to the east, a big brother, uh, which had signed an alliance with Serbia in 1903 and supported its aims. 
there were also two remarkable powers that were bidding for great power status that were not European, and this is what made them special. One of them was Japan. In a truly remarkable self-willed transformation from within, Japan had adopted Western technology and aspects of political organization after the 1868 so-called Meiji Restoration. Determined to imitate the Europeans and their successes, Japan also wanted to become an imperialist contender in the Pacific. And thus it went to war with China in 1894, with Russia in 1904, and beat that great power of Europe, and annexed Korea in 1910, becoming an imperialist great power. The final case of a great power emerging onto the scene was the United States. Separated by the Atlantic Ocean from European affairs, the United States did not figure prominently in great power politics. Nonetheless, keen observers anticipated a future for it of significant proportions. Its industrial development was striking. In the, by the start of the 20th century, it had overtaken both Great Britain and Germany in steel production, a key measure of industrialization. And in military terms, while its army was small and its navy was growing, its potential power was quite significant. We'll close with some observations about the notion of the balance of power at work in international relations. The balance of power is the name given to that dynamic interrelation and interplay of the great powers. The concept signifies a balance between powers with no one power capable of totally dominating the others. If it were capable of doing so, it would have attained the status of what's called in political science or political philosophy, hegemon, with hegemonic or total power. The balance of power concept suggests that whenever a contender for hegemonic power arises, all other powers will unite in coalitions to resist such a hegemon. The operation of the balance of power is a longstanding factor in European politics, It was inaugurated after the 1648 Treaty of Westphalia ended the titanic struggle of the Thirty Years' War in Europe. The 1648 Treaty of Westphalia uh, crafted the balance of power not by design, but simply by recognizing sovereign states as political actors. The Congress of Vienna of 1815, which brought to an end the Napoleonic Wars, by contrast, formally institutionalized the idea of the balance of power as a principle of harmony and conservative solidarity under the guidance of the masterful Austrian diplomat Prince Clemens von Metternich. The notion was that the balance of power was a good which had to be preserved through periodic conferences of the great powers that would avoid wars but instead would settle problems among themselves and would institutionalize in a peaceful way the balance of power. This system, which was called by the the really marvelously evocative name of the Concert of Europe, that's to say the great powers acting in concert, lasted for decades and ensured nearly a century without larger general wars in Europe. But it had started to break down in the course of the 19th century, especially with the Crimean War of 1854 to 1856, which pitted the great powers of Great Britain and France against Russia and other wars obviously followed, including those of Bismarck and the wars of German unification. Thus, at the end of the 19th century and the start of the 20th century, the result was a more loose and competitive scene in international politics. 
Whether equilibrium would be maintained through great power politics and the balance of power would depend to a great extent, as we've already suggested, on the role of the new Germany. Other factors in international politics were also imperialism. A wave of high imperialism from the 1880s had led to a frantic scramble for colonies carving up Africa and Asia, with even smaller powers like Belgium getting involved in the act. The key players here were Britain and France, who were particular colonial rivals. Britain was also worried about Russia's intentions in Central Asia. Germany, by contrast, and this irked Wilhelm II, had not participated actively in this colonial scramble because of Bismarck's policy of abstention. Kaiser Wilhelm II would soon remove this restraint. And the result would be an increasing arms race in international politics, with growing tensions in imperialism, as well as a more aggressive German foreign policy from 1890, arms races resulted on land as well as on, at sea. On the seas, Germany, under Wilhelm II's aggressive policy, built the world's second largest fleet, touching off a naval arms race with the world's largest fleet, Britain's. At vast expense, a new generation of so-called dreadnought battleships was launched, inaugurating a whole new stage of naval competition. On land, meanwhile, mass armies were built up by France, Germany, and Russia. From 1890 to 1914, European armies doubled in size. Hand-in-hand with increased numbers of men and equipment went increasingly carefully calibrated, minute planning for military operations at the start of the war. Railway timetables and speed were emphasized as the European great powers prepared for an apocalyptic conflict. Many contemporaries recognized that Europe was potentially steering towards a general war, and the crisis in politics as well as in thought and culture that accompanied this mood of anticipation and anxiety we'll examine in our next lecture. Lecture 3 towards crisis in politics and culture. In this lecture, we'll be examining some of the deeper forces that were pushing a previously coherent European civilization towards crisis and ultimately world war. We'll examine, first of all, the distinctive ideas and mindsets of the day, We'll turn then to examine politics, in which a new orientation towards public opinion, the participation of masses in politics, and the role of those masses was strengthened. We'll examine also disturbing sets of ideas like social Darwinist celebrations of the survival of the fittest, that produced views of war not as a tragedy, but rather as a form of hygiene for civilization. Even trends in socialist thought, which otherwise rejected the disaster of war, could take on apocalyptic tendencies in expectation of the final total revolution that would lead to the coming of a blessed state without exploitation. Last, we'll turn to examine some of the illusions of war and peace, misconceptions about the nature of the conflict to come, and its alleged promises of glory and transcendence and heroism. One of the key ideas that was of enormous significance in a shared European civilization for all of its national differences was a certain confidence in the idea of progress. 
European cultural confidence presented progress as the very crown to the achievements, the self-evident superiority, uh, so Europeans claimed, of their civilization. Uh, And indeed, in the process of reckoning up examples of this progress, there clearly had been enormous visible gains in the field of the sciences, in medicine, and obviously in terms of industry and productivity. And if anything, these changes, this progress as it was viewed, was speeding up. A second wave of industrial advance from 1871, called the Second Industrial Revolution, was bringing accelerating change and bringing new industrial materials so that, for instance, if the first industrial revolution had been, to a great extent, based on coal, the second industrial revolution already was focusing on the internal combustion engine, was based on chemicals and uh, recognizably more modern uh, forms of technology. Um, Historians would probably be quick to point out that 1871 is a suspiciously exact date for the beginning of the Second Industrial Revolution. Uh, There was a a moment here that we want to simply bring into focus uh, why 1871 for the beginning of a new wave of industrialization. Well, the date corresponds to the founding of a German empire in 1871 under Prussian leadership that we've discussed in earlier lectures. Uh, Very clearly, Germany was playing, uh, playing a leading role in the second wave of industrialization. The first industrial revolution, as it's often called from the 18th century, had been based in Great Britain, which had taken the leading role. Now it seemed to some a worrying factor uh, that Germany was taking the lead. Science also lent prestige to social Darwinist thought and the notion of scientific racism. That's to say, racism claiming to have the imprimatur of science, all of which undergirded imperialist domination of non-Western peoples by so it was alleged, uh, giving them a claim to the rule uh, of other races. A proud symbol of technological progress, which turned into a troubling portent for things to come, was the case of the great and proud transatlantic liner, the Titanic. It was seen at at its time as a tremendous technical accomplishment, which seemed to contemporaries almost invulnerable, able to scorn the elements And it was precisely this hubris about its invulnerability that led it to hit an iceberg and to sink in 1912 with more than 1,500 passengers killed. This example from just before the outbreak of the First World War of technology and confidence in the technology running ahead of understanding of its limitations or its liabilities um, in an uncanny way would be repeated many times in World War I. Among the distinctive ideas that were associated with progress and its promise was the key concept or ideology of liberalism. Liberalism was a self-confident ideology which identified its ideas and its prescriptions with the promise of progress. Also called classical liberalism, this ideology had its origins in Enlightenment thought of the 18th century and was strongly represented in the European middle classes who, not coincidentally, identified themselves with the very progress of the Enlightenment and of liberalism. Classical liberalism can be summed up as a faith in personal freedom and individualism, bringing progress. 
many prescriptions about politics and society and economics flowed for classical liberals from this faith in the individual. These included constitutional restraints to produce a limited state so that the government would have to give a sphere or scope for individual freedoms and the free unfolding of one's personality and one's talents. In the economic realm, capitalism and free trade, the maximally unimpeded traffic of goods and of ideas and of finance, was held up as bringing the greatest common good for all. Progress, it was adjudged, tended to grow out of a process of competition in the marketplace of economics as well as ideas. The best ideas would win out as a result of vigorous debate and argument. Another tremendously important ideology, at first closely identified with liberalism, was known as nationalism. Nationalism, in spite of many predictions uh, of its upcoming demise, is still very much with us today in our own times uh, and uh, so shows every sign of growing stronger. Uh, it had undergone a process of evolution. Nationalism had turned from its revolutionary and liberal origins at the start of the 19th century to forms that increasingly could be chauvinistic and narrow, uh, turning away from its message of universal liberation. It could often be used by nation-states and government elites to reinforce the legitimacy of their own authority and their own rule. Nonetheless, nationalism, even at the start of the 20th century, still had the potential to be a revolutionary force, especially in places where so-called submerged peoples clamored for self-determination. Multinational empires like Russia and Austria-Hungary certainly had many different ethnic groups that didn't feel that they were represented by the authorities or by the government elites, and in such places, nationalism as a set of ideas and as a prescription for action could be an explosive force. And it was truly feared by the rulers of those multi-ethnic empires precisely for that reason. One needs to think one's way into a mindset or a worldview in this period in which nationalism seemed to be a self-evident, almost organically given form of identity. By the later 19th century, there were remarkably current notions of hierarchies of peoples. It was simply judged natural at the time that one could distinguish between peoples in terms of their achievements and to, as it were, categorize or rate their civilizational achievements. These notions of hierarchies of people also carried with it a, an undertone or a subtext that could be quite threatening. Uh, depending on one's position in these hierarchies of peoples. The notion of there being peoples who were rising and growing in strength and vitality and other races that were declining or headed for weakness and enervation or maybe even extinction was commonplace. And mo one most definitely in this period of nationalism wanted to belong to the rising peoples rather than those on their way out. In contrast to liberal ideologies, but in vigorous debate with them in a philosophical dialogue, uh, was another ideology called conservatism, which had arisen in part in response to the challenges of these bold new liberal ideas. Conservatives resisted liberal ideologies. Uh, 
But over time, they had started to incorporate nationalist ideas when they could. And in the process of the 19th century, they had managed to diffuse some of the revolutionary potential of nationalism by turning nationalism into a support for their own regime or their party. Now, clearly, neither liberals nor conservatives were monolithic groups who all felt the same thing. And in terms of conservatism, there were some really remarkable contrasts. In Britain, conservatism as an ideology took a specific form, uh, later called evolutionary conservatism, the notion that a society should be open to change and that indeed, as a famous formula went, change was the very principle of preservation. On the continent, by contrast, conservatives instead uh, saw themselves as on the defensive, protecting aristocratic privilege and caste, especially if they belonged to national, uh, multinational empires threatened by nationalist ideas. We need to add to this dynamic and often exciting mix of philosophical stances a, uh, a stance which was self-consciously revolutionary and remained so. That was socialism. Karl Marx, a socialist thinker from Germany, had promulgated a new kind of socialism, which he announced was to um, overtake and to improve upon all of the earlier utopian uh, socialisms that had been promulgated in the course of the 19th century. His version of scientific socialism, which he announced at the middle of the 19th century, promised a scientific program for achieving an international workers' revolution, which would overthrow capitalism and its system of exploitation, establish the dictatorship of the proletariat, the abolition of private property, and a classless utopia free of exploitation with the fullest human development for all was said to follow. As we've already commented in an earlier lecture, especially in Germany, this message had tremendous force. A powerful and disciplined political party, the Social Democratic Movement, grew up in order to follow these prescriptions for scientific socialism. And socialism in this period was seen as most definitely a fact in politics, whether one feared it or hoped for it. Socialists lived in the expectation that they were on the right side of history and that it was moving in the direction that Marx had prescribed, one that was leading to a climax of historical proportions. And this was made very clear in the anthem of their movement. Um, the nationalists had their national anthems. The socialists, by contrast, had the international anthem, known as the Internationale. This anthem of the movement foretold in ringing tones the imminent final battle that would lead to a comprehensive human liberation under the banner of socialism. We need to turn next to examine the implications that these ideas would have for politics. Politics in a time of change, a time of change in which the masses needed to be incorporated. Since the French Revolution of 1789, politics had been fundamentally changed. Politics had now come to imply the need for all regimes to appeal to the masses for legitimacy, to appeal to the broader population, even if this was only on the level of rhetoric. And even personal autocracies like that of the Russian Empire 
or of Imperial Germany, nonetheless tried to at least create the impression of popular monarchist fervor in support of their regime. Now, it's obvious that this new infusion of the masses into politics, the increased participation of larger groups and the need to appeal to them certainly transformed the dynamics of politics, made populist appeals and dynamism certainly more desirable, and, as we'll be seeing shortly, also could lead to an increased acceptance of conflict. The ideologies of liberalism, nationalism, conservatism, and even socialism that we've outlined just so very briefly now could all implicitly be used to justify at least some measure of the acceptance of competition or conflict as producing progress. One reason for this was, well, when one considered what the opposite alternative was. The feared opposite of vigorous competition or conflict was seen by many people not as a state of universal peace, but instead in line with thinking in terms of hierarchies of rising or declining races as degeneration, decivilization. A besetting anxiety of the age was precisely this, that some vitality, some dynamism would be lost. And this, in turn, would affect views of the war. Uh, Even on the part of liberals, who hoped certainly that progress would be won through competition in the marketplace peacefully, and who denounced war as a destructive factor in politics, nonetheless had endorsed competition. And the socialists, as we've already seen, even as they looked forward to the day when the fundamental political reordering of the world would take place in line with their ideas, nonetheless looked forward to an explosive revolution, a conflict certainly, in order to bring this about. As such ideas and acceptance of conflict change views of war, we need to speak about another allied phenomenon, that of militarism. War was often seen at the close of the 19th century and the start of the 20th century uh, not exclusively in terms of being a man-made tragedy, but often as something else in addition, as a test of national identity, whether a people had the requisite vitality that assured their status as a rising race, as a test of national worth and cohesion. Militarism, one probably shouldn't consider a full-fledged ideology in the sense that nationalism or liberalism or conservatism were. Rather, militarism simply expressed the notion that the values of the armed forces, their code of virtues, of obedience, of duty, of command, of hierarchy, were supreme over those of civilian society. And as part and parcel of the growing arms races, as a concomitant of the growing tension in Europe, militarism could be seen in many European countries, not always dominant, but nonetheless present as an option uh, socially, nonetheless. Militarism, however, was especially identified with one country, where this word was to many not a, not a feature to be avoided, but on the contrary was seen as good and an old part of German tradition, and that was Germany. Germany, especially in its Prussian elite, seemed a very embodiment of the values of militarism. And there was no better embodiment of this code of values than Kaiser Wilhelm II. Historians who examine Germany have spoken of 
a process almost of refeudalization taking place in the, cor- the course of the later 19th century. They sometimes speak of a process of brutalization of the German middle classes. And what they mean by this is that German middle classes, who otherwise would have been carriers of liberal ideas, often tended, as a result of the ideas of militarism, to try to imitate the old established officer aristocracies of Prussian military tradition and German military tradition. These older officer aristocracies, in the case of Prussia, were known as the Junkers. And the middle classes valued uh, their style and tried, when they were able, to imitate their older traditional feudal ways. Um, To give just but one very vivid example, German university students in this day um, often would appear, and for the rest of their lives, would appear with faces that were cross-hatched and, and, and marked with dueling scars, long scars that would run from one side of the face to the other. And this was something that they didn't see as a disfigurement, but on the contrary, were proud of. It was a sign that they were sharing in a medieval tradition of dueling, that they were men of honor, and that they were capable of engaging in this military ritual. Another example that made clear the popularity of these militarist ideas in in large segments of German society was the tremendous respect that was shown to reserve officers uh, whose uh, wearing of uniforms, whether in the classroom, if they were professors, or uh, on special occasions, uh, emphasized the status and the respect that the German military uh, was accorded. Uh, At the same time, as we've already discussed in an earlier lecture, nationalist pressure groups and leagues like the Army League, the Navy League, uh, or the Colonial League all demanded aggressive foreign policy and, in fact, criticized even the Kaiser's government for not doing enough in that regard and also clamored for increased military expenditures in a cycle of militarism. As we've already adverted, the person of Kaiser Wilhelm II was the perfect embodiment of these trends. And many people felt at the time that he somehow was in tune with the spirit of the age. His love of uniforms, parades, aggressive rhetoric, and militarism seemed to symbolize precisely this. Now, it needs nonetheless to be pointed out that not all Germans subscribed to these militarist values. This was not a monolithic emotion seizing an entire nation. And in fact, in particular, the Social Democrats, out of their uh, political convictions, criticized militarism as unhealthy, as a diversion from a real program of fundamental political reform. At the same time, however, especially among Germany's elites, and the same was true in some other countries as well, war could appear to some as an escape, a way out of political crisis or social stalemate in order to recover dynamism and vitality. We need to turn to examine the question of how culture played in this volatile mix of ideas. And in this context, uh, we need to, in particular, uh, focus on a disturbing trend, which was not the monopoly of any one country, but on the contrary, the closer one looks at sources from the late 19th century, the more one sees it throughout Western civilization, a trend called social Darwinism. Social Darwinism was the use of Charles Darwin's ideas about evolution and about how nature moved through an evolutionary progress 
but instead turned into a political agenda. A political agenda that dealt with humanity and with societies. Social Darwinism used Darwin's ideas to praise the survival of the fittest and the struggle for survival among individuals and nations. Some social Darwinists celebrated war, seeing it as a form of social hygiene, which did away with the confining claustrophobia of peacetime society. They condemned peace as enervating and argued that war was a necessary test. The social Darwinists represented simply the most extreme of these celebrations of war. We want to examine now some of the misconceptions about the nature of modern war that were unfortunately quite common in societies at the turn of the century. War in popular culture was often thought of as likely to be short, fast, and glorious. There were absurdly romanticized popular depictions in novels, in literature, in journalism, which seconded these ideas. They praised clean death on the battlefield, heroism, an uh, acid test of bravery. At the same time, however, there certainly were many hints that future war in the 20th century would in fact take on a very different aspect from these idealized depictions. And even though um, historians sometimes emphasize the, the delusions about what the true nature of war would be like, uh, it needs to be said that a, a whole number of generals, in fact, at the time, military professionals, had begun to suspect from particular, uh, for particular reasons that future war, in fact, uh, would not take on these lines, but rather be quite different. Some of these lessons were slow to percolate. Instances that were especially suggestive included the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 and 1905, or more remotely, the American Civil War. Both uh, of these increasingly industrialized forms of conflict had seen phenomena that would be, once again, evident in the First World War. The battle in the trenches, the devastating impact of modern military technologies, and at least aspects of this phenomenon of total war uh, that we earlier had introduced. In fact, one could even expand this discussion further to mention that the devastating toll which imperialist conquest, the scramble for colonies in Africa or Asia, had taken on native peoples, had already suggested just how destructive modern warfare and modern weapons could be. But unfortunately, only racist condescension towards those native victims of European imperialism obscured the dreadful, dreadful lessons uh, of the imperial conquests of non-European peoples. Um, a key moment uh, which disturbed even the conquerors came in 1898 when British forces at the Battle of Omdurman in Sudan had annihilated a far larger and extremely well-motivated Sudanese force by using Maxim guns, a form of a machine gun. Um, in touching naivete, Europeans at the time calmed themselves that Europeans would not use machine guns against fellow Europeans because this was intended to be only a weapon for use against non-Western masses, and they were to be dreadfully wrong, as events would show. It was also expected, um, optimistically, that war might be restrained. And in fact, the notion of civilized warfare, uh, an ironic uh, phrase or, or term, um, spoke to these hopes. 
the Geneva Conventions, which had been negotiated in 1864 and 1906, and the Hague Conventions of 1899 and 1907, all represented an attempt to outline rules for what was called civilized warfare, including protections for civilians and prisoners, the banning of some new weapons like poison gas, all imperfect um, the treaties, but nonetheless attempts to somehow rein in the destructive potential of war itself. And nonetheless, war was the object of both celebrations and fears in European culture. In popular culture, especially in extensive speculative le- literature, we today would call this science fiction or pulp fiction, uh, many novels forecast or considered what the next war might be like. And some of them foretold carnage Uh, on a scale which might at least approach the reality that later transpired. But other movements, in terms of culture, art, and intellectual life, instead stressed an irrationalist celebration of war. In Italy, in a very famous case, uh, a movement that called itself the Futurists in 1910 had um, quite deliberately shocked the world with a manifesto, a manifesto of values that included a celebration of war. The Futurist Manifesto praised technology, speed, danger, and war as an escape from a boring, orderly world. They argued that museums should be burned down, that old statues were infinitely boring compared to the glory of a new racing car with all of its technology and with all of its aggressive power. And they saw war as an example to fulfill some of their ideas. The year before the outbreak of the First World War also brought another tremendously significant cultural event. In Paris in 1913, Stravinsky's ballet, The Rites of Spring, uh, a willfully primitivist and energetic ballet, shocked the public with its novelty, its newness, and uh, its uh, theme matter, which, after all, was that of a human sacrifice, anticipating in uncanny ways the vaster human sacrifice that was about to take place in European society. There were earlier philosophical ideas that could be drawn upon as well in this irrationalist celebration. The life philosophy of the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche had challenged the order and respectability of 19th century middle-class society and many ideas of liberalism as well. Nietzsche had celebrated strength, the will to power, a sense of moral adventuring beyond good and evil with the goal of evolving someday a new kind of human being, the Superman, a term that we still use today, in German, the Übermensch. In Germany, such ideas captured a generation that felt dissatisfied with the crisis state of German politics as well as culture and who took aboard these ideas. In particular, a back-to-nature movement of hikers called Wandervogel in Germany, represented in, in remarkable ways in anticipation of the hippie generation of the 1960s, as they turned away from a present day that they saw as commercialized and not idealistic, and longed for a world somehow remade by idealism and ge- generational revolt. However misguidedly, when war came in 1914, many of them would feel that their hour had arrived. To many, it seemed that Europe was moving towards war. It wasn't clear when it would happen or precisely how, but tensions certainly had been growing. 
According to the eminent military historian John Keegan, turn-of-the-century Europe was pregnant with war. In particular, military planning had increased the likelihood of the destructive potential of this war. In its victory over France in 1870 to 1871, the Prussian and then later the German army had seemingly demonstrated the key to military success on the battlefield. Universal conscription, the nation at arms, draft, in other words, for everyone, large reserves so that there would be manpower to throw into huge battles, and, and this was crucial, planning with scientific precision in order to achieve speedy mobilization. The Germans seemed to have arrived at a recipe for victory, and soon other great powers were imitating them. Military planning among all the great European powers grew ever more detailed, dominated by that key symbol of industrialization, the railroad. Soon, railroad timetables, planning down to the minute for when, what troop trains would be crossing which bridges at what precise moment, had become an art or a science. Mobilization increasingly implied war, as once these plans had been started, they had to continue unfolding lest they dissolve into chaos. If speed was crucial, this simply underlined the importance of being there to strike with maximum force the first blow. Germany's case was unique in one aspect in particular. For Germany, mobilization meant war. The German army's secret plan, the Schlieffen Plan, sought to deal with a particular German problem, the geopolitical challenge that Germany faced of having to fight a war probably on both fronts, both in the East against Russia and in the West against France. This plan had been crafted by the German chief of general staff from 1891 to 1905, General Alfred von Schlieffen. Its aim as a project was to find a way of knocking France out of the war within 42 days by a sweeping movement of armies through neutral Belgium and Holland, violating their neutrality, plunging through northern France to encircle French armies and Paris, and then after winning against France, German armies could turn to face the slower Russian enemy. We need to observe about the Schlieffen plan that its disregard of political and diplomatic realities, not least the invasion of neutral countries, made it clear that this was an example of militarism, abstracted from the realities of politics. The French had their plan, Plan 17, which projected a glorious frontal attack into Germany to regain the lost provinces of Alsace and Lorraine. And Russia, for its part, also had plans for an attack on Germany. All of this was given further impetus by a so-called cult of the offensive. In a counterpoint to military planning and technocratic organization, military planners also emphasized the spirit of the attack, the cult of the offensive. Generals and officers argued that fiercely dedicated soldiers could overrun even far larger forces as long as they had the requisite ferocity and morale. And thus, military training often emphasized direct attacks and bayonet charges. In the French case, this crucial quality of spirit was even given a, a glorious name, Elan Vital. It implied an all-out extreme attack, which was necessary to compensate for a hard reality, France's smaller population versus its German enemy. Once the largest nation in Europe, France by 1914, could field only 60% of German potential manpower 
And thus it was clear that the argument for greater morale took on a special resonance. A young officer by the name of Charles de Gaulle, later the leader of a recovered France, proclaimed in 1913, the year before the war broke out, everywhere, always, one should have a single idea to advance. This cult of the offensive, this militaristic thinking, these trends in the culture represented an explosive mixture which would be ignited in the 1914 July crisis that we'll examine in our next lecture. Lecture 4, Causes of the War and the July Crisis, 1914. In this lecture, we'll be considering the causes of the war and the July crisis of 1914 as Europe plunged into the conflict. Fierce debate has surrounded the question of the causes of the war since the very event took place. In this lecture, we'll consider first the prehistory of growing tensions that led to the war. Next, we'll analyze the immediate events, uh, such as the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand at Sarajevo, in June of 1914, that touched off a diplomatic chain reaction that produced the conflict itself. We'll weigh the dominant positions in the furious debates that have raged on the origins of the war, and we'll seek to understand better some of the issues at stake, who or what ultimately was responsible for the outbreak of the war. Now, clearly, in terms of the largest issues, an analysis of the causes of the First World War is existentially important. The very fact of how the great powers tipped over into a general war in 1914 is considered a classic case of escalation in diplomatic and military history, and thus it's very urgent to understand how it happened. Indeed, this is one of the most voluminous debates in all of historical scholarship, and many hundreds of books have been written on the topic. The debates center on many issues, which are key questions of historiography. The debates concern questions of whether long-term or short-term factors were more important, whether the role of individuals should be stressed, or whether rather structural factors took on greater importance, whether the policymakers who produced this disaster did so by intention, with malice aforethought, or whether miscalculation instead guided their steps. And questions also, ultimately, of whether culpability can be clearly assigned to one or another party or side, as opposed to a collective responsibility for this man-made disaster. We need, first of all, to understand some of the prehistory of these events, because 1914 and the crises of that year, in fact, built on earlier diplomatic history. German unification in 1871, Bismarck's German Revolution, of unifying Germany into one imperial nation-state, had changed the balance of power. After this German revolution of German unification, Bismarck often sought through secret diplomacy to reinforce stability, to reassure Germany's neighbors, and to make Germany itself indispensable to European order. A key example of this was Bismarck's attempt to argue to the conservative powers of the continent, Germany, 
Austria-Hungary, and Russia, that they had shared interests. And in 1873, he crafted the Three Emperors League as an attempt to solidify that solidarity. But ultimately, it failed, in part because of conflicts between Austria-Hungary and Russia. Bismarck then scaled back his ambitions and set up the so-called Dual Alliance, where Austria-Hungary joined Germany in an alliance relationship in 1879. When Italy joined as a third power in 1882, this became the so-called Triple Alliance. But at the same time, pursuing his canny diplomatic manipulations, Bismarck also kept open lines of communication with the conservative power of Russia by signing the secret reinsurance treaty of 1887, which promised that neither power would aid another power attacking either Germany or Russia. When Bismarck left office in 1890, essentially dismissed by the new fiery Kaiser Wilhelm II, this special German tie with Russia was dropped. In 1894, contrary to German expectations, Russia and France, in what amounted to a diplomatic bombshell, uh, announced that they had entered into a military alliance. This took German diplomats by surprise. Their expectations were that the political systems of both of these countries were so different that they wouldn't be able to be reliable alliance partners. Russia, after all, was an autocratic empire, France, by contrast, a republic. But as it turns out, their shared strategic interests overrode any domestic ideological differences. Now, in terms of the concept of the balance of power that we've discussed in earlier lectures, at this point, with the emergence of a French and Russian alliance, the most natural outcome would have been a balancing off of this alliance by a revitalized German-British relationship or friendship or alliance, which would have balanced off uh, against this constellation of powers. Uh, it says much about the disastrous miscalculations of German diplomacy that this didn't take place. By contrast, Britain uh, felt uh, that though the time was right for an alliance, uh, finding new partners... Germany was not a partner that came into question. Britain had grown worried about its own isolation at the start of the 20th century and had found allies, among them Japan, in 1902, but ultimately was worried about German intentions. When Wilhelm II, the Kaiser of Germany, announced a new aggressive foreign policy called Weltpolitik, or world policy, in 1897, which aimed to make Germany a, a world power, and began construction of a great fleet, the British were worried. In a warped sense, uh, Wilhelm uh, II had intended this building of a, of a super navy in some sense to make Germany more desirable to the British as an alliance partner uh, because uh, it would gain the respect of this maritime power. Uh, this was again a disastrous miscalculation because Britain instead grew worried about rivalry on the seas. So Britain then reacted by approaching its traditional enemy, France. And they settled their mutual colonial frictions in an agreement, not an alliance, not a formal alliance, from 1904 called the Entente Cordiale, the friendly relationship. Now, while this was not a formal alliance, further cooperation could certainly develop on the basis of this agreement. German diplomats worried about what they saw as an encirclement of enemy powers all around Germany, and thus they sought to provoke colonial crises that would fragment the alliances that they saw coalescing against them. 
The colonial crises over Morocco in 1905 and again in 1911, in fact, did just the opposite. They cemented French and British cooperation and increased general suspicions of Germany and its ambitions. Completing this web of relationships uh, and of uh, friendships of powers that worried about Germany uh, was in 1907 the understanding which Britain and Russia undertook in order to settle their colonial conflicts. So by 1907, a very key diplomatic moment had been arrived at. Throughout the European scene, increasingly rigid alliances covered the European continent. On the one hand, one had the Triple Alliance, Imperial Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Italy, though questions always remained about whether Italy could be trusted to ultimately uh, participate actively in the Triple Alliance. The Triple Alliance was balanced off by the opposing powers of the Triple Entente, France and Russia bound together in an alliance, and Britain bound to them through understandings or Entente's. Very clearly, the temperature was rising in terms of potential conflict in Europe. And nowhere more so than in the Balkan region. The Balkans, as we've already pointed out, was an area where, with the receding of the Ottoman Empire, a power vacuum had emerged, which presented a tremendously volatile political situation internationally. Uh, and such a keen diplomatic thinker and observer as the Iron Chancellor of Germany, Otto von Bismarck had worried about the Balkans. In uh, one of the phrases that he just tossed off that later seemed to have almost a prophetic quality to them, Bismarck had worried that all of his careful undertakings to preserve European peace would be undone by, as he put it, some damn fool thing in the Balkans. And that was precisely what ended up happening in 1914. Uh, But in fact, a whole series of Balkan crises had preceded this ultimate Balkan crisis, and they hadn't produced general war. It's sometimes said by historians that World War I really represented the third Balkan War, one in a series which ultimately escalated into a worldwide conflict. How had that happened? As Ottoman control had receded in the course of the later 19th century, before the power of the uprising of nationalist independence movements in Balkan countries like Serbia, Bulgaria, and Romania, which became independent and clamored for more territory, this region had become a power vacuum. And it was one in particular in which both multinational empires, Austria-Hungary as well as Russia, got involved, feeling that their interests were implicated. In a very special sense, Austrian policymakers felt that the Balkans represented a special threat. We'll recall that Austria-Hungary, as a multinational, multi-ethnic construct with 12 major nationalities, felt especially threatened by the powers of nationalism. If nationalism truly came to the fore, the result would be that the empire itself might very well explode. And the anxieties focused on the Balkans of Austro-Hungarian leaders. They considered it imperative to impede the ambitions of Serbia in particular, because Serbian ambitions involved the creation of a South Slavic state with Serbs in a leadership position, feeling that they had a uh, essentially a, a, a nationalist calling to achieve this Slavic unity. And the anxiety of Austro-Hungarian policymakers was precisely that their own South Slavic peoples, 
Croatians, Slovenes, Serbian minorities living uh, under the Habsburg rule might feel the attractions of this pan-Slavic ideology and be drawn to its message. If that were to happen, the other nationalities of Austria-Hungary might very well peel off as well, and the empire itself would be destroyed. Uh, Events clearly had taken a bad turn already in the so-called Bulgarian crisis of 1885, when Austria-Hungary and Russia had argued over who should have most influence in the Bulgarian state. Germany, forced to choose between its alliance partners, had uh, tried to steer a more neutral course, but was seen as supporting Austria-Hungary more. This led to Russian anger, a worsening of German-Russian relations, and the breakdown of Bismarck's conservative Three Emperors League. There followed then an increase in tensions with the new 20th century, the Balkan Wars. In 1908, a crisis situation had developed in the Balkans when Austria annexed Bosnia-Herzegovina, an area which has been much in the news at the end of the 20th century and the start of the 21st. Austria-Hungary had administered this area since 1878, though it formally had remained under Ottoman rule, but now to, in part, demonstrate the vitality of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, had formally annexed the area. Serbia, which had also coveted that area, there were Serbians living there, was infuriated and prepared for conflict. When Germany supported Austria-Hungary, Serbia and its great patron to the east, Russia, felt that they were not ready for war, were humiliated and backed down. But both sides resolved that they would not compromise again. Wars then flared up in the Balkan area in 1912. A Balkan league, including Serbia, Bulgaria, Montenegro, and Greece, fought against the Ottoman Turks and expelled them from most of the Balkans and Europe, but then fell out themselves as allies over the spoils of their victory in the Second Balkan War of 1913, with most of the former allies ganging up to fight against Bulgaria. The outcome of the Second Balkan War was a remarkable one. Serbia had gained new confidence. Its size had doubled. Its confidence had grown in its sense of nationalist mission. But it still lacked access to the Adriatic. And the fact that Serbs in Bosnia had come under the rule of Austria-Hungary still rankled. These unresolved conflicts provided an explosive mixture which ultimately would help to produce the July crisis. The July crisis of 1914 began with a terrorist act. So in a very real sense, World War I began due to terrorism. Now, obviously, other factors had come into play. Earlier assassinations or acts of terrorism had not led to world wars. This one was different. On June 28, 1914, the heir to the Habsburg throne... Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife, Sophie, were visiting the provincial capital of Bosnia-Herzegovina, Sarajevo. At 11.15 in the morning, they were both assassinated. The assassination itself uh, proceeded with uh, essentially a comedy of errors, though a dark comedy, as the gang of assassins failed in repeated attempts uh, to uh, destroy the uh, procession of the Uh, royal couple. Uh, When, however, the car that was to take the uh, Archduke and his wife away from the scene took a wrong turn, by chance, as luck would have it, 
Uh, one final assassin saw his opportunity. He was very surprised to see the car unexpectedly loom up before him. He stepped up to it and fired into the car itself and assassinated the couple. The young assassin was an 18-year-old student, Gavrilo Princip, who was affiliated with a Serbian underground group called the Black Hand. Its motto was Union or Death, meaning union in a great South Slavic Serbian state, uh, or death, which he now had meted out. He was immediately arrested, and investigations followed as to how this could have happened. The assassination itself, contrary to the suspicions of the Austro-Hungarian government, had not been organized by Serbia's government itself, but it had been supported by shadowy, mysterious figures within that government, in particular the head of Serbian military intelligence, a Colonel Dragutin Dimitrievich, also known as Apis. The Sarajevo visit had coincided with a moment of nationalist fervor. It had, as it happened, fallen on an anniversary, the Serbian nationalist anniversary of the defeat of the Battle of Kosovo of Serbian forces by the Ottoman Turks in 1389 and had been seen as a special provocation by the nationalists who had brought off the assassination. Uh, Outrage internationally spread at this cruel act, and uh, Gavrilo Princip, uh, who was taken to prison, was soon tried and spared the death penalty because of his youth. He eventually died of tuberculosis in prison in 1918 before the war ended. Now the Austro-Hungarian government proceeded to respond to what was seen as a provocation, a challenge to the very existence of Austria-Hungary as a great power. The Austro-Hungarian government used this tragedy as an opportunity to stage a long-awaited showdown with Serbia to finally settle the score. When Austro-Hungary inquired whether Germany would support vigorous action by the Habsburg Empire, the German leadership agreed, and it gave what later historians have called a blank check of support on July 5, 1914, even though it understood that the risk of general war was certainly present and might break out. On July 23rd, thus, a crucial diplomatic event took place. Austria-Hungary presented an ultimatum to Serbia, one that had been very carefully crafted to be unacceptable to the Serbian government. It was to be accepted by them, the ultimatum announced, within 48 hours. On July 25th, Serbia went the extra mile by accepting all but a few of those conditions, accepting those which interfered with or didn't uh, correspond to its national sovereignty, in particular the demand for an Austro-Hungarian commission of investigation traveling throughout Serbia to investigate what they felt was probably the complicity of the Serbian government. Nonetheless, in response to what it considered an unsatisfactory answer, on July 28th, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. And now events began to unfold with tremendous rapidity. To support its Serbian ally, the Russians now came into play. Tsar Nicholas ordered full mobilization of Russia's armies on July 30th. The next day, on July 31st, Germany came to the support of its Austro-Hungarian ally. Germany sent to Russia an ultimatum that it had to stop its mobilization within 12 hours or face war. At this point, Events showed the importance of the detailed military planning and the rigid timetables which had been developed by general staffs in the years previous. 
Kaiser Wilhelm II, at this point, suggested, contrary to earlier plans, that perhaps one should not go to war in the West as well. His panicked generals almost experienced, by some accounts, a nervous breakdown at this and tearfully explained to the Kaiser that there were no other war plans. The war now proceeded, and war was declared. On August 1st, Germany declared war on Russia. On August 2nd, in line with its earlier plans for a knockout victory in the West before moving east, Germany declared an ultimatum to Belgium that it must allow German troops to pass through its neutral territory on their way to attack France. Belgium refused. Great Britain, which had repeatedly throughout these crisis hours proposed mediation or peace conferences, now communicated to Germany that if Belgian neutrality were violated, Britain would go to war. On August 3rd, Germany declared war on France, and on August 4th, invaded neutral Belgium, putting the long-ago crafted ideas of the Schlieffen Plan into action. On August 4th, Britain also entered the war. It did so officially for its commitment to respect the neutrality of little Belgium, which had been guaranteed by the great powers in 1839. The German prime minister or chancellor, Bethmann Hollweg, told a horrified British ambassador that this neutrality was merely a scrap of paper. Nonetheless, Britain respected its obligations and also, realistically, in terms of power politics, was concerned about the balance of power. It could not allow France to be crushed and for the channel to be dominated by German power. As many had suspected would happen, Italy did not honor its treaty obligations and instead stayed out of the war, tending to what it called its sacred egoism and defense of its own interests. Thus, by August 4th, 1914, this had become a general war such as Europe had not seen in the course of a century. At this point, the central powers, Imperial Germany and Austria-Hungary, the central powers, faced off against the allied powers, France, Great Britain, and Russia. The war now had become a general war. Debate continues to this very day about the causes of this conflict, and debate had begun with the war's start itself. Governments published so-called colored books claiming that their side was just, that they were reacting to aggression by the other side. Scholarly debates that have proceeded with, with ferocity in the years afterwards have seen enormous shifts since the war itself. One key formulation of an explanation of the causes of the war was provided by the Versailles Treaty. The Versailles Treaty at the end of the war, imposed upon a defeated Germany, uh, included Article 231, the so-called War Guild Clause, in which Germany was forced to accept sole responsibility, along with its allies, for launching the war. This clause was also intended to justify uh, the payment of reparations by the defeated side as well. But it provided a very clear answer. Germany accepted the responsibility for the war. However, in the next years, in the 1920s and the 1930s, uh, different interpretations instead became prominent, including the notion of collective responsibility. In the interwar years, as international tensions relaxed, as some of the passions of the war died down, Opinions shifted instead towards the notion not of sole German responsibility, but instead of a shared responsibility by many irresponsible European politicians for this tragedy. 
And even British wartime leader David Lloyd George, about whom we'll be talking much more about his energetic leadership in the war, afterwards suggested that perhaps all European states had somehow inadvertently, as he put it, slithered over the edge into war. In the 1960s, however, debate grew once again. This is the famous Fisher debate. Renewed debate exploded in 1961 in particular when German historian Fritz Fischer published a book which in German uh, was entitled Grab for World Power. It had the weaker title in its English translation of Germany's aims in the First World War. Um, Fischer's book argued that Germany had launched the war to become a superpower and developed war aims which in many cases anticipated those of the Nazis in the Second World War. Furious confrontations followed, but in the process of the debate itself, positions changed. Even Fischer's harshest critics came to argue that while Germany had played a very important role in starting the war, it had miscalculated rather than intending a world war. Fischer's positions became more extreme with time. In a later book, he argued that Germany had planned the war years previously from 1912. Other explanations also were advanced by historians in the furious debates about the causes of the war. Did alliances themselves cause the war? Indeed, after the First World War itself, secret diplomacy was sometimes denounced as a crucial factor. Well, a diplomat like Bismarck had tended to believe, by contrast, that alliances and webs of networks and relationships made war less likely. Did arms races and military planning and all of its detail and inflexibility cause the war by forcing war by timetable? The diplomat and diplomatic historian Henry Kissinger has argued that alliances and mobilization plans created what amounted to a doomsday machine that moved Europe towards war. Was the war then an accident, as the provocative British historian A.J.P. Taylor argued? He proposed that Politicians had been turned into the prisoners of their own weapons. Was this really the case? Was perhaps imperialism the cause? The scramble for colonies, the frictions that had grown over imperial competition. Well, while clearly colonial competition had certainly poisoned the atmosphere between the great powers, Germany and Austria-Hungary had been less prominent in such colonial competition, and earlier colonial clashes had indeed been negotiated peacefully. Was perhaps capitalism the cause, as Marxists and Marxist historians argued? On the contrary, the war would take an incredible economic toll, as we'll see in later lectures, and Germany's own industrial dominance had grown in peacetime, only to be frustrated in Europe as a whole by the ravages of the war. Finally, there's a kind of explanation that gets advanced, which is not really a scholarly theory, but I think nonetheless needs to be put out on the table. Some people feel that there's something about the Balkans themselves, the Balkanized, the word even is entered in the English language, the fragmented or Balkanized nationalist passions of the region that somehow made it a powder keg that blew up. Uh, this sort of not quite scholarly explanation uh, was hinted at also during the 1990s as Balkan wars raged there, in part as an excuse for not intervening. There was something about the Balkans, some suggested, that made those people kill one another and hate one another. Well, I think that this explanation needs to be looked at quite critically, because in fact, it wasn't only the Balkans themselves and the national, nationalist passions that reigned there, but indeed the outside involvement of great powers that was a crucial variable in bringing the, uh, the explosive situation to its flashpoint. 
where do interpretations of the causes of the war stand today? Most scholars today do see Germany as bearing the main responsibility for the war. Germany was willing to risk a general war, though perhaps not aiming for it. Even as Germany is seen as mainly responsible, some degree of responsibility is seen by many historians as shared by other actors in this tragedy, at least in the sense of not having tried hard enough to prevent a general war. Historians are currently focusing renewed attention on the role of Austria-Hungary as the beginning, the flashpoint of this conflict, as Austria-Hungary, in part as they saw it, to defend their own survival, initiated the process itself to cause a regional war, not desiring a general war as erupted, but a localized conflict that they felt would ensure the continued survival of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In terms of the Fischer debate, many of Fischer's arguments about war aims and the extensive nature of German war aims have been accepted, but some of his more far-going claims about German intentions or premeditation have not been accepted. I think it's safe to say that the debate continues today and will continue into the future as well. But we might usefully add into our consideration of the causes of the war one more psychological element shared by many European politicians at this time, which is hard to quantify, hard to capture exactly, but which nonetheless must have played a role. A shared sense of fatalism played an important role in the unfolding of these events. In addition to a misunderstanding of the true nature of modern war, Europe's political leaders, in some sense, by believing that a war was inevitable, helped to make that war inevitable if it had not already been so. The conviction that Europe was moving inevitably towards a great clash, a great general war, had something in the nature of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I'd like to give one particular example of this that was tremendously evocative. The compulsion on the part of some politicians, some intellectuals, to think the unthinkable and to view the war, a coming war, as inevitable and perhaps even in some sense desirable, at least to clear the air and to finally break the great tension, was expressed by a famous German saying that was much current at the time. And that saying went, in translation, better a terrible end than endless terror. Better a terrible end than endless terror. The argument was, in essence, that if the conflict was inevitable, better that it should come now and finally break the tension that had been building over previous years. Later, this saying, better a terrible end than endless terror, would take on a dreadful significance because contemporaries were about to discover that it wasn't an either-or proposition. In fact, in terms of the First World, War, First World War, one could very well have both. We'll examine next the intensity of illusions and misapprehensions and failed plans with which this terrible war would begin in our next lecture. Lecture 5, The August Madness. In this lecture, we'll be turning away from the sort of high politics and diplomatic maneuverings that we've discussed in our earlier lecture on the outbreak of the war 
and turn instead to the intriguing realm of mass psychology. We'll be examining the mysteries of a truly strange event to our present-day sensibilities, the mysteries of the so-called August Madness, that hysterical celebration in August of 1914 of the news of the outbreak of war in European capitals, as crowds paraded in the streets and the squares with songs and flags, while young men rushed to the volunteering stations to sign up for a role in the conflict. Today, historians have started to question how widespread this emotional outburst really was and what it all meant. In this lecture, we'll analyze some of this new research and assess the real variety of reactions to the start of the war, including the avowal of domestic truces, which were supposed to summon up a sense of national unity, which, as it turned out, would soon be breaking down, as well as other psychological reactions to the news of war, paranoid waves of spy manias, seeing conspiracies everywhere, and the growth of anxieties about what was to come. Historians speak of the myth of the August Madness, and it would be profitable here to stop and think about how we use the word myth. We don't mean merely the event itself of the August Madness, those celebrations, but also how it was mythologized, how it was dramatized and played up and used in propaganda for years afterwards. When historians talk about myth, they thus mean not outright falsification or lies, though it certainly can be that as well, but rather by myth they mean powerfully shared conceptions that command belief in a society and can motivate people in one direction or another. And so in this lecture, we'll be talking about real events that happened, which were then depicted in certain ways or mythologized in certain ways, the events of late July and August of 1914, and were repeatedly invoked again and again throughout the war when it became necessary to get energized again in the fighting countries for the conflict. And these mythologized experiences also played a very important role after the war in trying to understand what it all had meant. The scenes themselves were compelling. Crowds gathered in the last days of July as the diplomatic maneuverings and diplomatic news filtered in. They gathered around newspaper offices, telegraph posts, in order to share in the sense of these world historical events in the making. In August of 1914, as the declarations of war rolled in, tremendous and compelling and to our sensibility strange scenes played themselves out. While we might today more soberly consider war a disaster, a, uh, an event not to be met with uh, anything but grim foreboding, at this time, in August of 1914, the scenes were very different jubilant excitement played out in the capitals of Europe. In the boulevards of Paris, crowds gathered and cheered and marched, as they did in the squares of London, Vienna, and St. Petersburg. In Berlin, in particular, along the main boulevard through the center of the capital, the famous street Unter den Linden, crowds marched up and down on both sides, singing and moving between the royal castle at the center of the city and the parliament off to the side in a patriotic celebration. In all of these European capitals, crowds cheered, waved their national flags, sang patriotic songs and national anthems. 
contemporaries who participated in these events were, they later explained, celebrating a feeling of social unity. The sense that whatever might have divided them earlier, whatever internal differences might have racked the politics and the social divisions of a country, were now in an instant swept away, swept away as part of a larger cause and a larger mobilization. German sociologists uh, had earlier tried to understand how society was to be conceived of, how social organization was to be understood. And some of the terms that German sociologists had come up with now were uh, deployed to analyze these exalted feelings. In sociological terms, society, what the German sociologists called Gesellschaft, had been something artificial, something founded on a social contract and, and utility. Supposedly, this society, or Gesellschaft, had now turned into something finer, something more authentic, more real, true community, or Gemeinschaft, based not on how I might be of use to you and vice versa, but rather on true solidarity, a true feeling of unity. Many nationalist hopes of achieving a true inner unity of the nation earlier frustrated by social or regional or religious divisions, now were invested in using the opportunity of this emotion of the August Madness to cement their nationalist cohesion. Beyond this, um, contemporaries also pointed out that in part this hysterical reaction was not only a positive emotion and a feeling of unity, it was also something a little bit more elemental. Uh, the sense of hysterical relief that at last followed upon the breaking of the growing feverish anxiety that had been building for days, weeks, months, maybe even years previous. At the same time, uh, for some individuals, war could be felt as a redemption from the boredom or the quotidian nature of ordinary life or of a society that was not coming up to expectations. A famous British war poet, Rupert Brooke, who later would be killed in the war, uh, summed up some of these thoughts in famous poems, which greeted the war as a moment where God had intervened in order to bring a young generation to a moment of a high calling. And such expectations of heroism, of breaking through ordinary life to horizons of glory and of uh, drama certainly played a role for many. At the same time, and here we speak obviously of mass psychology and its mysteries, some individuals might simply be caught up in the mood of excitement without thinking through what it was that they were hurtling towards collectively. Now, the mythologization of these events would certainly play a very important role in years to come. These events, real as they had been, we have newsreels and photographs and contemporary testimony uh, to, uh, uh, to illustrate this, the memory of these events would later be politically instrumentalized in many different ways, by many different political orientations in many different countries. And nonetheless, a common touchstone was what some called the spirit of 1914, this exalted emotion with which the war had been greeted. One of the main themes of our course uh, that we pursue is the notion of the First World War as a series of shocks of the new, a series of shocks of one novelty succeeding upon another, 
And this would be a good moment to mention that the sort of mass emotion and mass uh, mobilization that the crowds represented in the August Madness really added a new and dynamic element that many traditional politicians were quite concerned about and not quite sure what to do with. The sort of mass enthusiasm, which later would become so very important in sustaining total war, was here presented as a new and dynamic element for the first time. Now, historians have, in more recent research, started to look more closely at the evidence that we have of the August Madness and its true dimensions. And recent historical research has strongly qualified um, over large generalizations about the August Madness itself. Um, one might say that historians here are performing a, a role they often play of being spoil sports, of deconstructing myths and legends. Uh, but in this case, it's important to point out that the enthusiasm, contrary to what the mythological images would later be, that the enthusiasm, though strong, was not universal. And it gripped certain elements of society more than others. How did this, uh, how does more recent research suggest these events and the enthusiasm broke down? Well, historians have been careful to point out that enthusiasm was strongest in particular segments of society. Strongest among the middle class, strongest among the elites that identified themselves with the government, especially strong among students, university students, and especially strong also compared to the rest of the country in urban centers, where obviously one could gather such massive crowds to participate in an event like the August Madness. By contrast, historians point out, in rural areas or in frontier regions, which would be the first to be hit probably in a territorial conflict, there were certainly more sober reactions and much more in the nature of a quieter, a more silent, worried anticipation about what the war might bring. Uh, one might also add that uh, some of the scurrying about and uh, frenzied energy of the August Madness was not merely preparing for war itself with enthusiasm, but was also an expression of other anxieties. Um, while some crowds celebrated the outbreak of the war with national songs, other crowds rushed to the banks to withdraw their savings. And yet other crowds rushed to the stores to stock up on staple goods before the inevitable rise in prices in a time of war. Uh, another qualification is that from the evidence that we have, it seems that men, especially young men, especially university students, were more strongly affected by this enthusiasm than women. There was also at the same time, this needs to be very carefully noted, considerable public opposition to the outbreak of war. So contrary to the exalted myth of the spirit of 1914 gripping an entire society or entire societies and unifying them, in fact, the reaction was not monolithic. In many cases, socialists were prominent among those who spoke up against what they denounced as a war of capitalist exploitation in which the workers inevitably would be among those hardest hit. And at the same time as crowds were gathering for nationalist celebrations in Berlin, for instance, socialists were mustering their followers in Berlin as well to march for peace. In fact, and this is often forgotten in the uh, exalted mythology of the August Madness, uh, in fact, in the center of Berlin, 
on that same beautiful boulevard, Unter den Linden, as nationalist crowds sang national anthems, uh, they were joined by socialist crowds of protesters who sang socialist songs. And uh, contemporaries spoke indeed of a war of the songs that took place on this boulevard in Berlin as contending crowds uh, were matched one against the other. Another qualification that needs to be registered is that ethnic minorities in the multinational empires, especially of Austro-Hungary uh, Hungary and of Russia, lacked this sort of enthusiasm. Uh, they felt alienated from the uh, mobilization, in many cases, uh, for war for the imperial cause. In a book uh, that is one of the great comic classics of world literature, unfortunately not as widely known in English as it should be, uh, Yaroslav Hasek's book, The Good Soldier Schweik, um, a the figure of the good soldier Schweik uh, is um, the uh, is by his very passivity and following of orders um, a constant reproach to the attempt to mobilize the masses. He himself is a Czech soldier uh, in the comic classic. Uh, he himself lampoons the August madness taking place around him by having himself wheeled around in a wheelchair while shouting, long live the emperor and long live the Austro-Hungarian empire, uh, making a farce of the entire venture. Among the historians who have done yeoman work in really getting us a closer view of what the August madness meant uh, is the historian Jeffrey Furhey, who in really a masterful work of detective investigation uh, has reconstructed the events in Berlin themselves. Uh, and he provides us with one very important fact that puts into perspective how we need to be cautious in our generalizations about the August Madness. He notes that perhaps less than 1% of Berlin participated in those fabled first mass gatherings of the August Madness. So clearly one needs to speak here of a range of reactions in answer to the outbreak of the war. But we're left with this. After all of those qualifications, this remarkable mass outburst, and especially how it was used later, were real and need further investigation. We might further talk about the larger phenomenon of which the August Madness was but the tip of the iceberg, the spontaneous mobilization of Europeans for war. Many intellectuals and artists of many different countries have left testimonies to how they too were caught up in the initial enthusiasm. And they're especially compelling in cases where people later turned against the war but are honest enough to talk about the emotions they felt at the start. These figures included the psychologist Sigmund Freud in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the great German historian Friedrich Meinecke, and the British poet Rupert Brooke, whom I'd mentioned some moments ago. The Austrian writer Stefan Zweig, though passionately anti-war, still recalled these first hours of war as something rapturous, something special and out of the ordinary. A key aspect, perhaps the key aspect, in this spontaneous mobilization of populations for the cause of war was one key essential fact. All of the warring powers claimed that they were going to war and acting in self-defense. And this deserves to be underlined. One of the main themes of our course is the different meanings that were assigned to the war. And here, quite simply, was a universal meaning in 1914 assigned to what it was all about. The World War was about self-defense. Let's look a little more closely at some of the social reactions which typified the response to the start of the war. A key notion of the August Madness was that it symbolized the greater reality of society's 
experiencing a perfected unity. And this is a concept often summed up in the notion of an inner truce. In all of the combatant countries, domestic truces or inner truces were ceremoniously declared. All parties were supposed to pledge to put aside their internal conflicts, their ideological uh, quarrels at a time of emergency when all had to rally to the national or imperial cause. These domestic truces were very important in setting the tone at the start of the war, but they were not to last. In France, which had had a famously fragmented politics, the Republic now declared a union sacrée, a sacred union in which all Frenchmen were to rally to the defense of the patrie, the fatherland, and to expunge the humiliation of defeat against Germany back in the 1870s and to regain the lost provinces of Alsace-Lorraine. In Russia as well, imperial unity was invoked, and even some disaffected minorities felt themselves nonetheless uh, able to participate uh, in this domestic truce in the hope of gaining greater autonomy and greater cultural rights after a victorious conclusion of the war. In Germany, this inner truce was called the Burgfrieden, the Burgfrieden. And the term, which has almost sort of a medieval resonance, quite deliberately tried to conjure up images of the unanimity or the peace of a besieged castle. Burgfrieden quite literally means the peace within a castle. The implication is one which is facing enemies on the outside. Kaiser Wilhelm II was himself overwhelmed by the August madness. Um, in fact, and it's a real remarkable testimony to the, uh, uh, the novelty of the August madness and, and the self-mobilization of the crowds, German politicians had been worried about how the news of war might be met. And some of them advised the Kaiser to actually make himself scarce in the first hours uh, of the declaration of war in case sentiment turned against it. On the contrary, vast crowds came to the royal palace and demanded to see their emperor. Kaiser Wilhelm II famously stepped out in front of these crowds and announced that he no longer saw Germans of different parties or different religions, but saw only Germans, only Germans, all united in their national identity, all needing to treat one another from now on as brothers and as fellow fighters in the common cause. Swept up in the emotions of this event, another truly remarkable uh, circumstance played out. In the German parliament, the Reichstag, it was necessary to vote for war credits to fund the war. The German Social Democratic Party, caught up in this enthusiasm, voted for the war. It authorized credits and revealed its own German nationalism in this moment. This came as a real surprise to German political leaders. There had actually been plans for fanning out and arresting the leaders of the Social Democrats if they protested actively against the war as they were expected to do. So their participation in this nationalist mobilization came as something of a surprise as well. Also caught up in the exalted mood of those days and weeks were groups within German society which had not fully been allowed to participate in German nationalism. German Jews, as a minority who represented about 1% of the population, participated in a very patriotic sense in this mood of nationalism, even though they still continued to face social discrimination 
and anti-Semitism. As it would turn out, Germany would be very much in need of this inner truce in the years to come, as the British naval blockade would start to bite and grind down Germany's economy, and painful sacrifices would be required in the months and years ahead. Another reaction, psychologically, to the outbreak of the war was not a sense of inner truce and inner unanimity, but inner paranoia. Uh, A fevered and frenzied examination of one's own society for elements that were considered subversive or burrowing uh, uh, into the unity that had been established. Wartime societies showed a strong paranoia in these hours of crisis and feared disruptive forces within. Now, I just want to hint for some of our coming lectures that this um, first instance of paranoia and anxiety about traitorous elements within was the first worrying omen or portent of the singling out of minorities in later years as to blame for defeat or for reverses on the battlefield. In these first days and weeks and months of the war, one could see in all of the combatant countries really absurd epidemics of spy chases, uh, a mania for denunciations which set in. In Germany, there was even a word for this. It was called spionitis, meaning sort of a suffering from spy paranoia, uh, as there were absurd cases uh, even of German officers being suspected of being spies and arrested uh, by local police. Um, there was also uh, an attempt, less dramatically, um, to not only find putative spies within one's midst, but also to eliminate what were seen as disruptive cultural influences from the outside. Chauvinist enthusiasts uh, in many countries demanded a cleansing of the national language from enemy influence. In Germany in particular, French words were to be eliminated from the language, even if that meant needing to produce clunky German equivalents. Uh, But this was a trend to be seen in other countries as well. In Russia, for instance, the German-sounding name of the imperial capital, St. Petersburg, was renamed Petrograd, or Peter Town, or Peter City. Uh, Britain was not immune either. The British royal family had to change its name from its originally very German name, the House of Saxe Coburg Gotha, and now assuming instead the much more British-sounding name of the family of Windsor. Signs on shops especially if they bore foreign names of enemy nationality, became targets throughout Europe in a spontaneous uh, uh, mass mobilization against these symbols of outside influence. We come here to a really crucial uh, theme, that of the spontaneous self-mobilization and enthusiasm for the war. Um, It really is a truism of research and propaganda. It's it's self-evident, in fact, but still a valuable insight to keep in mind that propaganda, even when it's directed from above, is most effective when it builds on things that people already believe. In this case, we might speak of the August Madness as a kind of self-propaganda of entire populations. An enormous and spontaneous wave of testimonials, which ordinary people give, at first without governmental urging, as to the justice of their own nation's cause and their support for it. We come back to this key insight that the universal claim of going to war in righteous self-defense would be an effective rallying cry at the start of the war. And the outpouring, the spontaneous outpouring of support for one's own national cause 
actually surprised the different governments that had entered the war. Uh, the magnitude of this was truly remarkable. Uh, just to mention one fact, which, which never ceases to amaze and appall me, in the first months of the war, more than a million war poems are counted uh, as having been published by German newspapers. Um, more than a million war poems, not ordered by the government, but spontaneously flowing from the pens of ordinary citizens, many of them of just truly astonishingly horrible quality, but testifying nonetheless to the enthusiasm and self-mobilization of a society. The governments, at first surprised by this course of events, would later learn in much more manipulative and scientific ways to harness this enthusiastic impulse in systematic fashion. This self-mobilizing impulse would prove crucial over the next years in sustaining the morale and determination of societies suffering under the strain and stress of total war. In the context of this self-mobilization, the churches and organized religion played a very ambivalent role in this enthusiasm. And one can understand the quandaries that the churches faced. The quandary of the Catholic Church, for instance, was obvious as an international institution with French Catholics and German Catholics and Polish Catholics fighting in the different armies, just for instance, of the combatant powers, how is the church to speak clearly uh, of the necessity of peace uh, and of neutrality? In the Protestant churches, the problem was a little different. The Protestant churches were much more nationally identified with the particular countries in which they were based, but how could they give their endorsement uh, as representatives of a religion uh, proclaiming peace and humanity uh, instead to the force of arms. In this case as well, the notion of a war of defense would provide the rhetorical opportunity for the churches to share in the mobilization and the enthusiasm. I want to talk before concluding uh, with uh, the record of the mobilization that we've been discussing by mentioning a key case that came as a great surprise, but nonetheless was of tremendous historical significance for the course of the war later, as well as 20th century history. And that was the unexpected, in many cases, surprising failure of international socialism to react to the war in a fashion similar to what it had threatened it would. Contrary to the expectations of many political observers, and contrary, in fact, to its own promises about what it would do, the international socialist movement uh, in the European countries in particular, which had earlier pledged to shut down capitalist wars, not to participate in this sort of conflict, but instead to emphasize internationalist unity, all of these promises broke down with the outbreak of war. And instead, the socialist movement found itself unable to react in a unified way. Now, this ran completely contrary to earlier vows. In the 1907 Stuttgart conference, the Socialist International, that's to say the gathering of all of the different socialist parties uh, of the world, had gathered and there had resolved in a solemn way that if the sort of capitalist war that many felt was uh, some ways in the future, if it actually broke out, it would be stopped. It would be stopped by concerted and unified action by socialists everywhere. 
And how this was to be done was left a little bit vague, but one suggestion, which certainly worried conservative authorities, was that this might be done through the means of a general strike. That's to say, all workers simply laying down their tools and stopping their machines and not participating, simply abstaining from the preparations for war. Now, in practice, these sort of earlier pronouncements simply went by the board. In the initial enthusiasm for war in August of 1914, very many socialists, not all, but very many, discovered that their patriotism, their identification with their own nations, in fact, trumped many of the earlier ideological avowals. One might think of it in this way. French socialists discovered that they were French. German socialists discovered that, though they still prized their socialist ideas, they were Germans as well. The national identity, in some sense, had been rooted far more deeply than many had been aware of earlier. Not all socialists felt this way. And we want to focus on one particularly important and fateful example of a socialist who reacted differently. Surprised by the outbreak of the war, a Russian revolutionary belonging to a faction of radical socialists called the Bolsheviks, and we'll talk more about in later lectures, by the name of Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, but better known by his revolutionary pseudonym of Vladimir Lenin, who was living in exile in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was simply disgusted by what he saw as the total failure of the socialists to live up to their own ideas. Uh, ironically, in the first opening stages of the war, he was actually arrested by the authorities of the Austro-Hungarian Empire as a suspected spy for the Russians. Nothing could have been further from the truth. He actually wanted to overthrow the empire. Lenin was able to leave for neutral Switzerland, and there he crafted a program for revolutionary action. He saw the war as nothing less than the final crisis of capitalism and very unsentimentally preached a revolutionary message that the war should be turned into a worldwide civil war of the working classes against the capitalists. Nonetheless, at this point, uh, in spite of Lenin's lone voice in the wilderness, Europe was mobilizing. The great powers mobilized, volunteering stations were crowded, jammed with young men who were sure that they would be home by Christmas, and whose great fear was that they might miss out on the drama of the war itself. Twenty million men were mobilized throughout Europe, and they hurtled forward into the great battles that we'll consider in our next lecture. Lecture 6, The Failed Gambles, War Plans Break Down. In this lecture, we'll be examining how the extensive war plans of the fighting powers broke down in practice. One of the major themes that we're weaving through our course is that of a succession of shocks of the new, and in some sense, in this lecture, we're covering a tremendously important shock, and that was the failure of the gambles and the war plans with which the war had begun. One might say that the opening stages of the war were marked on all sides by surprises, shocks, and the collapse of established war plans. This lecture aims to follow the logic of the plans of the great powers, especially the key one, the German Schlieffen Plan, a bold blueprint for victory on two fronts, 
but with disastrous political implications diplomatically because of the uh, violation of neutrality of Belgium, as well as the proud French Plan 17, which aimed to seize the initiative against Germany and win a redemption of lost French territories, Alsace and Lorraine, which had been taken from France after the Franco-Prussian War in the 1870s. Next, we'll observe how these plans collapsed in practice and how they were replaced by a desperate improvised defense of France, the miracle of the Marne River. We'll examine the atrocities that accompanied the German invasion of Belgium and northern France. We'll examine the improvised race to the sea and an unexpected German victory in Eastern Europe at the Titanic Battle of Tannenberg. All surprises. First, let's consider the plans in abstract. The opening stages of the war were marked by tremendous violence, a a, a tremendous clash of those many mobilized armies, which produced surprises and unexpected reverses, which left commanders baffled and scrapped earlier war plans. Six million men were rushed into the initial collisions of the war, trying to enact the plans that had been produced in the abstract. And this is called the Battle of the Frontiers. The Battle of the Frontiers raged from August 14th to September 6th of 1914, and it represented ultimately the failure of prepared plans. Some historians consider this the biggest battle in history involving as many soldiers as it did. German forces were directed by Helmut von Moltke the Younger. French forces were commanded by General Joseph Joff, and the British expeditionary force was under Sir John French. We need to consider, first of all, the German Schlieffen plan as it was developed in the abstract and as it was put into action. The plan was developed long before the war itself as part of this extensive military planning uh, precision of preparations that we've already discussed in an earlier lecture. The man who had crafted it was the German general chief of staff, General Alfred von Schlieffen. He was chief of staff from 1891 to 1905, and excelled at precisely this sort of careful preparation and thinking in abstract terms about the military challenge which Germany's geopolitical position uh, represented. In a word, Germany's geopolitical challenge was the possibility of war on two fronts simultaneously. At the center of Europe, it might find itself forced to fight against both France in the west and Russia in the east. Schlieffen's plan was a sweeping, bold conception for how to win victory in a two-front war. And that was essentially by first very quickly destroying France, speed would be of the essence, and then turning on the Russian great power, which it was expected would be slower to mobilize and more ponderous in its preparations for war. The Schlieffen plan was very much a product of the sort of militarism that we've described in an earlier lecture, in that it tended to disregard the political implications of what was regarded by Schlieffen essentially as a technical solution to a military problem. In a word, it called for the violation of Belgian and Dutch neutrality, invading through both of those countries, to achieve surprise in a a vast attack on France. A huge German force would come swinging through northern France after invading Belgium and Holland, arcing around Paris in order to achieve decisive victory by timetable in about six weeks. It was hoped that Paris itself would be surrounded, French armies would be surrounded, the French leadership would be surrounded, and this would represent 
a military masterpiece, a battle of annihilation. The Schlieven plant's emphasis, thus, was on a huge concentration of force on the right wing. That German movement, which would come plunging through uh, Belgium and Holland and through northern France. After von Schlieffen died, uh, this plan was further worked on and altered, as military plans are, by von Moltke, a successor. Von Moltke changed certain aspects of the plan. He didn't solve the political problem of violating neutrality, but lessened it by declining to invade Holland. Then he also took troops from the vast movement that was projected for uh, the invasion of northern France and instead drew off some of those troops to the eastern front and others for the defense of the territory of Lorraine to the south. Now, debate continues today concerning a key question, whether the plan was even, in fact, possible, whether it could have been brought off in its original form or in the altered form that Moltke later devised. Military historians point out that the German troops were having tremendous demands made of them. In practice, as they marched the predetermined uh, stretch of territory per day, they would outdistance their own slower-moving supplies and artillery, and the demands included marching 20 to 30 miles a day and fighting through encountered resistance, which some military historians see as completely unrealistic to begin with. Uh, You'll note that I had mentioned that Schlieffen, the original architect of this plan, had actually died before the First World War, the year previous, in 1913. Uh, Nonetheless, his plan, though with alterations, uh, was the one that was put into action. And it's sometimes said that, in this sense, a dead man had his finger on the trigger as the Schlieffen plan was enacted. We need to speak at the same time of a plan that would be ticking down at precisely the same time as the Schlieffen plan was put into action, and that was the opposite plan, the French Plan 17. The French plan, endorsed by the commander Joff, called for an all-out attack. The cult of the offensive would come into its own here, an all-out attack into Germany to regain the lost territories of Alsace-Lorraine with their French speakers, avenging the humiliating defeat of 1871 and redeeming uh, this uh, French honor. Stressing the cult of the offensive, the French Plan 17 actually tended to underestimate German reserves that could be deployed in the defense of these territories, and in a very real sense actually played into the expectations of the Schlieffen Plan. By attacking to the south, it would uh, ensure, German planners hoped, that their sweeping movement would capture even more French troops. In practice, however, as we'll see shortly, both plans broke down into disaster. The French plan, which was launched on August 14th, broke against German defenses, Lorraine, and suffered enormous losses of the very best officers and men as they sought to put into action the cult of the offensive with disastrous consequences. The fate of the Schlieffen plan uh, looked to be proceeding a little bit more positively at first. It seemed to be succeeding, but then broke down in what afterwards was called the miracle of the Marne by French patriots, a truly uh, remarkable moment of salvation and national mobilization to expel the German invader. On August 4th, German troops invaded Belgium. 
They moved through Belgium, though encountering more resistance than they had expected, and then plunged into France. By early September 1914, they had reached the Marne River, some 20 miles from Paris, and it's said that German advance troops could see the Eiffel Tower off in the distance. The German advance, however, had been slowed. The Schlieffen Plan, running behind schedule at crucial moments, the German advance had been hampered by fiercer Belgian resistance that had been taken into account, as well as the destruction of railroads and other strategic assets by the Belgians or the French, and also slowed by German anxieties about the fear of snipers. And this was not in not entirely without some reason, in the sense that the anxiety about snipers or guerrilla warfare looked back to an earlier encounter, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 to 1871. That war had devolved into a guerrilla conflict at times in its later stages, uh, which indeed had seen snipers uh, picking off German soldiers. And this anxiety would not only slow the German advance, making them more careful, but would also lead to atrocities that we'll be discussing uh, in later in this lecture against the civilian population. Nonetheless, there were remarkable and celebrated successes uh, that gave a sense of optimism about the uh, enacting of the Schlieffen Plan. On August 7th, the main citadel of Liège in Belgium, a key strategic point that was supposed to hold up the German advance, um, was captured. It was captured by a younger officer who pulled up in his car and demanded its surrender, which he received. That younger officer was named Erich Ludendorff, and he later would play a very important role in the German war effort uh, that we'll be discussing in our later lectures. Other German heavy guns were brought up to demolish other forts, and soon this resistance was quelled. Now, this represented, it seemed to some, the triumph of military technology over old-style fortifications, a success, it seemed, for the cult of the offensive. As German armies approached Paris, the French government packed up and fled to Bordeaux. Nonetheless, Paris was to be defended, and indeed the bridges of Paris were mined in preparation for blowing them up in case the German troops actually reached the capital. At the same time, a an, another factor came into play which had not been expected to come into play quite as soon. Contrary to German expectations, the British Expeditionary Force, as it was called, the BEF, mobilized quickly and was thrown into battle in northern France. The British forces moved forward and reached Mont. However, upon discovering that they were overextended and in peril of being simply overwhelmed by the German advance, both British and French forces moved back in a fast retreat, seeking a place to make a concerted stand. In the process of the German advance, as the Schlieffen Plan continued to uh, move through the stages of its prospective sections, it was discovered that a gap opened up between the advancing German armies, between the first army under General von Kluck and the second army under General von Bülow. This came to be a concern, and the result was that the German armies moved closer together. The German armies, uh, in an alteration of the plan, thus did not come around Paris to encircle it, but instead began their inward turn that had been projected for the Schlieffen plan further east. 
And the result strategically was that the German armies had left their flanks exposed to Paris itself, not expecting that Paris would be the site of uh, considerable resistance or military peril. This was the opportunity which the Allies had been waiting for. French and British forces counterattacked on the Marne River from September 6th to the 10th of 1914. They were aided in this by a heroic and legendary effort, which was celebrated ever afterwards uh, as hundreds of taxicabs, 600 of them to be precise, brought troops that had been stationed in Paris from Paris itself all the way out to the battlefield, shuttling these men uh, back and forth uh, in, to get them to the places where they needed to be for the counterattack. Now, clearly the taxicabs and their forces were not uh, the sole decisive element here, but it certainly gave a sense of the heroism uh, that was involved in this mobilization to expel the invader. Following an order from Colonel Hench, German forces fell back to the Enne River and began to dig in. This was a crucial moment. It was an admission that the Schlieffen plan had not ultimately succeeded. It was also the beginning of trench warfare. Though these were shallow trenches, ditches essentially dug into the ground only several feet, they had very important implications for the conduct of war. The German forces here could establish themselves and hold off the attackers, the Allied side, and the war of the trenches now meant that shovel had become a crucial weapon in this conflict. We need now to consider some of the outcomes that this first failure of the military plans had represented, uh, in addition, of course, to the massive losses that they implied. The Schlieffen plan had failed. Germany now would face the very geopolitical nightmare that the Schlieffen plan had been intended to deal with, the reality, the challenge of fighting war on many fronts. As a result of this failure, on September 14, 1914, Moltke was replaced by the Minister of War, General Erich von Falkenhayn, as a chief of German general staff. Falkenhayn would now face the challenge of improvising a solution for a war that had begun in ways that were not anticipated. From October to November of 1914, this next stage was called the Race to the Sea, and it conjures up images of the Germans as well as the French and the British uh, plunging northwards now in order to reach the British Channel uh, to secure strategic positions. But this name, the Race to the Sea, which is stuck, nonetheless is actually something of a misnomer, because it wasn't so much a race to the sea as a succession of attempts to turn the flank of the other side, until ultimately, without a decision, the front simply reached the English Channel and the North Sea. Now, Antwerp, an important port, had fallen on October 11th. As part of this race to the sea, the first battle of Ypres, which British soldiers gleefully mispronouncing uh, the name of the place called Wipers for the rest of the war, uh, took place on October 18th to November 22nd, British forces repelled German attacks and dug in as well. At the Easter River, Belgians used natural forces in order to hold off the Germans. They simply opened the sluices to the canals and flooded the battlefield, producing a nearly impenetrable barrier. Failed French winter offensives in the Champagne region followed, but ultimately were not able to break through the growing stasis of trench warfare. 
we need to take a step backwards to examine a phenomenon that was playing itself out at the same time as the German invasion of Belgium and northern France, one that would have enormous significance in terms of political terms, in terms of uh, international public opinion, uh, and the like. And this was the uh, vexed and debated question of German atrocities in this invasion of 1914. The German advance through Belgium and northern France, as we now know because of careful historical research, was in fact marked by atrocities which were disastrous for German standing in international world opinion. German forces, as they moved forward into unknown territory, were on occasion panicked by the prospect of feared civilian resistance and suspected snipers. But there was something else at work as well. The German military often saw tactics that we today would call terror as a useful way of quelling even potential civilian resistance, which its own philosophy of war saw as fundamentally illegitimate and illegal. War should be left to professionals rather than a mobilized nation at arms uh, uh, with civilian resistance uh, was the opinion of the German military professionals. Nonetheless, confusion and chaos, what uh, was often called the fog of war, also played a role as confused incidents could lead to atrocities. Examples of this uh, could be um, as follows. Uh, German troops moving into an enemy village or a city uh, might actually encounter friendly fire uh, as uh, fellow troops mistook them for enemy forces. And the result could very well be that this would be mistaken for sniper fire. Uh, the Germans uh, on occasion uh, would find that uh, shots were coming from somewhere. It wasn't clear from where. And the cry would go up from the German troops shouting in German, Man hat geschossen. Um, it's a very interesting passive construction. It, it, one has shot at us. And what was uh, clear from the statement was that it wasn't entirely clear to the soldiers themselves who was doing the shooting. But increasingly, it was suspected that civilian resistors, people not in uniform, fighting in guerrilla fashion, uh, were the ones doing the shooting. Uh, the chaos could further be increased and made lethal uh, by uh, the presence of alcohol on the battlefield. As troops moved forward, human nature being what it was, on occasion alcohol would be looted, and the result would be that drunken troops might be even more prone to such misunderstandings or miscalculations. Recent research, which painstakingly has tried to exactly reconstruct what happened where in these first stages of the invasion of Belgium and France, has shown that German troops, in fact, killed over 6,000 civilians in Belgium as well as northern France, taking them to be suspected guerrilla fighters or in the form of reprisals against resistance. And this number of victims, of civilian victims, included men, women, and children. Another very famous and indeed notorious instance of these atrocities took place in the Belgian university city of Louvain, often considered the Oxford of Belgium. In this university city of Louvain, um, shots broke out and German troops responded uh, with reprisals. The library, the famous library of Louvain, as well as much of the city, were burned on August 25th to the 28th, 1914, and hundreds of civilians were killed in the process. In another instance of the damage of cultural 
property, cultural monuments that would later be uh, trumpeted as an example of German barbarism, the cathedral at Rems was shelled on September 19, 1914. It was instances like this that were deployed to tremendous propaganda effect by the Allies in the initial stages of the war as they argued that the Germans had shown themselves to be barbarians or Huns, as they were often called, the enemies of civilization, as shown by their disregard for culture, for monuments, as well as for civilian life. Rumors proliferated about German barbarism and German atrocities. Um, A a really remarkable case of this uh, are the the many rumors that spread that German troops had systematically, as a a way of showing German beastliness or frightfulness, uh, had actually been cutting off the hands of Belgian children uh, as a way of... um, discouraging resistance. Um, as, it, as it turned out upon closer investigation, there don't seem to be cases of this uh, that actually were recorded. Uh, but nonetheless, the rumor was believed. Another rumor that circulated was that uh, uh, priests or other civilians had been used as clappers of church inside church bells uh, uh, as another instance of atrocities against civilians. Now, oddly enough, as recent historical research shows, um, this dialectic of true instances of atrocities being followed by the proliferation of what seemed to be believable rumors about the enemy's atrocities uh, ultimately produced a strange effect that came into play later in the 20th century. Uh, Later in the war, as disbelief grew in such rumors, uh, the the true atrocities Uh, also were considered more skeptically and, uh, to a great extent, uh, were considered later not to have taken place. Uh, In fact, as recent historical research has shown, uh, they certainly had. Um, In a sort of bitter irony, in the Second World War, when rumors started to filter out about the Nazis' genocidal policies of the Holocaust, uh, these were, on occasion, disbelieved or not taken aboard precisely because they were seen as propaganda of the sort that had been denounced in the First World War in a tragic misunderstanding. While the plans for victory in the West had collapsed for the Germans, they did encounter surprise victories in the East. Ironically, in a turn of events uh, that hadn't been anticipated, victories were won on the Eastern Front after initial disasters by the German armies. Germany's eastern territories had been imperiled at the start of the war because Russian armies moved more quickly than had been expected in order to invade Germany to aid their French ally, to draw off German forces by invading East Prussia, as well as moving against Austria. As part of the Schlieffen plan, East Prussia had been left lightly guarded in a calculated risk in order to shift as many troops as possible over to the Western Front. Uh, This calculation looked like uh, it was about to turn into a disaster because Russian armies occupied German territory. This was the only uh, truly large-scale invasion of German territory during the First World War and would represent a very traumatic experience. German military commanders in East Prussia panicked and prepared for a mass retreat. In order to stiffen the resolve of these forces, two new generals were sent to East Prussia as replacements. One of them was an elderly general by the name of Paul von Hindenburg, the descendant of many generations of East Prussian nobility. And attached to him as his chief of staff 
was the young hotshot officer Eric Ludendorff, who had helped in the capture of the Citadel of Liège. Together with Lieutenant Colonel Max, Max Hoffmann, these generals crafted a vast victory against Russian armies at the Battle of Tannenberg on August 26th to the 30th of 1914, even as the Schlieffen Plan was playing itself out uh, on the Western Front. Hindenburg and Ludendorff were hailed as nothing less than the saviors of East Prussia and of Germany. They had beaten back larger Russian forces and had become German war heroes. Later in the war, as we'll see in the following lecture, they essentially would become the war dictators of Germany, building on the enormous popularity that they had won as a result of this victory of the Battle of Tannenberg. But nonetheless, there were some harsh truths that needed to be confronted. Even the tremendous victory of the Battle of Tannenberg, even the remarkable uh, decisive result that had been won there, even the masses of Russian prisoners of war and of artillery that were captured as a result of this war could not hide certain very harsh and realistic truths. German victory on the Eastern Front, welcome as it was, unplanned as it was, could not hide the failure of the initial plans for the war and the West. Now, Russia, as it turned out, at great cost to its own resources, had made a vast contribution to the French war effort by drawing away troops from the Schlieffen Plan uh, in a sacrifice that was quite deliberate. We need to consider a verdict, then, of what the failure of these war plans ultimately implied. With the failure of the war plans, the war would take on increasingly unfamiliar forms and patterns, ones that had not been planned for. One might say that improvisation would now rule the day. In a larger sense, however, historians are still debating the significance of these failed plans, and in particular, the Schlieffen Plan's failed gamble for achieving an answer to the geopolitical challenge of fighting a war on two fronts. Some historians actually believe that, in a very real sense, by the fall of 1914, Germany and its ally Austria-Hungary had already lost the First World War in a strategic sense. They would now face a long war on many fronts, and increasingly in a battle, uh, rather a total war, a battle of attrition of resources, they were outmatched. In economic terms, the central powers, that's to say Germany and Austria-Hungary, were seriously outmatched by the Allies, by Great Britain, France, and the Russian Empire, in what would now be a drawn-out industrial war. And at the same time, to make matters worse, the British naval blockade that we'll be discussing in more detail later threatened to choke the Central Powers in their embattled economic position. Very clearly, even the welcome victory on the Eastern Front at Tannenberg was a tactical victory that might not alter the overall strategic equation. Ultimately, the unfamiliarity of the forms of war that would now evolve after the failed plans would have devastating results in practice. The learning curve was one that would be counted in vast casualties. We've encountered in the course of this lecture the key question of how expectations with which the great powers had entered the war were ultimately frustrated and were not put into effect. The result that would follow would be the need to improvise or reinvent in a series of shocks of the new, the art of war itself. 
and what this improvisation, this costly improvisation, would look like on the Western Front in particular, we'll be examining in our next lecture. Lecture 7, The Western Front Experience. In this lecture, we'll be examining or beginning our examination of the Western Front. In essence, in this lecture, we'll be exploring what it was that followed after the failure of the plans for the start of the war in the West. The Western Front, contrary to all earlier expectations, was soon frozen into immobile front lines hundreds of miles long that saw static trench warfare rather than glorious charges and war of movement and degenerated into a horrific slaughter resulting from attempts to break this deadlock. We'll outline the reasons for this crucial phenomenon which contemporaries only slowly came to understand and they did so at great price. This key dynamic was the superiority of the defensive position in this war due to questions of military technology that we'll look at more closely in today's lecture. Despite the ways in which recent wars had hinted at this development, commanders in World War I nonetheless showed on occasion appalling incomprehension of the reality that was unfolding before them and at first sought through ever larger frontal attacks to overcome this challenge. In their mental world, the tantalizing prospect of a breakthrough that would finally allow sweeping offensives and glorious cavalry charges was a great prize. But this never came. We will survey the horrific record of these initial attacks as the reality of trench warfare was slowly being assimilated and the psychology behind them, including a particular and very telling instance, the 1914 Battle of Langemark and all that it implied about the war. First, we need to understand how it was that the deadlock was established. It was, or at least should have been, clear that by the winter of 1914 to 1915, deadlock, in a very real sense, had descended onto the Western Front. The Western Front now stretched for some 500 miles all the way from the Swiss border, the Alps, through France to the uh, British, uh, the English Channel, uh, in parallel lines, the British and the French held lines uh, in the West and the German lines to the East. The Western Front experience that unfolded there, though little understood at first, has left a decisive imprint on modern consciousness. It indeed is often almost synonymous with collective memory of the World War, at least in the West. Though the form of this war, with its fortifications, its trenches, its dugouts, was unfamiliar, there were probably instances that should have suggested that this might be a reality that came before. These included the American Civil War from 1861 to 1865, or even the more recent Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905, both of which had already anticipated some of these traits of modern industrial war and the importance of fortifications or the defensive. Attempts to break the deadlock that had descended upon the Western Front, also produced vigorous debate on all sides about where decisive victory could be won, given this deadlocked situation. Uh, curiously enough, both among the Allies, that's to say France, Britain, and Russia, 
And on the other side, uh, on the part of their enemies, the central powers, the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians, there emerged different schools of thought that had the same names, Westerners and Easterners. In both cases, these camps championed very different solutions for where war might be won. The world of the trenches soon took on a reality as a world apart, uh, a surreal, unreal existence was to be found there. The trench landscape was marked by increasingly elaborate earthworks and fortifications. And indeed, those first initial trenches that we talked about from 1914, shallow dugouts, were now replaced by ever more elaborate building. But in the process of this fortification, the role of technology was a fascinating one. The simple product of barbed wire, a very ordinary form of technology that had helped in the the, uh, uh, the cultivation of the American West, here played a very important role in fortifications. Between the barbed wire barriers, between the trenches on either side, between these opposing fortifications lay a very special and strange territory called No Man's Land. No Man's Land, which as the name implied meant that it was owned by no one, belonged to neither side, represented the focus of attacks on either side. It was an area that was pockmarked with shell holes, with the remains of trench fortifications, and ultimately with dead bodies as well. Usually, this territory was about some 275 yards across, but in some places, the trenches of the enemy sides could lie much closer to one another, in other cases, much further apart. Nonetheless, smaller trenches were continually being dug into the no-man's land in a sort of probing action. And their purposes, the purposes of these smaller trenches, were for observation, for communication, for scouting, or even for preparing attacks that would be launched against the opposite side. The trench lines themselves represented a crucial feature of this us-versus-them geography that was omnipresent on the Western Front. The front lines on either side increasingly were dug in zigzag patterns, which had the specific aim of not allowing free fields of fire by enemy troops that might surge into the opposed trenches. They would have to instead more laboriously conquer those fortifications. It also meant that explosions of shells, for instance, would be deadened in their impact rather than simply hurtling down uh, channels uh, uh, that the trenches might represent. The trenches themselves uh, also were, as they were increasingly elaborated and built up, um, provided with wooden boards that covered the bottom of the trench. And this was a necessity, as photographs from the period can make abundantly clear, precisely because in this wet soil, in areas with little drainage, water would gather at the bottom of the trenches, and thus they would represent uh, an unhealthy and very wet environment as well. The wooden boards covering this wetness would allow at least for a little bit of comfort and security. In addition, each trench would have a special so-called fire step, a board that allowed soldiers to stand up higher and to observe or to shoot at the enemy from the comparative safety of their trench. The trench lines were also punctuated by machine gun nests, 
mortar batteries, and, as the lines grew ever more elaborate, concrete pillboxes or bunkers as well. Behind the front line, that's to say the very furthest fortifications, were many other lines that extended to the rear. These were support lines so that in the case of an attack or even of the enemy breaking through the trenches, it would be possible for troops who had been waiting in readiness as reinforcements to be moved up, reserve lines, as well as retreat lines if necessary so that soldiers could surge back to a second line of defenses in order to defend these newer uh, positions of retreat. Now, as one can well imagine, the complexity of these trench layouts was such that maps or guides, people who would serve as as uh, uh, for to direct the movement of troops, were necessary in order to even allow troops to navigate through uh, this confusing geography. Uh, and indeed, many of these trenches could look very alike. Getting lost in them was a perennial reality as well. Behind the lines, as increased fortification uh, took place, bunkers were built up. And these bunkers were intended to house up to a dozen men who thus could be shuttled as necessary to wherever they might be required in the front lines. The bunkers were, it was attempted at least, to reinforce them with concrete or with other fortifications, uh, but the reality was that a direct hit from heavy artillery uh, would, of necessity, endanger even men in such fortifications. Yet further still behind these lines, in yet more placements, were heavy artillery positions. These heavy artillery positions were used to bombard the enemy side and to target the artillery of the other side as well in what amounted to artillery duels taking place over no man's land and over the opposed trenches. Now, it hardly needs saying that soldiers who were stationed in these front lines had an existence that was horrific to contemplate. Soldiers in the front lines were constantly exposed to the weather. The trenches, as we've already mentioned, were often wet and in particular times of year could be flooded. Snow was certainly a reality in the winter. And in spring and fall, mud would make it very difficult to move across the landscape or even one's own trenches. Increasingly, soldiers who were positioned or stationed in the trenches took on the aspect of nearly primitive people in their state of filth as well as disarray. Within the trenches, in this unhealthy environment, one marked by decay and putrefaction, rats and vermin proliferated and added to the horrors of this existence. The existence in the trenches as such was, according to soldiers who survived this experience, marked by vast stretches of boredom, at times punctuated by intense moments of terror and horror, an existence that they often summed up as not being human at all. Further, this environment obviously was tremendously dangerous as well, because gunfire, as well as artillery, traversed the landscape. A crucial role here was played in by a uh, an object, a machine, in fact, uh, that really, I think, is synonymous, is a, a, a terribly eloquent symbol of the industrial nature of this war, and that was the machine gun. The machine gun, the very name, signifies the ability to industrially produce mass death uh, as a result of automated fire. Machine guns, that's to say guns that would spew fire at a steady rate, 
with a pull of the trigger, not requiring repeated aiming or repeated uh, um, uh, firing of the mechanism, had already been developed in the 19th century, in the 1880s. And these had a range of more than a 1,000 yards, and they fired 600 rounds per minute, many times more than a trained marksman could. One machine gun crew could hold off masses of enemies, many times larger, simply by deploying this mechanized uh, technology. Uh, In fact, the machine gun had often been celebrated as the ideal weapon for colonial warfare. It was seen as a, a vital demonstration of the technological superiority of Europeans over non-European peoples, and naively, it had been assumed in the past, this weapon would not be deployed by civilized peoples, in quotation marks, against other, in quotation marks, civilized peoples. But as soon as it was deployed to such destructive effect in the first stages of the First World War, it became clear that many more of these machine guns would need to be used, and they were ordered. Another technology that was crucial was the new form of artillery that was recoilless. That means that this was artillery which would not, after every firing, be jolted out of its position by the recoil of the gun as the missile was launched, but rather it would absorb the shock of the uh, explosion of the shell as it took its trajectory and would not need to be recited or recalibrated in order to fire at the positions it originally had been aimed at. This increased rates of fire and allowed later in the war ever more precise artillery attacks to be planned as well as put into effect. Another disastrous new technological advance that was put to murderous effect was poison gas. On April 22, 1915, German forces first used poison gas at Ypres. These yellowish-green clouds of poison gas inaugurated a general gas warfare because in a dialectic, the Allied side, which at first had been the victims of this warfare, soon would respond in kind with new and improved chemical weapons as well. And we'll be speaking more in a later lecture about the horrors and nature of gas warfare. The soldiers themselves, trapped in this environment, felt that their status as individuals, as human beings, was changing. Many of them record that they themselves were becoming increasingly anonymous. Individual heroism seemed obsolete, uh, ridiculous almost, in the context of an industrial war in which shells and artillery and machine guns mattered much more than an individual's personal heroism, bravery, or motivation. A farewell to chivalry is a phrase that was sometimes used to describe this final parting of the ways with the illusions with which the war had begun. This trend of the acutely felt dehumanization of soldiers themselves and a divorce from earlier ideas of heroism and of chivalry was probably best illustrated by the changes in uniform that were taking place of necessity in this new form of warfare, where earlier resplendent uniforms and bright colors with glittering badges and plumed hats had been the order of the day. Now, by contrast, uniforms in dull earth tones and camouflage colors, as well as the ubiquitous steel helmets that made almost all soldiers look alike, whether they were officers or enlisted, uh, now were the order of the day. 
in the language of the soldiers themselves, some of this dehumanization could be felt as well. The ordinary soldier's dislike of big words like heroism or of causes and duty instead was replaced by a simpler struggle for survival and a feeling of obligation towards one's comrades in the trenches. A key dynamic that was at work here that we need to understand in order to fully appreciate what it was that was taking place in these first first attempts to deal with trench warfare was the primacy of the defensive. The key fact of this new warfare in military historical terms was the strength of the defensive side, those who were doing the defending, who were being attacked on the battlefield for technical reasons. This phenomenon, the primacy of the defensive, the fact that soldiers in trenches trying to ward off an attack would be stronger than those attacking, was only slowly discovered and understood in practice. One reason for this is because the new reality totally contradicted the ruling military doctrine of the cult of the offensive, whereby the more motivated and more spirited attackers would always overrun more cowardly defenders. So the theory had gone. As a result, mass attacks often turned into massacres, as the defenders, it turned out, enjoyed tremendous advantages. Let's try to follow through what a typical attack in all of its horror would have looked like, at least in brief outline, to make clear this phenomenon. First, a massive artillery barrage, that's to say a volley of artillery fire fired by a whole bank or a group of artillery or cannon would be fired in unison all at once with a particular goal. A massive artillery barrage would be unleashed Uh, um, planned in advance, the intent of which was to cut the barbed wire of the enemy's side, destroy the defenses, and, as the phrase went, to soften up the enemy defenders, leaving them in a state of shock, which would allow them to be easily overrun by the attacking side. So the theory went. In practice, this barrage very often did not cut the wire. If the defenders' trenches were deep enough, the shells would uh, not destroy all of the defenses, and the barrage would have another devastating side effect. The barrage would actually signal to the defenders where the attacker was planning to attack. The element of surprise was lost in the long, pounding, prolonged barrages, allowing the defender time to move up reserves or reinforcements to the support or reserve trenches. After the barrage had lifted, once it had ended, attacking troops would be ordered to, as the phrase went, go over the top. That's to say to leap up from the firing step out of their trenches to advance with fixed bayonets and with cheers through no man's land and into the enemy trenches, which now allegedly were ripe for the taking. However, another side effect of the previous barrage that was supposed to make the attack easier, now came into play. The barrage had pounded the ground of the defending side. It had torn up much of no man's land. It made it difficult to advance and even easier to lose one's way than it might have been otherwise. And it scarcely needs to be added that in the process, friendly fire for one's own artillery trying to support attacking troops could also be a danger to the attackers. In practice, thus, barrages often had not accomplished what they were supposed to do. The wire remained uncut and soldiers would be caught on the wire. 
The defenders would then, once the barrage had lifted, know that this was the right time to emerge from their deep bunkers, to set up their machine guns, and to mow down the lines of attackers as they advanced, now entirely visible and vulnerable, against the defending trenches. At the Battle of the Somme, that we'll be talking more about in a later lecture, German machine gunners, it was timed, could be back in position after a barrage had lifted from their bunkers and into uh, readiness to fire in less than three minutes, more than enough time to encounter the attackers with deadly fire. Even if an attack should achieve breakthrough and a hole should be punched in the lines of the trenches of the defender, nonetheless, reserves had more than likely already been moved up by the defender and the attacker would not be in a prime position to exploit this opportunity. The reserves of the attacking side would encounter the same difficulty in moving forward quickly and thus often could not move fast enough to exploit the gap that had been created, if it had been created. By contrast, the defending side could always use the railways behind its own lines, out of the range of the attacker's artillery, to bring up ever more troops as reinforcements. By contrast, the attackers were advancing slowly on foot through no man's land. The noted British historian A.J.P. Taylor uh, remarked in a very compelling way, with a, a, a wonderful coinage, on the contrasts that this form of battle represented. Troops could arrive very quickly at the front, but once they were to move forward and attack, their progress slowed to a very, very slow pace. Fundamentally, according to A.J.P. Taylor, the challenge was this, quote, defense was mechanized and attack was not, end quote. Soldiers, once they had reached the front, once they had reached no man's land, would move just as slowly as soldiers had ever done in earlier ages. The general's response, however, on both sides to this quandary, this challenge, this insoluble problem, was to increase the mass of the attack, to increase the size of the force that was deployed, preceded by ever larger and heavier barrages. Bigger was to be better. We need to survey, then, the record of these frontal attacks. For two years after the start of the First World War, many generals tended to show appalling incomprehension of this new reality. Some were wrestling with the problem, but many instead held on to their persistent dream of a decisive breakthrough, of soldiers moving forward at a rapid pace, of cavalry finally coming into their own and Many of these generals, in fact, had been trained as cavalry officers and had a soft spot for this particular arm of the military. The offensive spirit notion, the cult of the offensive, continued to be a mantra in these renewed frontal attacks. The British, in fact, even had a special instructor who traveled among the troops preaching the virtues of the bayonet charge. Another way in which soldiers were encouraged to really get into the cult of the offensive also on the British side, was the tradition of um, kicking off attacks by quite literally kicking a football across no man's land in order to mark the start of a sporting and very gamesmanlike attack on the enemy. The frontal attacks at the start of the war took a devastating toll on all sides. But we want to examine one in particular in a little more detail, and that's the case of the Battle of Langemark, which grew into a legend for the Germans. Langemark in Flanders, near Ypres, 
became the site of a creation of a German nationalist myth which centered on a disaster, on a failure, a failed attack in November 1914 when poorly trained volunteers had been thrown against British trenches and in the process took some 41,000 casualties. The myth grew up once a German army dispatch was produced. On November 11th, 1914, an army news bulletin was published that wrote of young German units attacking enemy lines while, it was said, singing the German national anthem, Germany, Germany above all. This myth, later elaborated in German wartime propaganda, claimed that German students, and especially the Wandervogel hiking idealists with Schiller and Goethe and Nietzsche in their backpacks, supposedly, had shown their typical sublime spirit of self-sacrifice by attacking even when the odds were hopeless. A soldier, an ordinary soldier, by the name of Adolf Hitler, claimed later that he had witnessed this attack and had seen a new spirit forged there. Ominously, in his memoir, he wrote that this was the beginning of something new. After the war, he would create a party around the ideas of war forging a renewed race. But the myth of Langemark, in many ways, does not bear closer examination. So much of it was crafted or mythologized. The encounter actually wasn't fought at Langemark, but instead fought at a place named Bischot, which didn't sound quite as Germanic or, or legendary as Langemark, so another name was chosen. And it's estimated that only 18% of the regiments that went forward in this self-sacrificing and vain way were actually student volunteers, though in propaganda, they were all turned into young student idealists. Not everyone was taken in by this myth. Those who were more skeptical of it instead spoke of the Kindermord of Langemark, the slaughter of the innocents, where young men had been sent to their death for nothing. The event certainly did show the actual magnitude of losses. It's estimated that only a third of those German young student Wandervogel hiking enthusiasts returned from the war. Similarly, on all sides, officers experienced especially high casualty rates in leading the frontal attacks. It transpired at the start of the war that the, the flash of, a soldier, uh, of an officer's um, sword or saber as he rallied troops towards an attack or led them made him an excellent target for snipers on the opposing side. At the Battle of the Somme, it's estimated that officers took six times the ordinary rate of casualties as enlisted men did. Nonetheless, the notion of a shared front community growing out of these terrible experiences was a potent idea. We want to survey in a little more detail the 1915 Allied offensives on the Western Front and their failures. Because the Allies, as opposed to the Germans on the Western Front, felt a special urgency in recapturing lost ground. In particular, the French, whose own territory, own homeland, was occupied, and also to help relieve the Russians, for whom the war was not going well in 1915, as we'll see in a future lecture on the Eastern Front. The start of the war produced extremely costly engagements at the start on the Western Front, with the French army taking a million casualties in the first five months of the war. And then, in 1915, more French soldiers were killed in disastrous attacks even than in the terrible Battle of Verdun in 1916 that we'll be discussing in a later lecture. A long series of attempted attacks yielded disastrous results. The Battle of Artois on December 17th to the 29th of 1914. Renewed French attacks in February and March of 1915 in Champagne. The French attack on Saint-Mihel in April. 
the Second Battle of Artois from May 4th to June 18th, 1915, the Third Battle of Artois from September 25th to October 14th, 1915. We see, in essence here, the same territories being fought over again and again. In 1915, the French had suffered nearly a third of a million casualties. In the British attack at Neuve-Chapelle on March 10th, 1915, and the attack at Los in late September of 1915, breaches were created in the German lines, but could not be exploited before the front once again froze into stalemate. As a result of these disappointments, in December of 1915, General Douglas Haig replaced General French as commander-in-chief of the army in France and remained in this position until the end of the war. A key question, given this sense of stalemate and futility and senseless sacrifice, is how soldiers were able to endure this sort of existence, how they were able to tolerate their own lives being placed at stake as generals, as leaders sought to improvise and deal with the new realities of trench warfare and the war on the Western Front, so unfamiliar, unexpected, and nonetheless now being put into practice uh, at the cost of great, uh, a great many lives. Ultimately, this was a question the soldiers would ask, answer with their own day-to-day existence and survival in the trenches, a topic that we'll be considering in our next lecture. Lecture 8, Life and Death in the Trenches. In this lecture, we'll be examining aspects of life and death in the trenches of the Western Front. The trench landscape of the Western Front has clearly been imprinted on our collective memory as a crucial site of modernity. They're, for many people, synonymous with the First World War as a whole, though obviously the wars we'll be discussing is far vaster and more diverse. But nonetheless, they seem to capture an essential truth about the war. They're vivid symbols of how this industrial conflict stripped soldiers of a sense of human agency and human freedom and instead mocked any concept of heroism or individuality. In this lecture, will seek to provide a detailed overview of the trench landscape from the perspective of ordinary soldiers. Uh, clearly, it, it wouldn't even be possible to approach the, the horrors as they were lived in reality, but we'll try to understand certain aspects of this surreal situation, the increasingly elaborate fortifications, the omnipresence of death, the different national styles of tr- trench construction, the distinctive codes of behavior and ethos that evolved in the trenches including between enemies, events such as the informal truces of the live-and-let-live system or the remarkable scenes of the Christmas fraternizations between the opposing sides in 1914 and an elaborate and vast world of superstition and myth that grew out of the trench experience. I stated a moment ago that the trenches were a crucial site of modernity imprinted on Western collective imagination. Uh, I think that Clearly, the trench landscape has left its impact on Western art and literature, both high and low, both elite and popular. One needs to think, just for instance, of the Peanuts cartoon series and Snoopy 
as a uh, fighter ace crawling his way through the trenches, something that requires no explanation to a reader of the cartoon, or the appearance of the trenches in British comedy series like Monty Python. These are less serious examples, but at the same time, our language itself has retained expressions that come from this unreal world of the trenches, expressions which some people use in the workplace, for instance, uh, or in the context of of, uh, popular sports, without understanding precisely where these terms come from. These include words like over-the-top, meaning the act of attacking uh, uh, out of the trenches, or even speak of being in the trenches during the work week as a time where one is fully engaged, or speak of no man's land, a territory not held by any side. In literature and in the arts, the traces are significant. In poems and prose by writers such as Robert Graves or Eric Maria Remarque, who wrote the classic All Quiet on the Western Front, or T.S. Eliot, who wrote The Wasteland, which presents the trench landscape with with scurrying masses as a very symbol of modernity, all of these writers have recorded the impact and the shock of the world of the trenches and what it represented. Important examples, which uh, one certainly could uh, read at one's leisure, uh, of poetry that does the same thing, that captures some elemental truth about the experience of the Western Front include bitter poems by Wilfred Owens and Siegfried Sassoon. In a poem entitled Anthem for Doomed Youth, Wilfred Owen wrote, and essentially the title says it all, of a time of parting, a time with the lights going out on an entire generation being sacrificed, and the implicit question is, for what? Siegfried Sassoon's poem entitled more tersely, They... Uh, speaks at first with the voice of a bishop, a bishop who is describing the young men in the trenches, describing the young men at war and how they will most certainly be transformed in a spiritual sense, the bishop argues, by the sublime experience of the test of war and its moral importance. The poem bitterly closes with the observation that, yes, indeed, many young men will have changed as a result of the war, as they've lost legs, arms, and have been mutilated as a result. The trenches as a whole, thus, I would argue, are a crucial site for modernity indeed because they're a vivid symbol for the loss of human agency, radically diminished individual importance and individual heroism against a backdrop of anonymous industrial forces, the destructive power of technology, and compulsions larger than those of an individual's motivation. Detailed description of the trenches themselves, obviously, that we'll speak to in a moment, can only begin to approximate the full impact of the lived reality, but it's nonetheless necessary to try to form a mental picture of them. Life in the trenches was enveloped in what the German philosopher of war, Karl von Clausewitz, has called the fog of war meaning the uncertainties, the the lack of perspective, the the lack of clarity on where one is and what's going around one. Life in the trenches, by definition, as a subterranean form of existence, obscured a clear or panoramic view of the battlefield as a whole. Soldiers who existed in this unreal landscape could very clearly not have endured 
long, unbroken service in the trenches. So instead of necessity, rotation systems were created in which soldiers would be moved into trench duty and then after they had survived, if they had survived, were moved out once again. Typically, a soldier might spend one week of each month in the front lines and then after the intense horror of that experience, one week further back in the reserve trenches and then the remainder of the time behind the lines or in rear areas or if one was especially lucky, on vacation at home. The daily routine of the trenches had its own rhythm, its own rituals that needed to be observed. The daily routine began before dawn. Before dawn, preparations would be made to repel an attack, which was likely to come at precisely this first glimmer of light. The name given to this ritual of preparing for an attack was Stand To. And this is from an archaic term of uh, military art, that to stand to arms, meaning to prepare for an imminent assault. The stand to represented the moment when soldiers, often groggy from the night uh, and from lack of sleep, would be roused to stand at the fire, uh, fire step of the trench and to see whether an attack might be coming. If it didn't, then the day took its ordinary round. This included breakfast, inspections, sentry duty, repairing trenches and bunkers, a seemingly never-ending task, and then later another meal. Nightfall also would bring the possibility of an attack, and thus soldiers had to be on the ready once again. What this should make clear, by the way, is the constant presence of insomnia, a chronic lack of sleep, which became a permanent feature of the trench existence. The trenches also produced their own maladies. This included uh, diseases that had names essentially given to them as a result of the experience of the trenches, like trench foot or trench fever. Trench foot was the name given to a form of frostbite that distinctively could be acquired by standing in the water-filled and water-logged bottom of the trenches, while trench fever represented an infection carried by the vermin and the lice that were a part of the ordinary life of soldiers as well. One might mention as well the phenomenon of shell shock. That's to say the psychological impact of the constant horrors and the strain of combat and of existence in the trenches, which we'll be discussing in more detail in a later lecture. Very clearly, a disturbing feature of this existence was the omnipresence of death. Soldiers were often in close proximity to death, to the remains of bodies, decay, infestations of rats, as well as the reality of having lost close friends. In no man's land, the bodies, whether of enemies or of one's own, might very well be lying out in the open for all to see, but still too perilous to be reached and recovered for burial. Even in cases where bodies were buried, the bombardments, the barrages of artillery could churn up the soil where those bodies had been either buried or had been lost in the mud, and thus bodies might reappear after a period of being buried, a horror revealed for all to see. The soldiers at the same time would throw themselves into the tasks of building these trenches as it was an existential matter of importance. And oddly enough, 
contemporaries recorded that national styles of trench building emerged. This smacks very much of 19th century generalizations about national character, but it speaks a lot also to the self-understanding of soldiers as they celebrated their distinctively different styles of building these important fortifications. The British uh, were in some cases proud of the fact that their trenches were less elaborate and less carefully tended than those, let's say, of the Germans. Uh, By contrast, it was argued, the British were still hoping for that breakthrough, that decisive assault that would lead them into the heart of Germany, and thus there wasn't any point in getting too bogged down in domesticity. At the same time, even British forces weren't willing to give up entirely on domesticity, and thus the names that they gave for their trenches in this complicated landscape of avenues and of front lines included names that were familiar. A trench might be named Piccadilly, or The Strand, or Hyde Park, a way of evoking home even in this unreal environment. The British also were well-supplied, The cans of tinned beef that the British had became especially sought after by German raiding parties as a special delicacy, and, as we'll see in later lectures, as the war turned economically against the Central Powers, German raiding parties especially enjoyed successes in which they'd be able to carry off much food and supplies from the better-equipped British trenches. For their part, German propagandists celebrated what they took to be the virtues embodied in German trenches. These were ones that were carefully designed with an eye to domesticity, civilization, elaborately cared for, and with the comforts, insofar as this was possible, of home, with mirrors on the wall, wash basins, and everywhere what was taken to be a national characteristic, cleanliness and order. Trying to cope with this environment was obviously an enormously complex and challenging psychological task. Uh, Just consider the following question. Uh, For soldiers who were able to go home on leave, would the proximity of one's family or home town or homelands, would that make it easier to cope or more difficult to cope with a trench landscape? The very proximity of home could be a bizarre counterpoint to the horrors on a daily basis experienced in the trenches. Uh, To give but one example that was ready to mind for British soldiers, there one was in the trenches of northern France, and yet one might very well be receiving, with only the short delay, one's hometown newspaper from Britain, perhaps from London. From London also came special care packages uh, from proximity. An example would be that of Fortnum and Mason or Harrods, both famous department stores that specialized in care packages for the troops fighting at the front. And apparently fruitcakes were especially suitable uh, in this regard. Would this proximity make one long even more to be out of the trenches Would the disjuncture, the radical difference between the normalcy of home existence and the new normalcy of the trenches be too much to bear psychologically? This is a process which had no clear answer. Rather, the letters and the diaries written by soldiers who survived the experience of the trenches yield rich historical sources. But historians point out that these were often the more literate and thoughtful soldiers 
who were recording their experience. Very many instead would have to cope in a way that was far less eloquent, but nonetheless part of a strategy for survival. Survival strategies could include grim, uh, downright uh, dark humor, which tried to deal with horrifying scenes. And there's one in particular, uh, as an example, that uh, has remained with me still that I think sums this up perfectly. In the British lines at the salient at Ypres, uh, British soldiers uh, would, uh, upon going out to uh, the trenches or returning from the trenches, would, pla- uh, would pass one spot in the fortifications uh, of the trench landscape. And as a result of uh, bombardment or of the, the movement of earth, uh, a common reality in the trench landscape, um, at first they were horrified to see an arm sticking out from the uh, trench wall. The remains of a, of a, a fellow fighter, perhaps a Britishman, perhaps not, uh, sticking out from the wall exposed for all to see. One way of dealing with this horrific, mind-boggling sight was simply to respond to it with humor, which soldiers did. They gave the possessor of this arm the nickname Jack and would shake the hand as they moved out for good luck, saying, hello, Jack, and then upon returning would shake the hand again, once again a a ritual of superstition, which supposedly uh, was to ensure one's good fortune and survival and yet also represented grim humor trying to deal with the accumulated horror. There were other ways in which soldiers also were urged to find a a voice for themselves and and express at least aspects of their condition. These included a a strange artifact of the First World War, which is marvelously expressive and fascinating to read today, trench newspapers. These included publications that ordinary men, sometimes under the tutelage of their officers, were uh, encouraged to produce as a way of uh, perhaps humorously summing up and coping with life in the trenches. And these existed on the side of the central powers as well as the allies, as did also front theaters, so-called front theaters, or even front cinemas where movies were shown, which tried to offer some diversion from the reality of warfare. These could obviously be primitive affairs on occasion, One special challenge was producing plays or romantic comedies without the presence of women actors, uh, but the soldiers improvised in this regard as well. One German reviewer of military front theater even argued that it was a virtue to have these primitive conditions because this most closely resembled the conditions of Shakespeare's own time before technology and other aspects of modern stagecraft had diluted an original and vital art form. Ultimately, the soldier's language as well, as we've mentioned before, changed, and the literary historian Paul Fussell makes a compelling argument that the ironies, the sense of helplessness uh, within the war, changed the English language forever so that soldiers no longer could be uttering, as he argues we too cannot, could no longer utter words like duty or honor or glory without an ironic tinge. Another element of coping, which was most definitely not allowed, most definitely a matter of improvisation and of uh, unofficial understanding, was the so-called live-and-let-live system. The live-and-let-live system was an informal truce that might be worked out, often with great difficulty and ambiguity, between enemy sides in trenches. 
Now, very clearly, we've been talking about the horrific slaughter of frontal attacks and the uh, the dreadful record of the first years of the war. But it needs to be kept in mind that not all sectors, not all areas of the front, not all military theaters were equally murderous. Some, in fact, were quieter sectors. And these were much sought after, as one might pass there an existence which, while not without threat, was nonetheless not quite as deadly as that of the more uh, fought-over sectors of the front lines. It was precisely in such quieter areas that in the name of simply living and letting live, informal truces evolved between enemies on opposing sides. And these could range from the really quite ordinary to the tremendously elaborate and well thought out. Live and let live systems could include conventions that were worked out spontaneously of not attacking at certain times. Not attacking, let's say, during breakfast, because everyone, after all, needed this first meal of the day. A convention, perhaps, of not attacking during religious holidays. A convention, perhaps, in quieter sectors where there was no need for a constant antagonism of even resisting the temptation of aiming at latrines or at isolated men walking about on the other side so that snipers, in the name of keeping the peace, would refrain from shooting at such easy targets. Uh, The same could be true in no man's land. Soldiers might be careful to make a lot of noise as they were on patrol in no man's land at night in order to give plenty of warning to an enemy scouting party that uh, they were close by to avoid an unnecessary and ultimately futile mutual slaughter. At the same time, such arrangements, uh, which could include not pretending not to see one another in no man's land as one repaired uh, fortifications or repaired breaks in the barbed wire, very clearly would infuriate commanders if they learned of them. And these were uh, forbidden again and again. The most crucial case of this sort of informal truce, and the most famous, the most riveting in human terms, was the Christmas fraternization of 1914, the first Christmas of the First World War, where the most dramatic instances of informal truces took place on the Western Front. It all started with a simple gesture. Mostly from the German lines, apparently, soldiers put up Christmas trees, And especially from the British lines, soldiers were shocked to see Christmas trees appearing with lights twinkling off in the distance and then starting to hear the sound of Christmas hymns being sung uh, by the German side. Uh, After first suspecting an attack or some subterfuge, this might be joined by a British response of singing or some other greeting or welcome. Soon, meetings and games in no man's land were arranged, food was traded, photographs were taken, signatures exchanged as mementos of this remarkable experience, and at least in this Christmas season, at least for the short space, a truce had descended and goodwill, by contrast, was visible. The truce, however, even during this Christmas 1914, it needs to be noted, did not obtain everywhere. It turns out that the truces were far likelier to break out between the British and Germans than they were between the so-called hereditary enemies, the French and the Germans. 
It was also the case that some kinds of German troops, especially the highly motivated and disciplined Prussian troops, were far less likely to engage in an informal truce. Nonetheless, generals on both sides were furious at the news of the Christmas truce. They tried to censor news of its existence and tried to effectively sh- and did effectively shut down any recurrence on a similar scale of such a phenomenon. It worried them as to what it might portend about the morale and the conviction of their own troops. Finally, a fascinating area to discuss is the superstitions, the entire world of myth and of ritual, of irrational mystical gestures that grew up in this bizarre trench landscape. These irrational gestures were, in a very touching way, we can understand, attempts to cope with a situation of helplessness. The war evolved its own folklore as making sense, an attempt to make sense of an otherwise mad world. This ritual clearly was an attempt psychologically to reassert some measure of control in a situation in which soldiers were without it. Ordinary soldiers might prize amulets, that's to say uh, special lucky charms that were uh, to them uh, a, a protecting force. Some soldiers believed that through a kind of self-hypnosis they could make themselves invulnerable to bullets. And indeed, myths grew up about things that you should avoid doing so as not to be uh, uh, wounded or killed in the war, taboos, some of which persisted long after the war itself. It used to be a a long-standing superstition, this has probably vanished now, but that one should never light three cigarettes in a row with one match, even if friends were sharing a smoke. And the reason for that had everything to do with the reality of the trenches. From the opposite side, if a sniper was watching, the sniper would, with the first cigarette, see the match being lit, with the second cigarette being lit from the same match, would take aim, and with the third would fire, killing the third in the series, a ritual which had its grounding in the trench world. More elaborate legends also took on a life of their own. In 1914, at the Battle of Mons, when uh, British forces had retreated hastily Before the German onslaught, uh, a legend grew up that angels or medieval archers had stepped out of the clouds, a shining presence, and had come to the rescue of the British troops against the pursuing Germans. The reason, as it turns out, why this myth grew up uh, came from a short story that had um, fantasized about medieval archers of the British wars on the continent coming to the aid of British soldiers in the Great War. Uh, the writer of this short story afterwards tried to sort of do a timeout and uh, to convince people that, no, no, this never actually happened. It was just a short story of his invention, but he was shouted down. It was unpatriotic, it seemed, to call it into question. At the Somme, a statue and a damaged church of the Virgin Mary took on a very special superstitious significance. This statue of the Virgin Mary held up a child, probably the Christ child, at the top of a church steeple, but it had been damaged in the course of the conflict itself, and the statue was essentially um, poised to topple over. It was at an angle parallel to the ground. And this was a bizarre sight that many soldiers saw on their way to the front. The legend grew up that when that statue finally fell, the war would end. This superstition, unfortunately, was not one that came to pass. The statue did fall, and the war continued nonetheless.
There were also other rumors that were marvelously expressive, but don't appear to have any basis in a, in a concrete reality. One of those rumors was that of the so-called German corpse factory. The German corpse factory. The myth suggested that the Germans were running so low on supplies, including fats, that they were rendering human bodies uh, in factories that were intended to recycle this human material. Um, though this myth didn't have truth to it, sometimes it was attributed to the British as well, that they had a similar installation. It certainly expressed some deeper intuition about how humans were raw material for this war. Another rumor, which apparently was without basis in reality, was that uh, one that appeared again and again was that of the crucified Canadian. The Germans had allegedly crucified in plain view a Canadian prisoner of war above their trenches so that the opposed uh, British side uh, could view his torment uh, in uh, full detail. Uh, Very clearly, once again, uh, even a myth without a basis in reality apparently expressed certain deeper existential truths about the terrors of war and the way in which all soldiers were being crucified by this experience. The uh, religious imagery that's behind much of this superstition is, is, uh, is obvious as well. One of the most powerful myths that grew up as a consequence of this experience was that of the trench community. The intensity of the experience of soldiers at the front did in fact produce in many soldiers a loyalty that focused not on the big words that were often scorned, concepts like loyalty and duty, but instead a more intense personal obligation felt towards comrades and one's immediate group, one's fellow soldiers. This has been observed by psychologists as well as as a very key element of the psychology of warfare. But the mythologizing of this notion of a trench community went beyond much of this. Propagandists on all sides, and some soldiers themselves, asserted that front soldiers who had existed in the trenches, who'd fought in the trenches, had actually been changed in a moral or spiritual way by their experiences. The argument ran that they had been welded into a true trench community, that something wonderful had happened out in the trenches, that what earlier had been fragmented groupings of people from different parts of their nation-state or their empire were now somehow coalescing into one. With a melting away, supposedly, of class differences, differences of of religion or confession, differences of region, producing a perfected national community, true community, which shared property in common, shared peril, shared sacrifice. Now, this notion of a trench community was not without a potentially subversive edge because it accented the dignity and the cohesion of ordinary soldiers. It was argued that distinctions and hierarchies had been broken down in the common peril of the trenches. Hatred of officers in particular, those men beyond, behind the lines who were directing the senseless slaughter, could grow up and be a cement for the trench community as it was mythologized. Resentment of the home front could also become a factor. People at home, it was argued, didn't understand what it was really like. All of this could lead, finally, to a strange and unintended psychological consequence of feeling sometimes of kinship with the enemies on the other side, in the opposed trenches. It was sometimes argued, indeed, that 
enemy soldiers from the trenches on either side had, as a result of the searing experience, more in common with one another than they did with their officers, generals, or the home front. A gap of experience could lead to alienation from civilian life at home as well as authority. And a mythology of a new man and a new community forged in the trenches would have important political potential. Let me leave you with one last myth that I think was marvelously expressive about this notion of a trench community. A myth grew up that in no man's land, between the trenches, there existed another army. An army that was independent. An entire regiment, an entire grouping of deserters from both sides who refused to fight in the war, but instead survived in hidden lines, hidden bunkers in no man's land. This myth, this dream of soldiers becoming once again in control of their destinies in however limited a way speaks volumes of the helplessness of the reality of the world of the trenches. Lecture 9, The Great Battles of Attrition. In this lecture, we'll be examining the great battles that dominated the Western Front from 1916 to 1917, already different in their character from the attacks that had marked the opening stages of the war in the West. In part, this was as a result of an evolution. Once the new and distinctive dynamics of industrial war had slowly been recognized, including the uh, inherent strength of the defensive side we've discussed in an earlier lecture due to the state of the technology of the time, there followed in 1916 to 1917 a series of huge battles of attrition that involved masses of men, some five million in a hitherto unprecedented scale of battle on the Western Front. These battles were intended to grind down the enemy side and to tip the balance towards victory. But ultimately, they too yielded little result beyond mass death and suffering. We'll examine in turn the months-long titanic battles of Verdun and Somme in 1916, and in 1917, the French Champagne Offensive and the British experience at the Third Battle of Ypres, also called Passchendaele. The lecture today will examine the guiding ideas behind the launching of these failed offensives and how the battles themselves could eventually take on a life of their own, actually escaping the initial premises of their planners. The battles increasingly came to be invested with a dogged, irrational national pride and took on enormous symbolic significance, which made it impossible to disengage at a time when it might have been rational to do so. We want to examine the commonalities, the shared features that marked the realities of these battles. Both the Allies in the West, the French and the British, and the Germans had planned decisive battles on the Western Front. These turned into disasters of attrition, which is a term that we need to actually define. Attrition means a slow grinding down or draining of the enemy's forces, a wearing down of the enemy side rather than the scoring of a decisive victory. And attrition was to be a phenomenon seen throughout total war as an experience. The mass battles that we'll be discussing in this lecture really, in a sense, 
had a logic of their own that soon slipped away from the rational control of the leaders, uh, revealing their lack of control of the events on the battlefield due both to uh, the lack of effective communications as well as their wrestling with the problem of how a battle of this nature should be fought. In addition, back on the home front, these battles became vivid symbols of national pride and assumed such significance that it was impossible to step away from them. These battles revealed again or underlined uh, a phenomenon that we've spoken about in an earlier lecture, the strength of the defensive side. They also revealed the general's inability to understand how to employ new technology to break the stalemate. They eventually would be able to do so late in the war, but at this stage, the learning curve was still on its way up. It also revealed the growing callousness of many commanders towards the expenditure of lives. And it also revealed another phenomenon, which was, in psychological terms, also unexpected. The ability of ordinary soldiers to somehow keep on fighting and to endure these dreadful conditions. First, let's turn to the Battle of Verdun. This titanic battle between the Germans and the French in 1916 very vividly illustrated the futility and the destructive power of this new war. It was a lesson that unfortunately also was slow to be learned. This lesson was repeated at the Somme soon afterwards. Verdun has taken on enormous significance in the memory of Germans and French, and the events themselves were of a scale that was truly striking. The German general Falkenhayn, who had taken over from General von Moltke at the start of the war, had already started to rethink the approach towards the fighting of the war as a result of the disastrous first encounters of the first years. Falkenhayn thought in strategic terms that Britain was truly the decisive enemy. If France, the main ally of Britain, could be knocked out of the war, then Britain, in a sense, would have no choice but to make peace as well, and Germany would have won a decisive victory. His key challenge, then, was the question of how to, to knock France out of the war. And the answer that he arrived at was by grinding down the French manpower reserves. Falkenhayn's plans aimed, as he put it, to bleed the French army white. If they could be lured into a battle, the French would have to commit their reserves again and again, and eventually, by being drawn into a blood mill, would find themselves, at some point, without reinforcements and unable to continue the fight. To mark the decisive nature of uh, this battle that he hoped for, Falkenhayn named this operation in German Gericht. The word means judgment. Operation Judgment focused on a historic fortress city in the disputed lands on the German and French border. This was the historic fortress city of Verdun, uh, a, a fortress complex that had first been established in the days of Louis XIV, the Sun King, but now had been built up into an enormous fortification to forestall a renewed German invasion, such as been seen in the Franco-Prussian War of the 1870s, and Verdun was considered to be uh, almost uh, untakeable, almost uh, uh, invulnerable to enemy attack. Verdun itself was surrounded by 19 forts of the most modern fortification, and dominating these other forts was a fort named Fort Duomont. 
It was precisely because of both the military as well as symbolic significance of this supposedly impregnable fortress complex that Falkenhayn chose to target Verdun above all. The entire point of this operation was to create a salient. The definition of a salient is a territory in a front line that juts out into enemy territory. That's to say, a essentially a peninsula of uh, military territory that is confronted on three sides by enemy forces. The whole point, thus, in other words, was to draw the French into a battle for the salient of Verdun, a salient that the Germans didn't even need to actually take. They could surround it almost entirely and then expect French defenders to keep pouring in in order to make sure that the salient was not taken. But Falkenhayn's observation that the point of this battle was not to capture Verdun, but instead to stage a massive battle on this spot, was on occasion either not understood or forgotten by German commanders, and in some sense changed the character of the battle that he had at first planned. On the first day of the Battle of Verdun, on February 21st, 1916, a massive, huge uh, bombardment by German cannon began. German guns fired a million shells that first day, dropping 20 tons of shells per acre. The bombardments were enormous. It's estimated, uh, at least by one estimate, that some 60 million shells would fall on Verdun in the course of the entire battle. It was said that men could go mad under the impact of the long, long bombardments. And then German forces moved forward. On February 25th, German troops actually captured Fort Duomont in a striking and sudden raid. As Falkenhayn had planned and anticipated, the French felt that they could not sacrifice Verdun. Instead, they prepared for a dogged and determined national defense of this symbolically significant spot. The man who was brought in to command the French forces was General Philippe Pétain. Pétain was brought in to lead the defense effort, and he was in some sense the ideal man for this task. Because whereas so many other French military leaders had become devoted disciples of the cult of the offensive, Pétain was almost alone in emphasizing the importance of the defensive side and having thought through some of the aspects of a defense that truly could be effective. Pétain understood that this experience of the defense of Verdun would have to be handled in a way that maximally spared his soldiers. Pétain, for this purpose, set up a rotation system which moved troops through the battle, cycling them in and out, so that you would not have the same exhausted troops trying to hold the territory for weeks on end. It was estimated that soldiers would spend a maximum of two weeks in the what came to be called the hell of Verdun, and if they were able to look forward to the end of this time, they knew that at the end of that period, they would be cycled out and relief would finally come. It's estimated that some three-quarters of the entire French army was rotated through this meat grinder of a battle, ensuring that many French soldiers had shared in the experience of the Battle of Verdun. From Paris itself, troops were moved out through the eastern railway station, the Gare de l'Est, 
which still, by the way, to this very day, bears under the name of the train station the destination name of Verdun, marking this symbolically significant battle uh, still held in memory. They would then be moved up to Verdun, and they would enter into its hellish experience. It was said afterwards that soldiers who moved away from the battle after having been relieved had a particular stare, a particular abstraction, a particular lost look in their eyes that allowed veterans of Verdun ever afterwards to identify one another, even without words. The supply of Verdun, this salient, this uh, uh, peninsula of French territory, was ensured through a heroic effort that took place along the Sacred Road, as it was called. A thin road where 3,000 trucks rode in and rode out daily, under constant fire, one every 14 seconds, in order to provide the military and food supplies necessary for the troops. Pétain, with his own firmness of character, rallied the French defenders, vowing in a famous phrase, they shall not pass. This battle itself, with its enormous expenditure of materiel and its horrific conditions, soon fragmented into many smaller encounters. And it was in one of these in March that the uh, the young officer by the name of Charles de Gaulle, who later in World War II had become a leader of the French resistance, was captured by the Germans in this encounter. The battle itself seemed to lose coherence. No longer were there clear trench lines, but instead soldiers fought from foxholes, or moved forward by jumping from bomb crater to bomb crater. In May of the year, Georges Robert Nivelle replaced Pétain in charge of Verdun and led the effort from there on in. The battle's high point was over after June of 1916. In part, the Somme offensive, which the British were spearheading at this point, opening in July, drew off German resources from Verdun and gave some relief. The battle itself, after months' duration, finally drew to a close in November of 1916, as the French very proudly recaptured the forts that they had lost to the Germans from October to December of 1916. And we might then ask, what was the outcome of this experience? Over 10 months of inconclusive combat, the casualties had been enormous. It's estimated, and the numbers are still debated and still not entirely clear to this very day, but we get at least a sense of magnitude. The casualties were 700,000 French and German casualties, nearly even. It's estimated that the French, though this is a matter of debate as well, that the French casualties were slightly higher than those of the German side. Of these number of casualties, that's to say men wounded as well as dead, it's estimated that about 300,000, that's to say a third of a million nearly, were killed, which amounts statistically to about one death for every minute of the Battle of Verdun. The Battle of Verdun, which had been so carefully crafted and thought through at its inception, at least, by Falkenhayn, the German general, was arguably the only offensive of the war where the offensive side marginally uh, was... Uh, took a smaller toll than the defensive side did. But in a larger sense, Falkenhayn's gamble had failed. He had succeeded in bleeding the French army white, and the French army indeed was exhausted as a result of this experience, 
But to a great extent, so too was the German army in spite of its greater potential manpower reserves. The toll for the French had been enormous, and thus it's obvious why this battle remains a touchstone of French national identity and collective memory to this very day. About 10% of all of the French war dead were from the Battle of Verdun. And throughout the war as a whole, just summing up the, the entire losses that this implied, one out of every two Frenchmen of the age between 20 and 30 years was killed, the loss of a generation. The French army's offensive capacities were shattered as a result of the experience of the defense of Verdun. And this experience, the failures of the the battle uh, and the defense of Verdun initially, led to changes in military leadership positions in France, and the experience of Verdun also led to changes in military positions and leadership in Germany as well. On August 29th in 1916, in Germany, General Hindenburg, the hero of the fighting on the Eastern Front that we'll be talking about in a coming lecture, replaced Falkenhayn as the German commander-in-chief, bringing with him his talented quartermaster general, Erich Ludendorff. And we'll be speaking much more about these men who became war dictators of Germany uh, in the years that followed. In France, in December of 1916, General Nivelle, a new and confident officer, replaced Joffre as commander-in-chief of the army. In all of this experience, Pétain's reputation had soared. He came to be identified with a more humane and a more caring approach to the French soldiers who had made such sacrifices in the defense of Verdun, and he was elevated to the honored position of Marshal of France. There was a bitter irony yet in store in Pétain's own biography because this man who came to be a great national hero of the French in the war against the Germans later during World War II would head a collaborationist regime that cooperated with the Nazis, betraying the earlier national honors that he had been accorded. I'd like to say a word about the aftermath of the Battle of Verdun, because even those who visit Verdun today are still struck by the amazing traces that remain in the landscape itself testifying to the elemental force of this battle of materiel. Um, It's very difficult to describe in words. It's almost something one has to actually see to take aboard the landscape so many years afterwards of the battlefield, which remains to this very day still cratered and pockmarked uh, in really vivid and unnatural ways by the impact of shell explosions. And indeed, very many shells still lie not diffused, still active, many of them, in this poisoned landscape. An estimated 12 million of such unexploded shells still lies in the Verdun area. They're still being found, and hundreds of diffusers have died over the decades afterwards. Uh, Parts of Verdun where uh, villages once stood were never rebuilt again, and trenches can still be seen in the area as well, along with tremendous and extensive graves and monuments to the battle. The Battle of Verdun also had other implications that carried on into the future. One of the French defenders of Verdun, André Maginot, later became France's uh, interwar minister of war in uh, uh, between the world wars. Named after him was an extensive fortification line called the Maginot Line, which was intended to 
make uh, much more determined and rational the sort of defense uh, that Maginot himself had lived through during Verdun. But the hopes that were vested in this fortification line were in vain, as Hitler's armies would eventually simply uh, uh, overcome this obstacle. Verdun remains to this very day a hallowed ground, with visitors and school groups traveling to this area. And indeed, there are shrines that sum up its national and its uh, human significance, shrines like the famous Bayonet Trench and the legends that surround it that we'll be talking about towards the end of our course when we address how the war itself was memorialized. In quick succession, indeed before the Battle of Verdun had ended, the Battle of the Somme began. The Great Offensive on the Somme had been long planned as a joint Allied operation with the French and the British cooperating together in an assault on the German lines. The defense of Verdun ended up drawing off French forces that had been intended to be committed for the Battle of Verdun, and this left the British to take the lead. This was a case where earlier planning would play a fateful role, now that the reality had changed. The territory that had been chosen for the attack on the Somme was, in fact, chosen for a specific reason. It was an area where the British and the French could cooperate together. That was its attraction. That was the reason it had been chosen. In another sense, however, now that the French were increasingly not able to participate in the measure that earlier had been promised, this territory revealed itself as being in other ways quite unsuitable because the Germans held the strategic heights and thus the attack was, uh, in that sense, uh, not as efficient as it had been hoped for before. The British forces now took the lead under the command of Sir Douglas Haig. The first day opened with disaster. After an intense bombardment lasting five days of the German lines, which had been intended to cut the barbed wire and to destroy the machine gun emplacements and the bunkers of German defenders, British troops were sent forward on July 1st, 1916 against the German lines. The expectation of Haig and other commanders was that a breakthrough and a fast advance would follow once the lines had been broken. So British soldiers often carried about 70 pounds of equipment, slowing their progress as they moved forward against the German lines. The chalky ground of this area had allowed the Germans, in fact, to dig far deeper fortifications and bunkers than might otherwise have been the case and machine gunners who had simply been uh, lying in relative safety in these deep bunkers now emerged to mow down the British as they moved forward in long lines. On that first day of the Battle of the Somme, there were 60,000 British casualties, 20,000 of them dead immediately. This was the greatest loss in one day of any army during the First World War. And four months of such battle continued. Further assaults also failed, including uh, a quixotic cavalry charge, which soon broke down in the cratered ground and before the German guns. British tanks were put into use as well on September 15th, 1916, but they weren't there in sufficient numbers to really create a decisive result. Overall, by November of 1916, the British forces had won about seven miles at the cost of 400,000 British casualties. Throughout the battle as a whole, over one million casualties were counted for the British, French, and the Germans. 
Sir Douglas Haig's reputation was battered by this battle. Uh, he's remained an intensely controversial figure ever since. And soldiers referred to the Somme in particular as Haig's great foul-up. More bitter soldiers tended to use a stronger word, also starting with F, for the great foul-up. The next battle that we turn our attention to came in the spring of 1917, the offensive on the Champagne. General Nivelle had planned a great French-led offensive combining force and massive attack, and he promised great and immediate results that were to follow. However, German countermeasures complicated the planned offensive. In some sense, uh, German uh, tactical thinking in this regard uh, got in ahead of the Allied military planning. General Ludendorff strengthened the German trench lines and started a systematic and quiet withdrawal of German forces about, on the average, 25 miles back from the line that they had been occupying uh, at this point, back to a systematically prepared and far better fortified line of defenses, about 25 miles back, called the Siegfried Line by the Germans after a, a German mythic uh, hero uh, of, the, uh, of the sagas. Uh, the Allies called this the Hindenburg Line in February and March of 1917. Uh, this was not a retreat out of weakness. It was rather a strategic withdrawal to far better uh, fortified and held positions. In the process, the Germans subjected the areas that they were about to give up to what is called scorched earth policies, leaving them entirely devastated so they could be of no use to the Allies and so that their advance would be hampered, leaving essentially a desert of destroyed villages, poisoned wells, exploded bridges and destroyed roads, and in the process they deported some 100,000 civilians. Nonetheless, in spite of this unexpected withdrawal of the Germans, the Nivelle Offensive began with the Battle of Arras, on April 9th, 1917. Vimy Ridge was taken by Canadian troops, and the battle seemed to start well in this regard. But the French attack in the Champagne region was a disaster which paradoxically was was worsened by the extravagant expectations that Nivelle had created of finally achieving, by mass and violence of approach, a breakthrough at long last. As a result of these disappointments, in late April, mutinies broke out among the French troops. Ordinary French soldiers refused to move up to the front and refused to attack. They protested what they saw as the meaningless sacrifice of their lives for nothing. And they used a very interesting phrase to describe what it was that they were doing. They called themselves strikers, men who were striking in protest as how the war was being conducted. And we're going to speak a lot more in a coming lecture when we talk about dissent about these mutinies because they're very revealing, in fact, of the sentiments of ordinary soldiers who had endured so long, had endured the Battle of Verdun, had endured other encounters, but now, finally, as they put it, were going on strike. General Nivelle, whose reputation was destroyed by these failures, was replaced as commander-in-chief by General Pétain, the hero of Verdun, who had vowed that the Germans would not pass on May 15, 1917. Pétain now used some of the charisma, some of, some of the image that had been built up around him as a result of the defense of Verdun to restore order. Uh, he did so by a combination of severe discipline on occasion, as well as the assurance 
that policies would change and that French soldiers would not be sent to their deaths uselessly in renewed offensives of this variety. An order was restored. The mutinies and the military strike were put down. But nonetheless, very revealingly, it was clear that the French army's offensive capacity in order to mount huge offensives of the sort that had been uh, attempted finally was spent. The last of the titanic battles that we'd like to consider under the category of the great battles of attrition is the third battle of Ypres. The very name, the third battle, suggests just how much some of this ground was fought over again and again and again. That's known, uh, especially to the British, uh, by the evocative name of Passchendaele after a village uh, that uh, featured prominently in this battle. In late July of 1917, General Haig, even after the failures uh, of earlier offensive offensives, now launched another British offensive in Flanders, the Third Battle of Ypres. The hopes uh, for the battle were heightened by the use of unprecedented uh, technolo- technological uh, intensity uh, in uh, an event that was really quite striking. This was the quite deliberate and careful and slow mining of a strategic area that the Germans had held, the so-called Messine Ridge. British troops had undermined this ridge, which was a strategically significant location, and had packed it full of explosives, uh, a million tons in fact, uh, in order to prepare for a surprise explosion, a blowing up of this ridge in order to inaugurate uh, the attack. And this explosion of Messine Ridge took place on June 7th, 1917. Uh, The explosion was of such intensity that it was felt in London, uh, far, far away. Uh, But the results of this initial breakthrough yielded only about two miles advance. And this turned out to be, while nonetheless a a, a good omen uh, of the possibility of breaking through, uh, not nearly what had been hoped for as a result. In some sense, military planners themselves had been deceived by their maps. The maps, it's been argued by military historians, deceptively showed promising positions, but what was neglected was the quality of the ground, which would prove to be very wet and muddy. And in fact, seas of mud uh, are especially symbolic of the entire experience of Passchendaele. That's not how General Haig saw it at first. He had high hopes of breaking through into open Belgian territory, punching through the German lines, reaching the port of Ostend, and beginning uh, an advance into Germany itself. The attack began on July 31st, 1917, and rains that rained down in this period quickly turned the ground into, quite literally, oceans of mud and wet. Tanks that were sent forward quite literally sank into this mud uh, and disappeared. The last attacks of this drawn-out battle took place on November 6th, 1917, and they at last reached the village of Passchendaele. The result of this battle was a British gain of five miles. Some staff officers who had been involved in the planning of the battle itself later bitterly repented the entire venture, which had cost the British 325,000 casualties. Uh, There's one anecdote in particular that to me sums up in a very bitter way uh, the regret uh, and the, the, la- the illusions, the lack of understanding that some of these officers had shown. One of Haig's subordinates went to the front 
to see the battlefield after, in quotation marks, the British victory. He went to the front and seeing the mud that trapped his car as they drove forward into the areas that had been fought over, he actually, with amazement, looked out over the muddy landscape and broke into tears and exclaimed, Good God, did we really send men forward to fight in that? The outcomes of these battles were ambiguous. What was clear was that they were synonymous with the senseless mass death of the Great War. And the search for other ways of breaking the deadlock, the stalemate, would continue, whether through technology, the opening of other fronts, gaining of other allies, or subverting the enemy in other ways. The fighting on other fronts we'll consider in our next lectures. Lecture 10, The Eastern Front Experience. In this lecture, we consider the war on the Eastern Front. The Eastern Front is still not as well understood or as familiar as the relatively more familiar fighting on the Western Front in the world of the trenches. This lecture will seek to illuminate the unfamiliar clash of empires in Eastern Europe, beginning with the Russian invasion of German uh, East Prussia and the ominous disasters of the Austro-Hungarian war effort from its very beginning leading to growing dependence by the Austro-Hungarians on their ally, the German Empire. After the German victory against the Russians at Tannenberg in 1914, that we'll be discussing in this lecture, Generals Hindenburg and Ludendorff, the victors of that battle, became popular war heroes in Germany and eventually were elevated to the high command, becoming essentially German dictators. The great German advance of 1915 into the vast imperial territories of the Russian Empire brought the Germans into control of vast new areas, often devastated by conflict, which would now be occupied and administered as a new colonial empire. When we speak of the Eastern War and its experience for millions, we really are talking to a great extent about an experience that has not been imprinted as deeply in the collective consciousness of Western Europe or the United States, but its impact was a very important one for Eastern Europe and for world history. Winston Churchill, in his 1931 History of the Eastern Front, uh, entitled his book The Unknown War. The Eastern Front certainly differed from the fighting in the West in its greater mobility, its enormous scale. It was often twice the size or twice the length of the Western Front, uh, a thousand miles rather than 500 miles and also in its outcome, as we'll see by the end of today's lecture. The Eastern Front and the fighting and the atrocities that took place there in World War II, by contrast, have been very extensively studied and researched. What came before in the First World War has remained less familiar, but is the subject of this lecture. The central powers themselves, that's to say Germany and Austria-Hungary, often could not agree on priorities in fighting on the Eastern Front, and in fact, the coordination of their forces was spotty until the latter, that's to say the Austro-Hungarians, increasingly found themselves simply subordinated to German direction as they grew increasingly dependent upon Germany for aid, for the war went very poorly for them. 
The war, however, on the Eastern Front began with an event that was tremendously traumatic for German public opinion and for a sense of how the war was going. The war in the East opened for Germany with the Russian invasion. It was the only sizable incursion in the course of the war into German territory, the Russian invasion of East Prussia. And this was precisely what had been feared by many in the years before the war itself. There were nightmarish visions of an irresistible so-called Russian steamroller, of Russian armies made up of, of great, huge peasant soldiers and of fearsome Cossack or, uh, cavalry bearing down on Berlin. And such anxieties had been current before the war. But you'll recall that in the calculated risk, the gamble of the Schlieffen plan, it had been planned to leave Germany's eastern provinces less defended in order to concentrate, as the Schlieffen plan demanded, as much force as possible to beat France first and then to turn against the Russian Empire. However, dismaying German policymakers and military planners, Russian armies moved more quickly than had been expected. They did so in part at the urging of their French allies to come to the aid in the opening stages of the First World War. So now two Russian armies bore down upon East Prussia, the eastern areas of the German Empire. Uh, from the north uh, uh, east came General Renenkamp's Vilna army and General Samsonov's Warsaw army from the south, converging on this exposed uh, German territory. Russian forces had moved at the urging of the French before they were fully ready and in this hour of crisis, and some of the disorganization that resulted would turn out to be fateful uh, for the Russian effort. But at first, things seemed to be going well as the Russians plunged into a, a lightly defended uh, eastern province. At the Battle of Gumbinen on August 19th to the 20th of 1914, German troops were beaten back and German officials prepared to evacuate East Prussia. Russian forces outnumbered the German defenders two to one, they had overwhelming force, and Russian forces occupied the eastern portions of the province as a whole. The German officials who had ordered retreat were now simply dismissed from their positions, and new commanders were sent to the east to organize the war effort. These included Colonel General Paul von Hindenburg, a venerable German soldier already well along in years, who was brought out of retirement in order to lead this effort, and as his very able, talented, and now famous uh, uh, aide was Chief of Staff Major General Eric Ludendorff, who had acquired fame through the taking of the fortress of Liège uh, on the Western Front just recently. These two men were sent out to take command and to salvage the situation in the East. In a sense, they were very lucky because an able officer was already on the scene and had prepared plans. This was Lieutenant Colonel Max Hoffmann. Using the plans that had already been prepared by Hoffmann, together the military commanders took a calculated risk, which ended up yielding a great victory, what indeed is sometimes considered by some historians as the greatest victory of the First World War, the Battle of Tannenberg, which we'll talk about now in more detail. The Battle of Tannenberg was a calculated risk, which in some sense uh, the Germans were willing to take because of the role of technology uh, at play in the opening stages of the battle. 
German forces had intercepted Russian wireless messages. This speaks volumes about the uh, difficulties of communication uh, in this war. Uh, the Russians had been sending messages uncoded, not out of stupidity, obviously, but rather uh, because of the tremendous difficulties involved in, in coming, uh, rather getting a message through at all. And the result was that the Germans now had in their hands valuable clues as to how the Russian armies were advancing and what their plans were. They were thus able to divide their forces. They were uh, able, rather, to concentrate their forces against first one part of the advancing Russian force and then to move them against the other. The battle proceeded thus. German forces were directed first against the Warsaw army, concentrating against this oncoming force with uh, uh, their uh, movement directed against it. Meanwhile, only a thin screen of cavalry troops was used to guard against the Vilna army, the other Russian army moving in from the east, in order to produce the impression that the Germans were there in force as well. The poor quality of communications between these two Russian armies resulted in a unclear picture on the Russian side of what it was that the Germans were doing. The Germans now had gambled by concentrating their forces against the Warsaw army of the Russians moving in from the south, and concentrating their forces upon it, they surrounded it and smashed it in a huge battle, which lasted across vast territories from August 26th to the 31st of 1914. The result was, in this battle of encirclement, that vast numbers of Russian soldiers were taken prisoner, the Russian command collapsed, and in despair, the commander of the Russian forces, General Samsonov, uh, asked himself what he possibly could do at this moment. Uh, his officers recorded that he was in despair, in a sense, um, uh, repeating over and over again uh, his anxiety that the emperor, that's to say the Tsar, Nicholas, had entrusted him with his army and he had destroyed it. And the result was that he wandered off away from his officers and shot himself. Uh, so deep was his anxiety and despair. The Germans took vast masses of Russian prisoners, 92,000 by one count. This was an enormous defeat for an entire Russian army. And a great historical novel, painstakingly accurate, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's novel, August 1914, describes these events, both on the vast uh, strategic scale as well as in the experience of ordinary soldiers. In an ensuing battle, the army that had proceeded from the east, the Vilna army, which had not come to the aid of the Warsaw army as it was crushed, was also beaten back in the Battle of the Missourian Lakes of September 7th to the 15th of 1914. There followed more fighting in East Prussia, and it was only finally in the winter campaign of Missouri that East Prussia was finally liberated as Russian troops were finally thrown back. The fighting in East Prussia had ended in disaster for the Russians. It had cost Russia a quarter million men. The Russian attack, however, had, for all of its losses, nonetheless some achievements to show. It had drawn away two German army corps that might have been used on the Western Front to aid in the defense of embattled East Prussia. And in that sense, though at tremendous cost to the Russians, nonetheless they had contributed to the uh, frustration of the Schlieffen Plan in the West. After these battles, German armies were shifted to Poland and to protect Prussian Silesia. 
Soon a battle grew, uh, a legend grew up around the Battle of Tannenberg, considered by some military historians the great victory of the First World War. The news of this victory spread like wildfire through Germany. And the good news was very necessary at this moment, at a time when the Schlieffen Plan was failing. A legend now grew up about Tannenberg, almost immediately. And it began with the naming of this battle. The name chosen for the Battle of Tannenberg was historically and symbolically significant. uh, Because it had historical resonance. There had been another, or first battle of Tannenberg, back in 1410. And this had been a famous German defeat when the Teutonic Knights, the the Germanic Crusaders against the Poles and against the Baltic peoples, had been defeated by Polish and Lithuanian armies back in 1410. The name was quite deliberately chosen uh, to, in some sense, redeem this earlier defeat with a far greater victory over Slavic forces. Um, curmudgeonly, military historians point out that the battle probably should have been called Fergenau, but obviously the name of Fergenau didn't carry these deep resonances. It sounded a little bit silly. So instead, quite deliberately, the battle was named Tannenberg. And legends now grew up around the leadership of Hindenburg and Ludendorff. In particular, it was claimed, sort of in a conspiracy theory, that Hindenburg had in fact planned this battle years and years ago that he had vacationed in East Prussia, that he had obsessively ridden through the areas where the battle finally took place and had planned out in his mind years before a battle plan which eventually the Russians were lured into as a trap. Hindenburg and Ludendorff, the architects, so it was believed, of this tremendous victory became now very clearly war heroes in Germany. And such war heroes were very necessary at a time of reverses. In reflection of their increased status, on November 1st, 1914, General Hindenburg was appointed the supreme commander in the East. And very clearly, building on the sort of stature and charisma that his new role had given him, uh, the commander in the East would take on an independence, increased independence, uh, even from uh, the commander uh, of German forces as a whole, Falkenhayn, who was leading the war effort. Hindenburg and Ludendorff together formed what sometimes has been called a dynamic duo. They were very different in character as well as background, but together they had a certain chemistry that allowed them to, at least in the short term, be quite effective as military leaders. Hindenburg himself even called their relationship at one point a happy marriage. Paul von Hindenburg, the leadership figurehead, in in other words, of this dynamic duo, was a man of tremendous historical antecedents. His ancestors had been Prussian aristocrats or Junkers uh, for centuries beforehand, and his own family was identified very much with Prussian history. He was a calm, imperturbable, icy-willed, and uh, um, uh, tremendously determined military leader. Uh, who, it was said, could keep his calm even in the most difficult military situations. Erich Ludendorff, by contrast, was very different. He was of middle-class origins. He was not of exalted aristocratic background. He was rather a technocrat. He was, in some sense, a, a new breed of military man, a military professional who, through scientific planning, through ambition, through hard work, had risen through the ranks and had achieved the prominence 
that he now would use to the hilt. The shared psychological uh, chemistry of this group uh, was supplemented by Ludendorff's nervousness, his, uh, um, his high-strung nature. It was argued sometimes that these two men, so very different psychologically as well as in terms of background, perfectly complemented one another. Their shared fame helped them to rise in terms of stature as heroes to the German people, eventually becoming war dictators of Germany from 1916 on, a war dictatorship that we'll inquire into in more detail in a later lecture. If the Germans had scored this very welcome victory at the Battle of Tannenberg, the fortunes of their ally in the Central Powers, the Austro-Hungarians, were by contrast uh, quite dismal. The war began very badly for the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and for keen observers, this was a very bad omen. The Empire fielded three army groups at the start of the war, and it seemed almost as if it couldn't decide where to concentrate. One of these army groups was sent against Russia— The other was sent against the original enemy in what had turned into a larger war, Serbia. And the third one managed to shuttle indecisively in between these uh, fronts, between the Russian front and the Serbian front. From the start of the war, the Austro-Hungarians had expected an easy victory over the Serbian enemy. They started by shelling the Serbian capital of Belgrade. And on August 12, 1914, Austro-Hungarian forces confidently crossed the Danube and Sava rivers, expecting victory, but four days later were expelled by Serbian forces engaged in a nationalist defense of their homeland. And indeed, in the rest of 1914, the Serbian forces would two more times beat off Austro-Hungarian invasions. After an initial advance into Russian territory towards Lublin in the Polish territories, Austro-Hungarian armies were again beaten back. Austro-Hungary was expelled and lost Galicia. In 1914, by the end of the year, Austria-Hungary was measuring a terrible toll. It had lost more than a million casualties. And in a very real sense, it couldn't afford these precise casualties and these deaths because these represented the professional military, the seasoned officers and soldiers of an army that now, by contrast, was lamed. From December 1914 to April 1915, horrific winter fighting took place. Russian and Austro-Hungarian forces clashed in the high passes of the snowy Carpathian Mountains. That's the range that extends between Galicia and Hungary, a mountain range uh, in which fighting now took place. And the Austro-Hungarian forces fighting in this, this mountain warfare often lost more casualties from men freezing than from combat itself. This so-called Carpathian Winter Campaign and the fall of a famous Austro-Hungarian fortress, the main fortress in Austrian Galicia, Przemysl, that had been occupied, uh, had been surrounded by Russian uh, besiegers, cost the Austrians more than 750,000 casualties. Nonetheless, there were some successes that the Austrians could point to and that they were proud of. With help from German reinforcements, a sign of things to come, on which the Austro-Hungarian army would increasingly rely in the years that followed, a victory was produced. This was the victory of Garlice Tarnov on May 2nd, 1915. A 40-mile gap was smashed into the Russian front, and the forces of the Central Powers started to pour through. This was truly a remarkable victory, 
Galicia, which had been lost to the Russian forces, was now regained for the Austrian Empire. The fortress of Chemisil was retaken. And Lemberg, or Lvov as it's called, was captured and a quarter million Russians taken prisoner. What this illustrated was that the war in the East was more mobile in its nature and still capable of producing the sort of breakthroughs that eluded the commanders on the Western Front. This breakthrough now opened out into a larger victory for the Central Powers, the so-called Great Advance of 1915. After their success in 1914 at the Battle of Tannenberg, Generals Hindenburg and Ludendorff had carved out for themselves a position as the premier Easterners. What was meant by this was that they championed within the debates about how strategy should evolve the formula that victory could be won in the East and forces should be concentrated there in order to exploit the opportunity. They argued for a battle of envelopment against the Russian armies. The Battle of Tannenberg had been a great success, but it had been a tactical success. It had not strategically, in the, in the largest sense, beaten the Russians to the point where they had to withdraw from the war. The Russians, to the contrary, had simply retreated. They'd pulled back and withdrawn into the wide open spaces of the Russian Empire, and a final strategic victory had eluded the Germans. General Falkenhayn, who was in charge of the entire German war effort, was a Westerner. He was convinced that final victory would have to be won on the Western Front and viewed the East as important but not ultimately decisive. But nonetheless, Falkenhayn, humoring his uh, subordinates, went on the defensive in 1915 on the Western Front and allowed forces to be moved to the East to win what victories might be won there. The breakthrough at Garlice Tarnov was even greater than had been expected. In fact, it's sometimes considered the only real breakthrough of the entire war. And now a larger German offensive in Eastern Europe unfolded, and it conquered vast territories, uh, an area essentially the size of all of France from the Russian Empire in the course of the so-called Great Advance of the summer of 1915. German armies occupied present-day Poland, Lithuania, and Latvia on the Baltic. German armies seized important fortresses that supposedly had been the the impregnable defenses of the Russian Empire, the fortresses of Kaunas, of Grodno, of Brest-Litovsk, and the cities of Warsaw and Vilnius. Russian armies were pushed back uh, an average of 300 miles, and as they did so, as they retreated, They used scorched-earth policies. These scorched-earth policies aimed to destroy the lands that were being given up to the enemy in order to make sure that by burning buildings, by destroying towns, by blowing up bridges, by tearing up railroads, uh, by burning fields with crops standing in them, the enemy would not gain anything worth having. It was very clear that what the Germans would remember as the great advance of 1915 would go into Russian memory as the Great Retreat of 1915. And the blow was stunning. Russian forces lost two and a half million men, dead, wounded, or taken prisoner, as a result of this campaign. Russia was almost knocked out of the war entirely. What followed at this point was really more in the nature of a symbolic gesture, but it was enormously telling in terms of what it had to say about Russian leadership. 
In what turned out to be a fateful mistake, in September of 1915, the Russian emperor, Tsar Nicholas II, personally took over as Russian commander-in-chief from the Grand Duke Nicholas Nikolievich. Henceforth, the Russian Tsar would be held responsible for any setbacks to the Russian war effort. In a very real sense, Nicholas II, who felt a deep sense of obligation and a deep sense of responsibility, which unfortunately didn't match his talents as a military commander or a political leader, had now engineered a situation in which his regime did not have plausible deniability, but instead would be very personally identified with the defeats. The Eastern Front finally stabilized by the fall of 1915, and its expanse was huge. The front ran from the Baltic Sea, just short of Riga in what today is the Republic of Latvia, all the way down south to Romania. At this point, satisfied with these gains and still convinced that victory would have to come in the West, General Falkenhayn returned his attention to the fighting on the Western Front and to that titanic battle that he was planning, the Battle of Verdun in 1916. By contrast now, in the East, large territories had been won. This was a great contrast with the several miles of advance that might be achieved on the Western Front at great cost. Here in Eastern Europe, by contrast, huge territories had been conquered by German forces, and they now needed to be administered as occupied territory. A formidable task, given their state of devastation as a result of both conflict itself, the front moving through, as well as scorched earth policies, and the relative unfamiliarity, the strangeness of these regions to the German occupiers. Poland was given a civil government. The lands north of Poland were consolidated into not a civilian government of the variety that Poland had, but rather an odd sort of hybrid form, a military state, a military colony that was called Oberost. And we'll talk much more in a coming lecture about what the realities of occupation were like. Here it would suffice to simply mention that German soldiers, ordinary soldiers, would now, in these vast, wide-open territories, be engaged in a daily encounter, a daily confrontation with Eastern Europe and what it was like on a daily basis, its nature, its uh, populations of tremendous ethnic diversity, including uh, Russians, Poles, Lithuanians, Latvians, uh, as well as the Jews of Eastern Europe, a very important minority, even some German minorities who, living in the Baltic territories, might have been familiar to the Germans, uh, but instead also uh, had traits all their own that made them unfamiliar as well. Generals Ludendorff and Hindenburg, frustrated at the fact that a total victory in Eastern Europe had still eluded them, now concentrated on administering these occupied territories and behind the scenes were busy conspiring against General Falkenhayn, their own superior, aiming eventually to take control of the German war effort themselves. Nonetheless, what now intervened was a surprising and, in many cases, very proud Russian success, showing that the fighting on the Eastern Front most certainly still continued. And this was the proud effort of the Russian army, the so-called Brusilov Offensive. Unexpectedly, in June to August of 1916, General Alexei Brusilov, a Russian general, launched an offensive. Now, in part, this was intended to draw German forces away from the Western Front, 
where the crisis at Verdun was playing itself out. And what this very usefully illustrates is the extent to which uh, the fighting on the Eastern Front and the Western Front, different as it was, was nonetheless in a very real military sense linked in terms of its fortunes and its changing balance. The Brusilov Offensive made dramatic Russian gains. Russian armies on the southern sectors of the front, where Brusilov's offensive took place, in Volinia and Galicia, smashed into the Austro-Hungarian forces. They took a quarter million Austro-Hungarian soldiers prisoner. The Austro-Hungarian front collapsed, and it was very clear that in a real sense, their fighting spirit was exhausted. This, too, was a continuing very bad omen for the fortunes of the Habsburg monarchy's war effort. And there were certainly other side effects of these uh, uh, dramatic successes. Succeeding on the battlefield meant that one was probably more likely to uh, find allies willing to join one. And the result of these Russian successes was that the uh, Eastern European country of Romania now settled on joining the Allies in order to share in what it expected soon would be a decisive victory. Uh, This turned out to be a miscalculation because Brusilov's offensives, successful as they'd been in the south, did not receive support from other Russian commanders in the north. And the result was that as the fighting continued, Brusilov's army took a million casualties. And as it turned out, this successful offensive would be the last real success of the Russian army which was reaching exhaustion itself. Three successive following offensives by Brusilov were without greater successes. Ultimately, in the last analysis, the fighting in the East would end with what seemed to be success for the central powers, with a balance of victory tipping in their favor. By 1917, the central powers had scored seemingly impressive gains on the Eastern Front, Bulgaria had been impressed enough with the success of the Germans to join the Central Powers on September 6, 1915. In the winter of 1915, German, Austro-Hungarian, and Bulgarian armies overran Serbia and shared in the spoils of that conquest. In December of 1916, the Central Powers also conquered Romania, which had entered the war, uh, as it turned out, at a very bad moment. After the Brusilov Offensive, the Russian army itself was in the process of disintegration. Even the overthrow of the Tsar, that we'll be discussing much more in a later lecture about the Russian Revolution, and the installation of a new government in March of 1917, could not ultimately halt this process of the disintegration and undermining of the Russian armies as a whole. From July 1917, German and Austro-Hungarian forces attacked once again. And they pushed the front forward even further, retaking most of Galicia, taking Riga and the Estonian islands of Sarema, Huma, and Muhu, preparing for greater successes. At the end of 1917, it was clear that Russia had reached the point of exhaustion. Russia left the war. It proclaimed its own defeat, was forced to sign by the Germans uh, uh, was forced by the Germans to sign a crushing peace treaty, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, on March 3, 1918, that we'll discuss in more uh, detail later. This was an enormous and crushing blow to the Allies in the West. They had lost their Russian ally. Now, France and Great Britain were without a, a weight in the East that they might use in their plans. Russia was now defeated, and to the Central Powers, it seemed that half of the war, the war in the East, had been won by their side. 
What the fortunes of fighting on other fronts was like, especially the southern front, we'll explore in our next lecture. Lecture 11, The Southern Fronts. In this lecture, we'll be examining what one might call the Southern Fronts. The uh, battles around the Mediterranean, uh, battles involving Turkey, Italy, and the Balkans. We'll examine the factors that made victory or a decisive victory elusive in this theater of war as well as on the other fronts. Turkish entry into the war expanded its scope. We'll discuss the Allied landings in Gallipoli in 1915, which attempted to strategically revolutionize the situation, but which were repulsed by the Turks in a campaign that involved a million men on all sides. We'll examine the way in which Italy at first stayed out of the general war following a policy of sacred egoism, as it was called by Italian politicians, and we'll observe how secret diplomacy and promises of territorial gains finally would bring Italy into the war on the Allied side as a result of the secret Treaty of London of 1915. We'll examine the hybrid forms of warfare that evolved as a result, the Alpine high-altitude fighting in the mountain ranges between Austria-Hungary and Italy, and the 12 battles of the Isonzo, We'll examine how Germany and Austria-Hungary succeeded in overrunning Serbia and Romania. And we'll finally take a closer look at an attempt to find a back door in terms of the southern fronts, the 1915 Allied expedition to Salonika, Greece, and the reasons why it proved indecisive. We'll begin by examining the widening of the war with Turkish entry. The war took on a southern dimension by the addition of operations in the Ottoman Empire, or Turkey, warfare in Italy, and operations around the Mediterranean. Turkey joined the Central Powers by a secret treaty of August 2, 1914, but was slower to join the active fighting. The Young Turk movement, the nationalist movement for uh, inner renewal that had gained steam in the empire and had controlled it, since 1909, led by Enver Pasha, had sympathized with Germany and increasingly come under the influence of German advisors and German politicians. The entry of Turkey into the war came when two German battleships, which were in essence given to the Turkish Navy and their their soldiers changed out for uh, German uh, sailors uh, replacing their uniforms with Turkish ones and hoisting the Turkish flag, when these two battleships, the Goeben and the Breslau, moved into the Black Sea and began shelling Russian, uh, the Russian port of Odessa in October 1914. Uh, the result confused the Allies, who still thought that diplomatically they might have a chance to keep uh, the Ottoman Empire out of the war, but on November of 1914, the Allies too declared war on Turkey. As a result, operations would now spread around the territories of the Turkish Empire in the Mediterranean and in the Middle East. A key place or geopolitical location, which in this regard took on tremendous importance, was the Dardanelles. The Dardanelles represents essentially where, one might say, Asia and Europe meet. They are the straits which uh, join the 
Black Sea and the Mediterranean. And as such, they are a crucial strategic location, especially for the Russians. Because for the Russians, this was also a channel of trade. A third of Russian exports went through the Dardanelles, and the Dardanelles had been a long-standing coveted place that the Russian uh, policymakers over generations had sought to control so that they might have a uh, have this crucial strategic location in their own control. In the context of this renewed war effort, Great Britain, which over generations had sought to frustrate Russian ambitions to seize the Dardanelles, now in essence discarded this earlier constant aim of its diplomacy and promised Russia the Dardanelles as a gain of the war if it came to a successful conclusion. The stakes were thus high and growing higher. Turkey, for its part, launched an attack on the Russian Empire in the Caucasus mountain range. Some Turkish politicians, especially the nationalistic young Turks, envisioned as a result of victory in this war and the defeat of the Russian Empire, the possibility of carving out a great new empire that might replace the rickety Ottoman Empire, a new empire on a national basis. It would be what they called a pan-Turanian empire, meaning a pan-Turkish empire uniting all of the different speakers of Turkic languages and extending far into territories at that point owned by the Russian Empire in Central Asia, a vast new basis of a powerful state. Nonetheless, their ambitions were frustrated because the Turkish winter campaign of 1914 to 1915 into the Caucasus mountain ranges and their snowy valleys and peaks turned into a huge disaster. Untold numbers of Turkish soldiers froze to death as a result of poor provisioning and communications, and it's estimated that only 13% of the attacking force survived this assault. In the wake of this disaster, in the spring of 1915, Russian forces now moved over into the attack and moved down from the Caucasus into the territories of the Turkish Empire, into the Anatolian lands. There, in a turn of events that would be, as it turns out, quite significant later, they were welcomed by some ethnic minorities in these areas owned by the Ottoman Empire as liberators. Some of these groups were Armenians. The Armenians are an ethnic group different from the Turks. They were also Christian in background, and some felt that Russian rule would finally allow them a freer exercise of their religion and their culture. Turkish forces also opened another front by making attempts to attack the Suez Canal, which tremendously worried the British forces in Egypt. The Suez Canal, we need to recall, was essentially a lifeline for the British Empire to connect to its possession, the uh, jewel in the crown, the Indian uh, lands uh, uh, through the Suez Canal. A final attempt at opening of a new ideological front, one might even say a religious front, came on November 14, when the Turkish sultan, in his capacity as the caliph, as the protector, the religious protector of the holy city of Mecca and protector of Muslims, declared holy war or jihad. He announced that it was the duty of all Muslims around the world to fight against the uh, imperialist powers of Britain, France and Russia, and his hope was to set ablaze the many Muslim populations under British rule in India and Egypt, 
those under French rule in Africa or northern uh, and northern Africa and in Central Asia against Russian rule. Uh, the reality was that though this message was full of fire and of passion, it had very little resonance in fact. But it showed that many different factors were at play in this conflict. We need to turn now to a tremendously riveting example of an expedition which proceeded with high hopes, could certainly have made an enormous difference in the conflict as a whole, but which ended in a disaster. And this was the famous Gallipoli campaign. The Gallipoli campaign proceeded uh, as a result of a tremendous ambition. Now that Ottoman Turkey had entered the war and the Dardanelles were closed as a result, communication with Russia had become more difficult. It was still possible to communicate through the northern uh, sea lanes, uh, but uh, it had become far harder to keep up communications and trade. To relieve Russia in this more difficult position, the Western allies, the British and the French, crafted plans that would knock Ottoman Turkey out of the war, seize the Dardanelles, and perhaps even open up the possibility of a backdoor to fight the central powers, Germany and Austria-Hungary, by invading through the Balkans and perhaps invading Austria-Hungary, carrying the war, in other words, right into the heart of enemy territory. The key to all of this was to gain a foothold close to the Dardanelles. And thus the plan began with the notion of a landing in Gallipoli, the peninsula at the tip of the Dardanelles Straits. Once a landing had been achieved there, it was hoped that allied armies might be able to then move up to invade uh, the rest of Turkish territory, occupy the capital of Constantinople to the northeast, and be in a position to strategically change the outcome of the war. This plan was championed uh, on the part of both the British and the French by those people who were called Easterners, those who in the debate about how best to fight the war were convinced that there were other options in addition to slugging it out on the Western Front. And they proposed the attack upon Gallipoli, the opening up of the Dardanelles, the seizure of this territory as perhaps the decisive key to victory in the war. Among those champions was a man who would later play a very important role in world history, the British First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill. The Gallipoli plan might very well, if it had succeeded in one of these great what-ifs, one of the hypotheticals of the conflict, might very well have changed the outcome of this conflict. And indeed, military historians who admire the sort of breadth of vision and ambition that the Gallipoli plan represented have sometimes called the Gallipoli campaign the only true strategic idea of the war, the only truly revolutionary notion that might have changed its outcome. Unfortunately, bold as the plan was and high as the stakes were, the practice fell far short. Efforts to force the straits by battleships failed. And in fact, these first attacks ended up alerting Turkish forces that something larger was coming. The element of surprise was lost. Turkish forces, which earlier had not been uh, in force in some of the areas that might have formed the target for a successful landing, were now alerted to the fact that an attack was coming. They began to fortify, to build trenches, and to mass in great numbers to repel an assault that they now understood was coming. They did so under the leadership of Otto Liman von Sanders, 
the German commander of a Turkish army which was defending Gallipoli. The major landing, which unfortunately now had been, advance warning had been given of it to the uh, Turks, the major landing began on April 25th, 1915. French and British forces by sea uh, mounted an invasion and landed at Cape Helles and Australian and New Zealand troops, popularly known as Anzac units, landed at Anzac Cove. They landed successfully, but due to confused orders and just the confusion of the situation itself, a lack of a sense of urgency on the part of commanders, we now see with perfect hindsight, an initial window of opportunity to turn these landings into expanded beachheads and to really secure a position, this opportunity was squandered. The Allied forces now discovered that Turkish troops were shooting down at them from positions atop the cliffs where they had dug in. And the Allied forces faced the obvious uh, uh, situation of having no alternative but to dig in themselves to create trenches and to fight it out. In a bizarre set of circumstances, a bizarre set of events, the result was that here at Gallipoli, one very nearly recreated the stasis, the deadlock, the trench warfare of the Western Front, but in hot, miserable conditions. Among the Turkish troops who were organizing the defense atop the cliffs and Throwing back repeated attempts by the Allies to take the heights was a young officer, a young man by the name of Mustafa Kemal, who later, under the name of Ataturk, would become the leader of a new, revived nationalist Turkey that emerged after the First World War out of the ruins of the Ottoman Empire, was leading this defense. He, too, was a determined young Turk, and he was doing his part in the national defense. The entire dynamics of the long, drawn-out campaign, which left Allied forces essentially stranded at their initial beachheads, unable to expand them, unable to advance, once again provided a demonstration, if such a demonstration was needed, of the advantages of the defensive side that we've already talked about in an earlier lecture on the dynamics of the Western Front. The British commander of this uh, operation, Sir Ian Hamilton, renewed assaults in August of 1915, and new landings took place at Suvla Bay to the north of the initial landing spots. But these two did not succeed, and news of the disaster started to filter back to Britain. When it did so, Hamilton was removed, and through December, troops were withdrawn, quietly and in secret. Through subterfuge, through uh, uh, successful attempts to fool the Turkish forces uh, into thinking that the uh, Allied troops were still there in strength, the evacuation operation, in such complete contrast to the landings and the invasion itself, was remarkably successful and was finished by January 9th, 1916. But what of the outcome? What of the results that followed upon such ambitions for what this operation was supposed to bring? It's estimated that some 200,000 Allied men died in this futile expedition. The fighting had been of an enormous scale, reflecting the stakes. It had involved a million men on both sides, and the question now arose, who was to blame? One man in particular, who on the British side was blamed for having supported this venture to begin with, was Winston Churchill. He was disgraced. 
He was blamed for this misadventure, having supported it to begin with, and lost his position. Later, during the Second World War, he would go on to become the determined leader of the British war effort in the Second World War, but it would take his political career a long time to recover from this fatal association with the disaster of the invasion of Gallipoli. The Anzac troops, the Australian and New Zealand forces who had been shipped to participate in this fighting, had suffered enormous losses. And this was but of a piece with their tremendous sacrifices in the war as a whole. During the war, they took its estimated 62% casualties. The Gallipoli disaster, however, took, um, took on a special significance in the collective memory of Australians as well as New Zealanders of their participation in the First World War. The Gallipoli disaster came to be considered the founding experience of an independent Australian identity and New Zealand identity as well. The notion was that in this act of sacrifice, Australians and New Zealanders had shown themselves to be loyal sons of empire, yes, but also sticking together as comrades and as friends had revealed themselves to already be new nations that had a right to independence and a separate identity as well. Anzac Day, April 25th of every year, is still celebrated as a marker of precisely this searing experience in Australia. What this failure also made clear uh, was that ultimately this had not proved to be the back door, the decisive strategic outcome. The failure made clear the decision would have to be reached elsewhere, probably on the Western Front. We want to pursue now events happening further west in the Mediterranean, and that is Italian participation in the war. When the First World War had broken out, Italy had announced that it was not bound to its obligations to the Central Powers as a result of the earlier Triple Alliance that it had participated in, And instead, Prime Minister Antonio Salandra insisted that Italy would follow what he called sacred egoism, a defense of its own interests and a waiting to see which side it might ultimately make most sense to adhere to. What resulted was perhaps a not very noble performance as a bidding war grew up on both sides, by the central powers, that's to say Germany and Austria-Hungary, and by the Allies, Uh, France, Great Britain, and Russia for the prize of Italian participation or neutrality. In this auction for Italian participation, the Allies ultimately were the winners. And the reason for this, in retrospect, was quite obvious. On the one hand, precisely because the Italians coveted territory which was held by Austria-Hungary, Uh, Austria-Hungary and Germany were not in a position to offer nearly as much or weren't willing to offer nearly as much as the Allies could. The Allies were in this position of being able to promise enemy territory at the expense of their foes and thus could be far more expansive, far more generous, and ultimately won this competition. But the diplomacy had proceeded in secret, precisely, I think, because so many diplomats felt that the terms, if they became public, would just seem unseemly to too many people. The result was the signing of the secret Treaty of London between the Allies and Italy. This was signed on April 26, 1915. And the promises, while not very noble or idealistic, were extensive. Italy was promised ethnically Italian areas, those 
places that were considered by Italian nationalists to be irredenta, the unredeemed ethnic territories where Italian speakers lived that were still under Austro-Hungarian rule in Trentino and Trieste, but also larger holdings of mixed population where fewer Italians might live, larger gains in Tyrol, in the mountainous areas, and the Dalmatian coast, and perhaps even new generous colonial gains in places like Asia Minor, currently held by the Ottoman Empire. Many of these promises professed the more exalted allied war aims of fighting for civilization and for the right of small nations uh, that we'll be discussing in a later lecture about war aims, but these secret promises would come back to haunt the allies. They would later be a liability in public relations terms when the terms became clear. Nonetheless, with these new gains, Italy now prepared to enter into the war. On May 23, 1915, Italy declared war on Austria-Hungary. Italian nationalists and figures who praised war like the romantic poet Gabriele D'Annunzio and futurist artists who had celebrated war as a form of necessary social hygiene and adventure all celebrated this arrival at last of Italian participation. Not all Italians felt so, but certainly these nationalists celebrated what one might call a delayed August madness. The war experience of Italians that soon followed would probably quell some of that celebration. Though Italian participation was thought to be a prize by the Allies who had bid so much for it, Italy, in fact, would soon discover that its fortunes in the war were not nearly so positive, and it would soon require Allied assistance. The Italian commander, Count Luigi Cadorna, soon threw a million men into battle against Austria-Hungary on two fronts. Toward the Alpine areas bordering Italy in the north, Trentino, and towards Trieste, across the Isonzo River, to the east. In 11 battles... Eleven battles on one spot on the Isonzo River, Italian forces attacked again and again and again, and yet were unable to break through enemy trenches. In 1916, the Italians took half a million casualties. A new kind of fighting also evolved in the Alps, and one of the themes of our courses is the shock of the new, and in this case, this high-altitude fighting represented novelty in military history. Guns and artillery had to be hauled up by pulleys to high vantage points dominating alpine uh, vistas. Uh, In this battle, uh, glaciers could be turned into fortifications. And in fact, fighting took place on glaciers. Trenches and tunnels were built through the ice of glaciers in what came to be called by Italian forces the White War up in the snowy Alps. A war that, for all of its modernity, nonetheless could take primitive forms When rifles froze, soldiers would be reduced to throwing rocks at one another in this high alpine frozen fighting. The Italian war effort took most definitely a turn for the worse with a great disaster, the defeat at Caporetto. In fall of 1917, German troops had been moved in to reinforce and help the Austro-Hungarians, something that was happening with increasing frequency as the Austro-Hungarian war effort faltered. Among those special troops who were moved in to help was a soldier who would later become a famous commander in World War II, Erwin Rummel, who had become famous as the desert fox of the German-African forces in World War II. He and other German troops, together with the Austro-Hungarians, attacked the Italian lines. 
And in the Battle of Caporetto in October of 1917, often called the 12th Battle of the Isonzo, the Italian lines broke. A massive retreat set in, and it was only halted at last some distance away at the Piave River, north of Venice. Entire Italian units simply surrendered. The Italians lost half a million casualties, and a quarter million Italian prisoners were taken, testifying to a final breaking of morale. Ernest Hemingway's famous novel, A Farewell to Arms, talks precisely about this retreat, even though Hemingway himself had not experienced it. He arrived in the area six months later. It was very clear that the trauma of this experience was still present at the time. The retreat was halted as Italian forces finally regrouped 90 miles west of their initial positions at the Piave River to stand and defend the beautiful city of Venice. After this defeat, General Cadorna was replaced as commander-in-chief by General Armando Diaz, who didn't attempt any more foolhardy offensives and instead stood and the crisis passed. Meanwhile, matters were turning worse, it seemed, for the Allied forces in uh, other locations in the Balkans. Bulgaria had joined the Central Powers on September 6, 1915, in part because of promises made to it by Germany and Austria-Hungary of winning Serbian territory. The conquest of Serbia would not only finally settle uh, the score that the Austro-Hungarians had initiated uh, uh, the conflict with, but also would ensure lines of communication open with the Turkish ally of the Central Powers. In the winter of 1915, German, Austro-Hungarian, and Bulgarian armies finally overran Serbia in the course of two months. The capital, Belgrade, was captured in January of 1916. The Central Powers also invaded Montenegro and moved into Albania. An Allied expedition, which tried to come to the aid of Serbia, found itself trapped in Salonika in Greece. In a dramatic and costly retreat, what's still remembered by Serbians as the Great Retreat, the Serbian army and the Serbian government and the Serbian king marched across the Albanian mountains through the harsh terrain and attacked by local forces finally reaching the Adriatic Sea where they were evacuated by Allied navies. It's estimated that in this horrendous retreat, Serbia lost tremendous casualties, and in the campaign as a whole, it lost a sixth of its population. Prematurely uh, impressed by Russian successes in the Brusilov offensive that we had mentioned in our previous lecture on the Eastern Front, Romania had, as it turns out with remarkably bad timing, entered the war on the Allied side in August of 1916, hoping that it might gain territory held by Austria-Hungary uh, in Transylvania, in particular, where Romanians lived uh, as a minority. Romania itself, however, rather than gaining these contested territories, found itself invaded a week later by the Central Powers. By December of 1916, the Central Powers, with uh, General Falkenhayn, who earlier had commanded the entire German war effort and who now had been demoted to a regional command uh, after General Hindenburg and Ludendorff had uh, achieved the supreme command in Germany as a whole, vindicated his military talents by helping in the conquest of Romania. Romanian oil and agricultural resources now fell to the central powers, and in terms of economic warfare, this turned out to be a significant gain. Uh, this was a case also where the action of secret agents turned out to be of importance as well, 
because British secret agents uh, set about sabotaging the oil fields of Romania immediately before they fell into the hands of the central powers. They set the oil fields on fire, and the result was that at least some of these natural resources were lost for the German forces. Finally, we turn to the disappointment of Salonika. The Allies had sought to aid Serbia in its embattled position by sending in a military force through neutral Greece. Uh, Notice, please, the the irony uh, of this situation. Uh, Britain and France, uh, among their war aims, had denounced German violation of Belgian neutrality. Uh, In this case, though they weren't explicit about it and tried to veil it, uh, another neutral country was finding its neutrality uh, infringed upon. Allied forces were moved to Greece by October of 1915, something that was quite controversial within Greece and Greek politics itself. The Greek Prime Minister, Eleutherios Venizelos, cooperated with the Allies in this venture, but because of the frustration and the displeasure of his king, was soon deposed. Venizelos, however, even after he was removed as Prime Minister, gathered opposition forces around himself and set up a rival government opposed to King Constantine, who was more pro-German, who was finally forced to abdicate as a result of this uh, pressure. As a result of this tremendously complicated maneuvering of internal politics within Greece and allied pressure from the outside, including something that many Greeks really resented, an allied blockade of Greece to bring it to its senses from their political perspective. At long last, Greece joined the Allies as a power, though not very enthusiastically, in June of 1917. However, even as forces had been poured into Salonika in preparation for a mission to relieve Serbia, the results were disappointing. These forces were unable to break through the Bulgarian lines to the north that now were making common cause with the Central Powers. And the result was that even though many forces had been poured into Salonika in order to aid this Balkan expedition, the result was that half a million Allied soldiers now found themselves trapped, idle, without a job, without an immediate military use. The Germans felt that Salonika was a grand joke, and they derisively called Salonika, in effect, the largest internment camp that the Central Powers had. The result was that this promise, this lure of finding a way to open another front that might have plunged into the central powers from below, from what Winston Churchill would later call the soft underbelly of Europe and the southern front, had been frustrated. The decision would have to come elsewhere, and in part that decision would come through a clearer articulation of what was at stake of the war in terms of war aims that we'll be discussing in our next lecture. Lecture 12, War Aims and Occupations. In this lecture, we'll be examining war aims and the experience of occupation. And it might be best to start with just a brief explanation of why it makes sense to view these two larger themes in conjunction, together with one another. Well, in short, war aims were often about occupation. 
whether wanting to see one's own national soil freed of foreign occupation or the coveting of territory that was seen as necessary for national sovereignty on the other hand. We might ask, in particular, why it is that it would be appropriate in this lecture to talk about war aims when we've already been discussing a considerable narrative of the history of the war itself. And the short answer to this is that the war aims themselves changed over time. And it's truly fascinating to observe precisely the dynamics by which those war aims changed in response to the needs of public relations as it became ever more important to explain to a public why it was that such sacrifices were necessary and how the pressure of events themselves could alter war aims as well. This lecture first discusses the historical debates concerning the war aims of the combatant powers. What goals did the Allies and Central Powers pursue from the outset of the war, and how did those goals change and evolve during the course of the conflict? Very often, occupations were involved precisely because the experience of occupation could shape war aims. And thus, we'll next turn to examine the experience of foreign military occupation how it affected civilian populations, how it included forced labor, deportations, attempts at ethnic manipulation, and often very harsh economic exploitation. This lecture will survey the brief Russian occupation of German territory of East Prussia and Austro-Hungarian Galicia at the start of the war, and then the much longer German control of occupied Belgium and northern France, a little more detail added about the atrocities which accompanied their initial seizure, and the Central Powers' rule over Eastern Europe in Poland, the Baltic region, Romania, and Serbia. Prolonged warfare, uh, in particular, demanded that the warring powers articulate their war aims and the purpose of what it was that populations were fighting for that went in a way that went beyond the initial rallying to a war of self-defense. In our discussion in this course about meanings assigned to the war, we'll recall that the notion of fighting for the defense of the fatherland or of one's home country had been the initial universal motivator at the start of the war in 1914. But as the war dragged on, it would increasingly be necessary to somehow give voice to larger purposes, larger causes, some transcendent meaning that would justify the horrors of the war as they continued. Even among allies, however, even among those who were fighting side by side, either in the central powers or the allied powers, individual war aims might not always correspond, even among friendly countries, and they could threaten the cohesion and the unity of a warring side. In the second case, as we'll see in today's lecture, the war aims could also change under the pressure of circumstances uh, or a dynamic process that uh, continued as the war itself went along that we'll see operating almost by a logic of its own. Let's start by examining the war aims of the Allied powers and then later turn to those of the Central Powers. The Allied powers had, from the very start, committed themselves to a common agenda. It would still have to be fleshed out, still have to be uh, set down in detail, but from the very beginning, they committed themselves to a common cause. The Treaty of London of September 1914, not to be confused with the secret Treaty of London, which brought Italy into the war later, but the September 1914 Treaty of London, right at the start of the war, 
committed the allies, France, Russia, and Britain, not to sign a separate peace with the Central Powers. They would all work towards and fight towards that peace and would dictate it together, rather than making a separate peace, which eventually uh, a defeated Russia finds itself forced to do. The individual war aims of these countries were different, even though they might correspond in the larger perspective. The French war aims were seen as very basic and existential. France had been invaded. France had been invaded by Germany. Germany was to be expelled from French territory. Beyond this, the long dream of regaining the lost provinces of Alsace and Lorraine, which had been taken from a defeated France by Germany after uh, 1871, would at long last be regained. They would return to France. And precisely because the treacherous attack of 1914 had revealed French vulnerabilities, it was essential, French war aims ran, that a future Germany should be weakened, somehow weakened to the point where it could not again threaten France as it had in two wars in quick succession. French war aims also came to envision colonial gains in Africa or the Middle East at the expense of Ottoman Turkey. So there were other larger territorial and geopolitical issues involved. But in the French case, it was above all the war of national defense and the regaining of national territory that took priority. Russian war aims uh, were distinct. They included plans for an expanded Russian empire. Plans for an expanded Poland. Poland had been divided up among three empires, Prussia and Austria and uh, Russia, at the end of the 18th century. So Poland, uh, which had been wiped off the map, had been divided up. The war, war aim of Russia was now to reunite this lost unity, not out of solicitousness for Polish independence, far from it, but instead to reunite this unit at the expense of Germany and Austria-Hungary, who would lose their Polish provinces. Instead, it would all come under Russian control, and Russia itself would be expanded as an empire. And then there was the fulfillment of a long-standing dream that we've already mentioned in our previous lecture, the long-standing ambition of controlling the Dardanelles the straits that allow access between the Black Sea and the Mediterranean, essential for Russian trade, as well as the projection of military power, the control as well of the great capital of Constantinople with all of its imperial associations. British war aims were different. British war aims centered on the restoration of the balance of power on the continent. British politicians were well aware of what it would mean if Imperial Germany crushed France and retained Belgium, Germany would now be a hegemon on the continent and was sure to threaten Britain in a geopolitical way that wouldn't have been possible before. The restoration of the balance of power on the continent, however, while a very realistic geopolitical goal, was hardly the sort of thing that would set hearts aflame. And thus, this particular goal of the achieving of the balance of power or a restoration of the balance of power, was couched in more idealistic and liberal terms. The slogans went up of a defense of international law, a defense of the neutrality and the rights of small nations like Belgium. This was a way of rephrasing, uh, though more idealistically, the concept of restoring a balance of power, 
a small nation like Belgium across the English Channel represented security for Britain. If those territories instead were under the control of a great and aggressive power like Imperial Germany, this would represent a threat. Britain also not only pursued this long-standing diplomatic goal of ensuring a balance of power on the continent, Great Britain had functioned as a balancer of the balance of power in centuries previous, it also pursued another traditional strategy of British politics. The aim was to not only restore the European balance of power, but perhaps also gain colonies or an aggrandizement of imperial territory on the peripheries of this conflict as well, a traditional long-standing aim. We've mentioned already in a previous lecture Italy's pursuit of its war aims. These had been defined by its policy of sacred egoism that kept it out of the war at first, and then the Secret Treaty of London of 1915 had outlined Italy's demands for territory at the expense of Austria-Hungary along the Adriatic and ambitious expanded colonial holdings in Asia Minor as well. Very clearly, the forces of imperialism that had reigned in the latter part of the 19th century were alive and well. Let's turn now to an examination of the goals of the central powers by contrast. As Germany increasingly dominated the unequal partnership of the central powers, as it uh, increasingly was the dominant uh, uh, in the pair uh, of Germany and Austria-Hungary, its war aims took priority. The war aims of Austria-Hungary, by contrast, were at times quite vague, contradictory, and increasingly, they became more and more basic, simply surviving as a state. This became increasingly the overriding goal. Now, certainly, Austria-Hungary had entered the war with the determination to settle accounts with Serbia. Serbia was to be reduced in power, And in terms of public relations, it was to be demonstrated by Austro-Hungarian victory that Austria-Hungary as an empire, as a state, as as a Habsburg dynasty, was certainly still a going concern. But beyond this, things became very problematic. Did Austria-Hungary want more territory? Did it want, for instance, to include or annex or occupy Serbia itself and, and incorporate it into its empire? On the contrary, annexations or occupations and enlargement of imperial territory, in fact, were intensely problematic because including more people with more ethnic diversity in what already was a a tremendously complex and diverse empire of 12 major ethnic groups would simply complicate matters further and perhaps make the empire finally unworkable politically. In particular, in the Austro-Hungarian partnership, the Hungarians, as a ruling elite, in particular resisted any addition of other peoples, in particular Slavic peoples, to an expanded empire, as they felt that this would only dilute their own share of power and would endanger the empire as a whole. If Austria-Hungary's war aims thus were ambiguous and uncertain, an increasingly basic reduced to just surviving in some fashion, Germany's war aims were quite expansive. Germany's war aims included significant gains in Western and Eastern Europe, and increasingly questions turned on how expansive, just how large should these gains be. Uh, In particular, historians have spent a lot of time debating ever since the Fisher debate of the 1960s that we had outlined in an earlier lecture about the causes 
of the First World War, just how extensive those war aims were. Historians have focused their debate on a document, the so-called September Program of 1914, which was outlined by Chancellor Beethmann Hallweg of Germany, which set out initial war aims. And these essentially dealt with security and expanded borders for Germany in the West and in the East. Now, historians have spent a lot of time debating precisely whether this was intended as a a thought experiment of what might be possible or whether these were minimal demands, which would later grow, or whether this was an attempt to strike a compromise between different political factions. Ultimately, however, German war aims were elaborated and in later years grew in size and scope. In Eastern Europe, Poland was to come under German control with a border strip that was to be carved from this territory to give Germany strategic security as a buffer zone in essence. Uh, this, to many historians, struck a very ominous note because that border strip was to be emptied of its Polish and Jewish populations who were to be expelled in order to provide uh, an empty area for German settlement and ethnic redrawing of borders. Uh, in some sense, this was a, one could say, a beginning of an extremely tragic trend in the 20th century of the wholesale movement and expulsion of peoples. Russia itself was to be politically weakened and territorially pushed back in Eastern Europe, maybe even pushed back out of Eastern Europe. The annexationist plans of the most rabid German nationalists also called for control over the Baltic countries that belonged to the Tsarist Empire at this point, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. The latter two had ruling classes that were ethnically German, and thus it was hoped might more readily come under German control. In Western Europe, nationalist annexationists demanded a whole shopping list of territories. Luxembourg, territory in Belgium, northern France, industrial areas, coal mines, all of which it was announced was necessary strategically. In some cases, some of these annexations were already thinking about the next war. An important concept in German war aims, as they were articulated, as they were debated and thought about, was the notion of constructing a unit called Mitteleuropa, or Central Europe, around Germany. Mitteleuropa, or Central Europe, would be, in essence, a continental economic union dominated economically and politically by a powerful Germany at its center. Now, there are those commentators with a wicked sense of humor who like to suggest that the European Union today could be described in very similar terms. But it's obvious that Prussian militarism gave a very distinctive flavor to this particular plan for German domination of Europe. The British naval blockade of Germany that was starting to bite and to threaten to strangle Germany's modern economy uh, uh, in strategic terms, that we'll talk more about in a later lecture, gave added appeal to the notion of Germany becoming the center of a free trade area, an integrated economic area that would allow it to be self-sufficient. The war aims of some German nationalists and some military figures went beyond this as well, to include expanded colonial gains as well. Gains in Africa, where it was suggested that, for the purposes of symmetry perhaps, one could establish a Middle Africa, a Central Africa under German control as a counterpart to the domination of the European continent too. In some sense, the war aims were seen as a chance to make up for the emissions of the pre-war years 
the way in which Germany had been left out of the scramble of colonies might now be made good by uh, energetic policy in the present. The Fisher debate among historians from the 1960s uh, that we described in an earlier lecture was in part so explosive, in part so uh, prone to great passions on the part of those who were engaged in the debate, in part because Fisher suggested that there were long-range continuities revealed in German war aims. Fritz Fischer had argued that there was a continuity of German war aims from World War I to World War II. He argued that there were suggestive linkages between the aims of World War I to those later espoused by the radical racist Nazis. And this was very clearly a significant historical assertion. However, within the German government itself at the time, it was clear that these debates that took place over war aims were just that. They were debates. There was no one monolithic opinion. In fact, the German government itself worried that far too open discussion of war aims, and especially the extremist war aims of ultranationalists, might very well represent a social danger. The presenting of Germany as fighting a war no longer of defense, but of expansive territorial gains, might very well start to break down the Burgfrieden, the, the internal truce that had played such an important role in cementing German determination back in 1914. And attempts were made in the first years of the war to silence or even to censor debate over war aims. A crucial dynamic that we'll be examining later in the course as well is how war aims could evolve and change. One example of this was the way in which the British and the French, in part to encourage their Russian ally who had experienced such setbacks in the first years of the war, uh, the British and the French agreed in March of 1915 to Russian demands for Constantinople and the Dardanelles. And especially in the case of traditional British diplomacy, this represented really an apocal shift, a, a truly profound change in traditional diplomatic patterns and conventions. The British as a sea power had long resisted any such control of the Dardanelles. And now, under the pressure of war, under the pressure of the demands of the moment, changed this longstanding tradition. Another example of how the pressure of war itself might change war aims came with uh, the Central Powers and the question of what future lay ahead for Poland. Germany and Austria-Hungary could not decide among themselves readily on this question. Uh, the Germans already were articulating the notion of a German-controlled Poland. Austria-Hungary suggested that uh, since they already had Poles, they might very well be able to incorporate more of them into a new unit within the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire. Uh, at the same time, there were conservatives, uh, especially in Germany, who worried that Poland should simply not be incorporated into an expanded German empire and thus dilute the purity or the homogeneity of the German imperial population, but instead should simply given, be given back to Russia wholesale in order to not even have to deal with this problem of multi-ethnic populations. Under the pressure of war, however, a new plan was put into action. Some German policymakers would urge that Poles could be won for the side of uh, the central powers to fight as allies or subordinates, something that we'll explore in a moment, a little bit further. And then finally, in a fascinating and perverse process, 
one could see how some German annexationists, even as the war continued and in some cases uh, recognizably started to turn against Germany, some German annexationists would actually increase their demands rather than scaling them back because they argued that precisely the fact that the war was not going well or was not being won conclusively proved the need for larger gains once the war was brought to a successful conclusion. Almost by an internal logic that had little to do with rationality anymore, war aims could grow more expansive precisely as the passions of war increased. Let's move to a consideration of occupations as these figured often among war aims. In general, occupations of enemy territory increasingly brought home total war as a lived reality to civilian populations. In occupation, civilians were exposed to mistreatment, deportation, forced labor, atrocities, and other trends that would intensify in the next total war, World War II. At the same time, in longer occupations, complex forms of social interaction or coexistence could also grow up between occupiers and occupied, in some cases including what later was called collaboration. We'll start with the brief Russian occupations of territory of the Central Powers. The brief Russian occupation of East Prussia in 1914 to 1915 traumatized the population of Germany and was marked by some sporadic brutalities. The Russian occupation of the territory of Galicia, owned by the Austro-Hungarian Empire from 1914 to 1915, actually saw pogroms against Jews and the deportations of civilians as Russian authorities uh, pursued larger plans for, after the war, incorporating this area into the Russian Empire. In both of these cases, as Russian forces withdrew, scorched earth policies in retreat would take a a further toll. A a truly uh, classic case of occupation came in occupied Belgium under German control. The initial invasion of Belgium was marked by German atrocities that we have mentioned in earlier lecture. The fear of these events and later brutality and harshness of occupation led some 800,000 Belgians to flee their homeland and to live for the rest of the war as refugees or displaced persons in France Britain, or Holland. The new measures, uh, some of them very harsh, that the occupiers took started with the necessity of cordoning off the area so that such escape no longer became possible. An electrified fence was set up, which in uncanny ways almost anticipates the Berlin Wall uh, later in the century. This electrified border represented current of 2,000 volts surging across wires on the border between Belgium and Holland, and more than 2,000 people died trying to cross it out of desperation in the course of the war. Economic exploitation through requisitions of material and forced labor of Belgians was also intense. German attempts to manipulate and to divide the society by splitting into Flemish or Wallonian segments of Belgian society, breaking along language lines, failed. Occupied France represented another area of occupation in the West. German atrocities there had also taken place at the start of the invasion of 1914 and had established a pattern of brutality. Ten French departments, as these regions were called, fell under German control. Under an occupation that was similar to that of Belgium in terms of its intensity and exploitation, the French under German occupation suffered what one might call a double agony 
foreign rule and isolation from their own home country, of which they couldn't receive news or communicate with readily. Eastern Europe, under the Central Powers, was also an important area of military occupation. Poles, living under three empires at the start of the war, Austria, Hungary, Germany, and Russia, found themselves, at the start of the war, forced to fight on opposite sides. And consider the agony of thinking that one's ethnic cousins might very well be across the front lines shooting at one another. It's estimated that one and a half million Poles served in all the different armies of Eastern Europe. The conquest of Poland had been accompanied by the destruction of towns and civilian centers of Kalisz and Częstochowa. Poland, under occupation, had been divided into two governments, one under the Germans, the other under the Austro-Hungarians, who finally, at long last, agreed, as part of a plan to exploit Poland's manpower, to establish a Polish kingdom in November of 1916. The German command, in particular Ludendorff, hoped to be able to muster a Polish army to fight for the central powers, but the result was disappointing. Polish political leaders who were being invited uh, by the Germans to fight against Russia were themselves divided on which side to favor in the war, much depended on who they thought would win. A socialist leader, later leader of Poland itself, after it regained its independence, Joseph Piłsudski, at first cooperated with the Austro-Hungarians in creating Polish legions. But once it was clear that the Germans aimed to subordinate them to their control, he resisted and was imprisoned by the Germans in 1917. A representative of a different political faction took a different view. Roman Dmowski, the leader of the National Democratic Party, a nationalist and more ethnically based group, favored the Western allies, and with the famous pianist Ignacy Paderewski, promoted the Polish cause in the West and won sympathy for Polish independence. In the territory of the Baltic countries and Belarus, a German military colony called Oberost was established. In this strange military utopia, ambitions for control of ethnic populations and cultural and ethnic manipulation took on vast proportions. German views of Eastern Europe were conditioned by and changed as a result of these experiences. German soldiers saw just how devastated the region was by scorched earth policy, disease, They were often disoriented by the ethnic variety of these regions and the disorganization and backwardness, as they saw it, of this region, which they often called by the word unkultur, which scarcely needs translation, an absence of culture. These areas, some German planners hoped, could be redeemed by a German cultural mission of bringing civilization. The flip side of this allegedly generous cultural cultivation were harsh policies of economic control and requisition that ultimately tended to alienate the native populations under foreign rule. The Central Powers also occupied most of Romania in the winter of 1916, after Romania had ill-advisedly entered the First World War with with, uh, splendidly bad timing, and Romania became a German economic colony, yielding food and oil to the war effort of the Central Powers. Serbian civilians, for their part, also suffered tremendously in the successive invasions by the Central Powers, and the country once conquered was divided into Bulgarian and Austro-Hungarian zones, and armed resistance by guerrilla groups of determined Serbian fighters was seen there in this region as well. We'd like to conclude by surveying um, a, in many ways, more positive part of the record of life under military occupation. And we mean here in particular international relief efforts 
that aimed to aid those civilians who were living under the rigors of military occupation and economic exploitation. International efforts focused, first of all, from neutral powers uh, to bring relief and food to Belgium. Poor little Belgium, brave little Belgium as it was called, a victim of the start of the First World War, had mustered tremendous sympathy as a result of its suffering. And now a volunteer effort was uh, underway to aid the Belgian civilian populations under German military occupation. This, of course, also raised very serious political and perhaps even ethical issues. If outside food aid was to flow into Belgium at a time when the Germans were exploiting Belgium economically, wouldn't this indirectly, given the realities of total war and its all-encompassing nature, indirectly help the German war effort? The result was an attempt to very carefully calibrate international aid and to be scrupulously neutral in its disbursement and very careful and sensitive diplomatically in allowing aid to flow into these ravaged areas. The right man for the job was an American engineer who had trained at Stanford, who was perhaps the ultimate embodiment at this time of an American can-do attitude. He was a American engineer of great managerial talents, Herbert Hoover, who later had an an unfortunate career as America's president uh, at a time of, of economic crisis during the Great Depression, But Herbert Hoover at this time was recognized for his managerial talents and put in charge of coordinating the so-called Commission for the Relief in Belgium, the CRB. This organization with food aid aimed to feed 10 million people in Belgium. These and other efforts during the course of the war brought to poor little Belgium more than 3 million tons of food aid. And while it didn't certainly obviate all hunger, it clearly made the difference in the margin of survival to a great many people. War-torn areas in Eastern Europe, by contrast, were much harder to bring assistance to, given their geographic remove, but efforts uh, of the sort that had been pioneered in Belgium were expanded there as well at the end of the war by the American Relief Administration under Hoover II. We've seen in this lecture some of the human consequences of war aims as well as the phenomenon of military occupation we'll be turning to the question of the human dimension of soldier suffering, whether as victims on the battlefield, whether as prisoners of war, in our next lecture. These lectures are part of the Great Courses series. They are produced by The Teaching Company. These lectures are titled, World War I, The Great War, Part 2. Lecture 13, Soldiers as Victims. In this lecture, on the subject of dimensions of violence and captivity, we'll be addressing the exact opposite uh, reality of all of that exalted rhetoric and heroic images with which the war began, the expectations of of heroism, of of violence that was limited to the battlefield and ultimately would bring glory. Instead, in today's lecture, we'll be examining some of the outlines of the realities, the lived realities of soldiers in their identity as victims. 
In this lecture, we'll seek to grasp the sheer scale of the carnage and the violence of this industrial war wrought on the bodies of the soldiers themselves. We'll discuss the nature of wounds and death. We'll discuss military medicine, the attempts that grew out of the searing experience and the damage of the First World War upon soldiers' bodies to restore the shattered lives of invalids through prosthetics, the slowly dawning recognition of the psychological phenomenon of shell shock, We'll examine how soldiers themselves were affected by the experience of this sort of damage. We'll see how disillusioned soldiers increasingly felt themselves to be expendable, trapped in a predicament of dehumanization. We'll pass then in the second part of our lecture to discuss another situation of helplessness on the part of ordinary soldiers, those occasions on which soldiers became prisoners of war. We'll discuss capture, the experience itself, with its uncertainties, its fears, and the shame that accompanied it. This was an experience that was shared by many soldiers. It's estimated that some 8.5 million soldiers on all sides became prisoners of war. We'll discuss their experience in the camps, as well as attempts through the Red Cross and other international agreements to improve their conditions. Let's begin first by trying to understand or outline the sheer scale of the carnage itself. The estimates that we have, and they're they're still admittedly rough, suggest that about half of all of the soldiers who fought in the war were either killed or wounded in the process. So the experience of being subject to this violence was most definitely a common and shared one. In fact, at the time, one spoke of a lost generation. We might expand this phrase, the lost generation, which applied to uh, the, the, the demographic scooping up of so many young men uh, uh, who had idealistically gone off to the battlefields, we might expand this to talk about lost generations in the plural, to apply also not just to those who were killed, but also those who survived, but were in some sense shattered and, and changed and altered by the experience itself. In fact, This brings us to a renewed underlining of one of the main themes of our course, the totality of the First World War as an instance, the first modern instance of total war. In such a total war, which inevitably blurred the lines between who was a soldier and who was a civilian on the home front, nonetheless participating in the war itself, we are reminded by historians that we need to think of soldiers really in some sense as civilians in uniform. The term comes from the French historian Stéphane Audouin Rousseau and Annette Becker, and it's especially apt to recall that these civilians who had been put into uniform, many of them, who had not been professional soldiers but were mustered into the mass armies of the Great War, could be both perpetrators of violence, killers, as well as the victims of violence and subject to it themselves. It's tremendously difficult for us to even wrap our minds around the statistics that we have, the numbers that we are provided with the, uh, of the deaths that are involved in the First World War. It's estimated that somewhere between 9 to 10 million soldiers were killed in the conflict. How does one begin to understand or to take in the reality of 9 to 10 million deaths? And in part, this was one of the features that made the experience even more searing. Mass death on this sort of scale 
as it became seemingly normal, as it became part of a feature of this conflict itself, made the figures who are counted in these millions of mortality figures even more anonymous. Another feature that added to that anonymity was the disappearance of the bodies of so many of the soldiers in the trench landscape or the battlefields of the Great War. It's estimated that nearly half of all of the bodies of the dead of the war were never found or identified, but instead thrown into mass graves. And this is perhaps one way that we can start to uh, uh, allow to penetrate into our own consciousness the notion of just what these astronomical figures of deaths involve. When in orderly rows one has casualty figures for battles or for the war itself, with one row stating those who died, another row stating those who were wounded, uh, all under the uh, category of casualties, there's often another figure, which is the missing. We need to stop for a moment to think of what missing in this context means. Missing most often simply meant physically obliterated beyond the ability to be identified or honored as a victim of the war. Now, the losses themselves were simply enormous, staggering. And this was part of a reality that those who participated in the First World War needed to start to take aboard. Uh, they needed somehow to come to terms with this as best they could. And one of the major themes of our course is this constant set of shocks of the new. And it was this reality of mass death that was among the novelties that contemporaries had to cope with. The losses were enormous, uh, just to give some statistics that, that allow us to assimilate this reality, uh, think of the nation of Serbia, which had uh, borne the brunt of so much fighting on the Eastern Front. It's estimated in rough statistics that Serbia lost perhaps 37% of its soldiers. It's estimated that France, which took the brunt of the first fighting on the Western Front, uh, that France lost some 16% of its soldiers. And these Casualties could be tremendously concentrated uh, within certain groups, especially the officers who took it upon themselves to lead those first, as it turns out, disastrous charges across no man's land. In the French infantry, for example, it's estimated that one-third of all the officers were killed and didn't survive the war. At the same time, we need to keep in mind that casualty figures include not only those who were killed or died outright on the battlefield, but also those who were wounded, those who struggled with the consequences of the damage done to their bodies as a result of the violence on the battlefield. We could say a few words about the phenomenon of wounds in the First World War because, in some sense, uh, military medicine changed the equation. It's estimated that about 85% of all of the wounds suffered in the First World War came not from bayonets or from bullets, from snipers shooting from afar with rifles, uh, but rather it's estimated that 85% of wounds came from exploding shells, exploding shells. Here we see the tremendous importance of artillery and of heavy munitions in making this an industrial a battle or war of materiel. The result of the sorts of wounds that were torn into human bodies by exploding shells were jagged wounds. And in particular, in the trenches, 
wounds where uh, dirt and mud and fragments of the battlefield itself got mixed into the wounds, and thus the rate of infections due to this dirt and mud was extraordinarily high. The shell wounds also tended to cause uh, damage that was especially extensive to bones and to muscle. This was anything but the sort of clean wound uh, and heroic death that had been so celebrated uh, at the start of the war in idealized images of chivalry and the adventure that lay ahead. And particular theaters of the war could see distinctive patterns of wounds as well. Uh, To give just but one example, which is quite compelling, uh, in the war in the Alps between the Austro-Hungarian forces and the Italian forces that we had described in an earlier lecture, uh, wounds took on a distinctive significance as well. Because in that rocky landscape, uh, shrapnel or uh, bullets banging off against hillsides or against rocks themselves could produce even more shrapnel in the form of stone that would tear apart soldiers' bodies even further, giving a distinctive uh, experience to that theater of the conflict. In the trenches, as we'd already mentioned in outlining the the life and death patterns of trench warfare, uh, new diseases or diseases particular, maladies particular to this theater of the war and this landscape of the trenches also took hold. Trench foot was the name given to a particular form of frostbite that not surprisingly came from standing for hours or days on end in soaked trenches with water at the bottom uh, in very wet conditions. Soldiers also spoke of trench fever, a mysterious malady that that uh, uh, was habitual to those who spent longer time in the trenches, which, as careful scientific investigation showed, uh, was actually a form of typhus that was carried by the lice that were epidemic in soldiers' uniforms and in the trenches themselves. We need to add to this list of wounds uh, also uh, another category which speaks to something of the desperation and the horror of this sort of war itself. Those were self-inflicted wounds, ones that soldiers had deliberately wrought upon their own bodies. And those self-inflicted wounds were a sign of desperation on the part of men who simply felt the imperative of getting away from the front and not being subjected to this mind-numbing violence of the sort that we've been describing. Uh, This sort of self-inflicted wound could include, and human ingenuity being what it was, there were many forms, but it could include uh, willingly contracting frostbite on the Eastern Front, that's to say exposing one's limbs to the, uh, the, the severity of winter there in order to become incapacitated. Uh, it could include shooting oneself, in quotation marks, accidentally in order to be invalided out. Uh, there were also soldiers who injected themselves with various kind of toxins uh, in order to produce undiagnosable diseases that would have them invalided away from the battlefield as well. A particular horrific form of wound, and one that was quite new in this sense to military medicine, were the consequences of gas poisoning. And we'll speak later in a lecture about technology of total war, about the gas warfare itself. Suffice it to say here that gas poisoning, which uh, affected uh, an estimated 1.3 million men, had not only immediate consequences of destroyed respiratory systems or difficulty seeing, but also consequences that lasted for decades afterwards. 
And this is very suggestive of the difficulty that we have in in pinning down exact statistics as to the damage of the First World War, because men who would cough afterwards for decades uh, and uh, uh, into old age experienced the damage that gas warfare would wrought, um, even though they'd remained alive, in some sense continued to be victims of the First World War. Uh, and in addition to this was the psychological terror experienced by those who were gassed, who felt that they were being uh, choked alive uh, by this new form of warfare. We need to discuss paradoxically the enormous advances that were made in military medicine in this dreadful context of such enormous violence and new forms of violence as well. Because in the First World War, military medicine not only made tremendous strides uh, in terms of uh, a learning curve and new technologies and new methods, but also in comparison to earlier warfare, was able to truly deploy uh, for the purposes of saving lives and caring for the wounded, some of the advances of medicine that had been made in the course of the 19th century and the early 20th century. But first, it was necessary to remove the soldiers who had been damaged on the battlefield to the point where they could be carried, uh, cared for. Brave stretcher bearers, this was a particular task in the trenches, would move up into the battlefield or out into no man's land and would carry the wounded away back away from the trench lines to special new medical installations that were called casualty clearing stations immediately behind the front lines. And there, a process of triage would be undertaken. Soldiers would be examined to see who might still be saved or who, on the contrary, was fated uh, to expire there on the spot. And those who could be bound up or could be helped on the spot were helped there. And then... Also, in those casualty clearing stations, 10% of the wounded who needed immediate surgery and couldn't be moved would be operated on. Others would be evacuated further back through motorized ambulances and ambulance trains. And one needs here just to keep in mind uh, the pictures that are vivid to us of, of what the trench landscape looked like and the rutted roads that led up to the trenches themselves. The jolting of the ambulances must have been horrific. And I'll I'll always recall a a picture that had much to do with my initial interest personally in in the First World War, a a photograph I saw as a child of soldiers being loaded onto military ambulances, um, essentially stacked one on top of the other uh, in their stretchers. And, And it seemed to me inconceivable that human beings in such tight spaces could be turned into, in other words, dehumanized individuals who now were simply the object of earlier violence and now of medical care. And and some of the the pathos of that image really does stay with one over the years. At the same time, and this is a, a tremendous paradox, even in the context of this enormous destruction, the very experience, the very learning of how to deal with these uh this destruction and this scale produced tremendous advances in wartime medicine. These advances included improved antiseptic care, dealing with the infections or the threat of infection that we'd mentioned earlier, included blood transfusions, improvements in anesthetics to dull the pain and to also prepare for far more extensive medical surgery than could have been possible without anesthetics. Also, extensive amputations to save lives that would not have been possible under earlier medical medicine the state of the art. At the same time, volunteer female nurses 
gained enormous recognition as important actors in this entire scene of military medicine due to their bravery and their tremendous utility. It's not surprising that in this context of military medicine, uh, it was not only um, desirable, but indeed natural that attention would focus not just on saving those who were wounded, but also preventing epidemics, preventing infections. And thus in all armies, hygiene took on a nearly obsessive concern. This included uh, aspects of the soldier's life that became quite ordinary, uh, delousing in special military baths, vaccinations against mass epidemics among the troops, and included phenomena like medically supervised prostitution for soldiers in the armies where even this process itself was under close supervision by medical experts so that venereal disease wouldn't spread as an epidemic through the armies, something that generals were very concerned about. Paradoxically, and this was a morally very difficult question for doctors, at the same time, the aim of much of this military medicine was not only to save lives, but to put some of those same wounded men back into the battlefield and back into the trenches. One of the especially poignant advances that came with this form of military medicine came in prosthetics. That's to say the creating of artificial limbs or artificial body parts in order to replace that which had been lost on the battlefield. These artificial limbs included fake noses, fake ears. They included, for those who had mutilated faces, face masks of rubber or of wax. Um, And over time, these grew more sophisticated, uh, but it was part of the complexion of the war uh, to see people uh, whose faces essentially had been replaced as a result of the violence they had suffered. Cosmetic surgery saw tremendous advances given the new urgency in this context of war. Now, just to state the obvious, it's clear that even such measures that sought to uh, make good some of the damage could ultimately never restore normalcy to those who had been mutilated in the war itself. And it's a, a poignant anecdote to note that there certainly were soldiers whose faces or bodies had been left mutilated by the war Uh, who lived out the rest of their lives, even decades after the war itself, hidden away in special wards of hospitals, uh, precisely because they were so sensitive to the horrified reactions that their destroyed visages would evoke among ordinary civilians. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, many of the disabled, many of the mutilated did go out into society, both during the war and afterwards. And the, the figure of the mutilated, devastated veteran became ubiquitous in European societies for much of the 20th century. Uh, This included later the mutilated veterans of the Second World War, and to see them in society was a a visible witness, a reminder of the war and a reproach of the war's cruelty. These generations are fading away in Europe today. One, One might ask oneself how one keeps alive then the memory of the destructiveness of the war. The self-image of soldiers was also affected, crucially, by this experience and by seeing how little their lives meant in practice on the battlefield, determined as it was by industrial power and sheer firepower. The realities of combat, death, and wounds that we've just been discussing contributed mightily to a growing disillusionment among soldiers. Soldiers on all sides increasingly saw themselves as expendable, This was reflected in their bitter language, their uh, eschewing of high terms of of honor and glory, 
and in the names that they gave for themselves. Uh, the French soldiers called themselves paus, that's to say the shaggy ones, referring to their, their state of uncleanliness and, and, and uh, degradation. German soldiers, in an evocative phrase, sometimes called themselves front swine, meaning essentially dehumanized uh, animals who were sent to the slaughter. And the British, for their part, uh, along with other more bitter names, called themselves Tommy Atkins. And this was simply the name, allegedly, of, of the ordinary British soldier, uh, an anybody, uh, um, someone who, who was anonymous by his very nature. All of this tended to accent their replaceability, their anonymity. There was a further category of damage that could be done by the war itself, which was not physical, but nonetheless very, very real. And this was the phenomenon of shell shock. Historians estimate that nearly half of all surviving soldiers experienced psychological traumas as a result of their participation in the war. And one can well imagine here as well why it's so difficult to quantify this. Some of this could be eventually worn down over time and might fade. Other soldiers had nightmares that stayed with them for the rest of their lives. The new recognition, and this is another example of the shock of the new, a new rec- newly recognized psychological condition was called shell shock in 1915. But it was experienced as a malady before it was understood what caused it. It wasn't understood for a considerable time. There was a learning curve here as well for, for med- medical experts to understand what was going on here. At first, as the very name shell shock suggested, doctors thought that this was a physical malady, that soldiers were psychologically affected by uh, the impact of a shell blowing up nearby, the, a concussion to the brain perhaps, uh, causing this uh, psychological change. As it was understood over time, this was in fact a psychological outcome of prolonged stress. And shell shock could leave even apparently physically healthy and often very motivated and patriotic soldiers reduced to conditions of mental collapse. Even very strong soldiers who had been committed to the cause might break down crying for no reason. Uh, They might be reduced to a state of trembling or unable to hear the orders that their officers gave them. Some soldiers were reduced to fits of screaming or of convulsions. Some soldiers experienced amnesia, didn't know who they were, how they'd gotten where they were, or constant insomnia and sleeplessness. The learning curve and understanding this disease was marked by tragedy, because at first, military leaders and military medical experts had a suspicion that such soldiers were malingering, or cowardly. And there were tragic instances of soldiers who suffered from this disease being executed in the first half of the war, especially precisely because it was suspected that they were simply shirking their duty. The first treatments that were put in train were also correspondingly brutal because it was assumed that this was a problem simply of the will, that someone needed to snap out of it in order to become once again fit to fight. Some doctors uh, prescribed shock therapy or solitary confinement in order to treat this disease. Uh, There was also a certain stigma that attached to shell shock as a diagnosis because it was sometimes called hysteria, which in the 19th century had been understood as a supposedly typically female illness. And what this suggested in, in the gendered terms of the day was that these men had lost their manhood. They'd somehow become denatured. 
less inhumanely, hypnosis and psychotherapy were also used. Medical science has since understood that shell shock was not a physical illness or a failure of the will, but a psychological phenomenon due to the longer stress, uh, longer duration of stress on the battlefield. And today it's referred to as post-traumatic stress disorder. This shell shock could leave a long-lasting impact. Even outside of danger, even years afterwards, soldiers could experience flashbacks or anxiety triggered by sounds or unexpected memories. Numbers of soldiers actually went mad under the impact of bombardments or the horrors that they saw. And one might think that this, in fact, was a rational response to the mad world they saw around them. I'm always left uh, haunted by one anecdote that I'd read about a, a Russian soldier who went mad under the impact of the fighting, who kept repeating again and again, murder is being done in this world. Devils and evil are abroad. Now you ask yourself, was this man mad or was he seeing the reality all too clearly? Murder was being done in the world on a daily basis, on a mass scale in the First World War. Uh, giving a, some indication of, of the, the horrors, approximately 3,000 German soldiers committed suicide in the war, unable to go on. It's been argued, in fact, by literary historians that shell shock became the symbol of the human consequences of the war for poets and writers afterwards. At the same time, what it's fascinating to observe is how many men escaped enduring shell shock and somehow managed psychologically to adjust to the horrors and escape the worst. This was something that needed to be taken aboard by experts. And, and after the war, the psychologist Sigmund Freud would reflect that in his earlier work, where he'd stressed the erotic drives of human nature, he had neglected to explore what one might call a death drive at work in human beings among their other urges. One of has to discuss the prisoners of war. French historians Audouin Rousseau and Becker speak of a camp phenomenon of internment of populations during the First World War that's very important to understand the nature of the war itself. Capture and imprisonment for soldiers brought uncertainty, fear, and shame. Experiences that were shared by an estimated 8.5 million men throughout the war. It's estimated that about 10% of all soldiers mobilized for the war became prisoners of war. Being taken prisoner was not an easy or safe experience. Soldiers who were captured uh, might very well be killed on the spot. Killing of prisoners at the moment of capture or immediately afterwards so as just not to have to deal with them by the enemy forces was, after all, not uncommon. However, there were cases of larger uh, capturing of troops, especially where demoralization played a role. In the Austro-Hungarian army, it, given its multinational nature, some units of Slavic origins facing the Russian front, for instance, um, apparently defected en masse, uh, simply throwing down their weapons and walking over to their ethnically related cousins on the other side. Uh, this was a different case, but the process of being taken prisoner could be a very dangerous one. Ordinary prisoners of war were used as laborers, and sometimes they were used close to the front, actually in violation of international law and conventions used before, but in total war, the rules seemed to be bent. Imprisoned officers, by contrast, were kept in separate camps, reflecting the social hierarchies of the uh, 19th and 20th, early 20th centuries in better conditions. But on both parts, boredom and squalor and degradation could produce what contemporaries themselves and prisoners themselves called barbed wire psychosis, 
uh, going stir-crazy in these conditions. Hunger and disease, rather than a deliberate attempt to destroy physically uh, the soldiers taken prisoner, exacted a toll. It's not entirely clear um, uh, within uh, reasonable ranges what the casualty rate was of soldiers behind barbed wire in the war, in part because all of the combatant countries had uh, a public relations interest, a vested interest in downplaying the numbers of prisoners of war who died in their custody. But one thing is clear. The order of magnitude compared to that of World War II is very different. The contrast of the treatment of prisoners of war in World War I, uh, which could include neglect or uh, fewer food rations or bad conditions, is very different from the genocidal mistreatment of prisoners in World War, I, World War II by the Nazis, for instance. Nonetheless, some historians have compared the two experiences and have advanced the controversial thesis that captivity in World War I, especially in Russia, would later become a model for later institutions of incarceration, including the gulags of the Soviet Union or the concentration camps of Nazi Germany later in the 20th century, sometimes called the century of the camps. But this is an interpretation that's very controversial. It's been challenged forcefully by historians who point to repeated attempts to better the conditions of the soldiers out of humanitarian motives. Just to speak briefly of some of these international agreements, before the war, the Geneva Conventions of 1864 and 1906 and the Hague Rules of Land War of 1899 had sought to regulate the more humane treatment of prisoners of war. But many ambiguities remained, And being a prisoner of war left one during the First World War in a very exposed position, less likely to receive good treatment. Nonetheless, attempts were made again and again during the war itself, even in this time of passions and hatred on both sides, to better the conditions of prisoners of war by initiatives of the International Red Cross, the Vatican, as well as neutral countries. Towards the end of the war, some exchanges of older prisoners of war were arranged by a special agreement in Bern in Switzerland in December of 1917. The restraints that such agreements tried to put on the treatment of prisoners of war would be lost in World War II, the next total war. Now that we've discussed some of the intensity of human suffering and the destructive potential of the war, we need to pass on to discuss those who actually enjoyed this experience of war a disturbing phenomenon of stormtroopers and dictators that we'll discuss in our next lecture. Lecture 14, Stormtroopers and Future Dictators. While in our previous lecture, we discussed some of the aspects of the intensity of human suffering and violence inflicted upon soldiers' bodies and the horrors of those experiences, in this lecture, we encounter another no less disturbing phenomenon, the opposite one, in fact, of the suffering that we've detailed. We'll be discussing people who enjoyed the war too much. From attempts to break the immobility of trench warfare that we've described in earlier lectures, out of that challenge of, of how to start achieving the breakthrough that had been longed for so much, there arose a new model of soldier, a new concept of what the soldier should be and should do. And such soldiers were seen on all sides with a name that stuck to them as the one that the Germans used, stormtroopers. 
Stormtroopers were particular, highly motivated soldiers who were deployed on all sides in this conflict, who used shock tactics that were new and had been developed by them, and stealthy raids across no man's land to the opposite trenches to achieve surprise against the enemy. In the process, many of these soldiers felt themselves to be inventing or reinventing the possibility of individual heroism that other soldiers had lost in the trenches. Some styled themselves new princes of the trenches, and they grew habituated to the trench landscape and the trench existence with all of its horrors to a degree that's highly disturbing. We also will examine in this lecture the records of some other men who enjoyed the war too much, the future dictators Benito Mussolini and Adolf Hitler, who were not stormtroopers themselves but shared some of this enjoyment of the conflict. We'll investigate how their experiences helped to start to shape their later careers of destruction. On all sides, even during the horrors of the static trench warfare itself, there emerged soldiers who simply found themselves not so much disturbed by this kind of warfare, but rather enjoying it and growing used to it. We might ask ourselves how such soldiers would readjust to a peacetime existence. Uh, the answer is not easily, if at all. In fact, having come of age in the trenches or come of age on the battlefield, many of these soldiers would seek to replicate their experiences in the world of politics or in society after the war. Soldiers were on occasion, uh, who on, on occasion felt themselves liking this experience, would engage in what others considered foolhardy raids across the trenches. And in the case of British soldiers, it was often complained that junior officers sought to outdo one another in such raids, such adventuring. But the model of this sort of enjoying of the adventure of trench warfare was first institutionalized in a really systematic way by the Germans under the name of stormtroopers. This type of assault fighter was developed really as a way of dealing with that stalemate and immobility of trench warfare and to achieve breakthrough using new shock tactics. And even though all major competence in the war ended up with units or branches of fighters of this variety, at first this was a German innovation in a formal sense. We use in English the word stormtrooper. The Germans called them Sturmtruppen, literally stormtroops, or Stoßtruppen, meaning shock troops. And these were developed from around March of 1915. Military historians are still arguing about precisely where this uh, formal designation and training arises, uh, but it would clearly grow to be of great significance on the Western Front. And indeed, German tactics there took on uh, such excesses that they were adopted also by the Allies who were developing similar notions at the same time themselves. General Ludendorff, who would be reshaping the German war effort once he and Hindenburg came to the high command in 1916, had originally been so taken with the, the notion of this new kind of fighter that he intended originally that German troops should all be reshaped on the model of the stormtroopers. And indeed, he would seek to use them to the utmost, to the extreme, in the spring offensive of 1918, the last gasp, in other words, of the German war effort that we'll be considering uh, in a lecture later in this course in more detail. 
the stormtroopers relied not on the frontal attacks that had proven to be so disastrous at the start of the war, but instead on new and far more flexible tactics of infiltration and mobility. These flexible tactics emphasized commando raids uh, across no man's land, scouting expeditions, um, daring attacks against the enemy's trenches with the specific purpose of capturing prisoners who would be bundled back and brought back to the German lines in order to be interrogated and uh, pumped for information. The tactics also emphasized uh, not just speed, but also lethal hand-to-hand combat. These stormtroops would not seek to overwhelm the enemy in a frontal way, but rather were especially trained to aim for weak spots, or if they were attacking, to push forward regardless of the obstacles that they met by simply moving around strong points, or if they encountered strong opposition, simply getting around it and continuing the attack. The aim of the stormtroopers, thus, in a very real sense, was to change the equation that had settled onto trench warfare from its very beginning of the strength of the defensive. Quite to the contrary, their aim was to regain the speed and the mobility and maneuverability that had been lost in the stalemate and deadlock of trench warfare. And for this very reason, military historians, in particular uh, the historian Keegan, have argued that in some sense the stormtroopers were a more low-tech anticipation of a later trend of World War II, the concept of Blitzkrieg, as it's called in German, or lightning warfare, which sought to use technology, in particular tanks and military aircraft, to break through enemy lines and to achieve speed and surprise and mobility. These were men who were intended to do this at first, but later these tactics would be elaborated using much greater technologies. Nonetheless, the stormtroopers were outfitted with equipment that represented for its time technological advances. Their weaponry included more sophisticated automatic rifles, light machine guns, flamethrowers, grenades, and, in a far less high-tech variety, weapons including daggers, axes, and maces to allow them to deal with hand-to-hand combat uh, with a minimum of noise in the enemy trenches. Um, Indeed, one way one could spot stormtroopers was from distinctive items of their uniform uh, that allowed them to deploy some of these weapons quickly. Hand grenades, for instance, would be worn in sling pouches for easy use and quick deployment in trench warfare. In the German army, these units were made up of men who were young, under the age of 25. It was also specified that they should be unmarried so that their a sense of familial obligation wouldn't interfere with with the daring do that was expected of them. They were to have good sports records, and in addition to all of this, some undefinable quality of aggression and a certain enjoyment of the war itself. These stormtrooper units would then not simply be stationed in the trenches and and left there for uh, periods of time, but rather would be deployed selectively for particular purposes, wherever they were most necessary in the front. And for this reason, the stormtrooper units who would be brought up by truck for special assaults that had been planned in advance would sometimes be called flying units, precisely because uh, as flying units or flying squads, they would be moved around as was necessary for strategic uh, purposes in trench warfare. 
These stormtroopers not only had special transportation to bring them to the front, but were also much better equipped and had much better food and provisions than regular troops. It was for reasons such as this that many ordinary soldiers actually quite resented the stormtroopers and saw them as a a very disturbing phenomenon. Another reason why they would often be resented in particular was because their very presence, their very appearance brought up by truck for a a daring nighttime raid uh, against the enemy side could very well destroy some of those informal truces the so-called live-and-let-live arrangements that we talked about in an earlier lecture about the experience of the Western Front, the agreements that had been worked out informally by enemies across the trench lines not to fire on one another, not to engage in attacks, but simply to live-and-let-live. Stormtroopers would break all of this up precisely because their task was to do so, was to decisively uh, break through the enemy lines. The elite status of the stormtroopers was underlined by the different equipment that they were given, as well as personalized, often very idiosyncratic uniforms that they wore to show that they were of an entirely different breed. We've been left with a particular and, in many cases, very eloquent, very disturbing uh, memoirs of the experiences of the stormtroopers by uh, a stormtroop officer by the name of Ernst Jünger, who wrote a memoir of his experiences that became a bestseller immediately after the war and was translated into English as well. Um, He wrote of his experiences in a book uh, evocatively entitled The Storm of Steel. The Storm of Steel, um, still available today as a a searing account of the First World War, um, was very different from such classics as All Quiet on the Western Front because Jünger celebrated the war. He celebrated the aesthetics of violence, and he uh, fairly wrote a hymn to the new model of individual heroism embodied in the stormtrooper and, incidentally, in himself, he believed, as a stormtrooper officer. Jünger argued that the war had done something marvelous and mysterious. It had hardened not all soldiers, but certain men, into men of steel. The battle of materiel, those storms of steel, the, the bombardments, the, the horrors of trench warfare, had created, in essence, a new kind of human being. Jünger's background was fascinating. He himself is a, a really intriguing character. He was born in 1895, and before the First World War, uh, he had actually run off to join the French Foreign Legion. Uh, he might very well have ended up on the other side, uh, but for the fact that his family had him brought back. He had run off in search of adventure, and he soon would have his adventure fix by volunteering for the German army in 1914 as the war broke out. Jünger's service uh, was truly remarkable. He is said to have been wounded 14 times uh, in the course of his fighting on the Western Front. He earned the highest decorations uh, of the war uh, from Germany's government, and afterwards won post-war fame as a conservative nationalist writer, uh, perhaps the conservative nationalist writer uh, of Germany's troubled experiment with democracy after the First World War. Uh, Intriguingly enough, in spite of his glorification of violence and in spite of the popularity of his writings for obvious reasons among the Nazis, Jünger actually looked down on them and saw them as as faintly distasteful um, because of their their crudity, their low social status, um, 
And he tended instead to associate with people much more of his own um, uh, background and aristocratic outlook on life. Uh, he associated with people who actually were involved in the July bomb plot against Hitler of 1944, though he himself was apparently not actively involved in resistance. Uh, he participated in World War II as well, again in the army, stationed in Paris. And uh, closer to our own times, Junger finally died in 1998 at the age of 102. So I'm, I'm not really sure what the lesson of that hard living is, uh, but it certainly was a long and eventful life. This model, this successful model of the stormtrooper soldier uh, was imitated elsewhere. An intriguing example of that imitation came in Italy. In July of 1917, in some of the ferocious fighting that took place that we've described in our earlier lecture on the southern fronts, Italian stormtrooper units were created. And they seem to exult especially in a, in a very special, almost operatic way in this role. Uh, they were given the poetic name the Arditi, the bold ones, the ones who are full of ardor for fighting. And they flaunted their devil-may-care attitude. Now, military historians somewhat spoil their reputation by arguing that they were not nearly as effective uh, as the German models. Uh, nonetheless, um, they too, as was the case in the German stormtroopers, were often resented uh, by other soldiers because of their better provisions uh, and by what was seen as their, their, their cruelty and their love of violence. Stormtroopers as such were celebrated for having regained, it was argued, a model of heroism under dehumanized conditions. And it was Junger who gave them the name Princes of the Trenches, men who felt at home in war. After the war, however, and this almost has sort of a grim inevit inevitability, the glorification of the stormtrooper as a kind of soldier would continue with dark political consequences. The Nazis in particular would actually use the name of the stormtroopers for their own street gangs of paramilitary thugs, calling them the Sturmabteilung, or literally stormtroopers. I want to turn now to discuss two men who were not stormtroopers themselves, but who shared in some of this psychological orientation of enjoying war too much. One of them was, at first, a seemingly ordinary Italian soldier who would go on to be a dictator of Italy, Benito Mussolini. Benito Mussolini had been born in 1883 in poor circumstances in a um, difficult region of Italy, the Romagna. He was named by his father, who was a blacksmith and a socialist, after a famous Mexican revolutionary, Benito Juarez. So Benito Mussolini, in his very name, carried some of the socialist convictions of his family. He was expelled from school uh, for his uh, violent attitude. He apparently stabbed a classmate uh, in addition to other acts of violence. Uh, and he, he led a slacker existence afterwards, going off to Switzerland uh, to work at menial jobs as a migrant laborer. Um, afterwards, he claimed, and given that Mussolini was not very reliable in many of his reminiscences, but he claimed at least, um, though we can be skeptical about this, uh, that while he was in Switzerland, he actually had met the revolutionary Lenin. And uh, one can only imagine what that scene might have been like of, of these two important historical figures meeting in a Swiss cafe. And whether it was true or not, upon returning to Italy, Mussolini now pursued what at first was a little bit more respectable career as a school teacher, but then also increasingly became active in socialist politics as the editor of the socialist newspaper Avanti, Forward. Um, he was obviously carving out a position for himself as a, um, a, a young, ambitious leader of the socialist movement in Italy, uh, and in particular espoused a radical brand of socialism, 
one that didn't emphasize unionism or working for gradual political change, but instead a radical socialism that included his belief that violence was the force that turned the wheels of history, in his phrase. We've already discussed in an earlier lecture when we'd mentioned the growing tensions in Europe before the First World War, the way in which aggression had been celebrated by social Darwinists. And we'd also mentioned the quite distinct case, not related to social Darwinism as such, of how even socialists might subscribe to a gospel of conflict, the notion that social change, really radical social change, could be achieved through an apocalyptic conflict. Mussolini used these ideas in his reaction to the outbreak of the First World War. You'll recall that uh, from our earlier discussions that Italy had stayed out of the First World War initially pursuing sacred egoism, as its politicians called. That's to say, called it. That's to say uh, the, ex- the waiting in the expectation of being able eventually to join the winning side. In October of 1914, however, Mussolini, after a period of wrestling within himself with the question of, of what was to be done, actually broke with the rest of his socialist comrades who condemned the war as a, social, as a capitalist war, one that was contrary to the interests of Italian workers and of socialism. Mussolini argued, by contrast, from October of 1914, that Italy should intervene in the war. The war could be an opportunity for revolution and change. Now, given the party line of the socialists in Italy at the time, this was heresy. And Mussolini had taken a step that led to him being fired as editor of the socialist newspaper Avanti and being expelled from the socialist movement. But he now set up on his own. He had supporters in this regard as he spread the message of Italy needing to enter the war. He was supported by secret funds that were funneled from the French government. As one of the allies that are fighting in the war, the French had a vested interest in trying to encourage a groundswell for Italian involvement on the side of the allies, uh, which is what Mussolini was suggesting, uh, so that Italy might truly participate in this glorious war on the allied side. Uh, Italian industrialists helped him as well uh, with such funding. And in November of 1914, Mussolini, who had just been fired as the editor of the socialist newspaper, founded a new newspaper with a new message, which agitated for Italian entry into the war. Mussolini also mobilized a pressure group uh, called by the name of Fascio, which means a bundle, uh, a a bundle of like-minded people to make propaganda for Italian entry into the war. In 1915, Italy entered the war and Mussolini had his way. Uh, But even this man who was so very eager for Italy's entry into the war uh, himself did not immediately join. Mussolini was actually conscripted into the Italian army in September of 1915. And afterwards, uh, given his usual unreliability, he claimed falsely that he had volunteered for the war in enthusiasm. Mussolini was sent to the Austrian front And from what we know of the fragmentary evidence, he performed his duties without any extraordinary distinction, and by war's end had risen in the ranks a little bit, had reached the rank of sergeant. In February of 1917, however, in a training exercise, Mussolini was wounded when a grenade thrower that he and some others were working on exploded. It killed all the others around him, but this incident afterwards was mythologized by the fascists. Mussolini later claimed that this had been one of the most beautiful experiences of his entire life, nearly being killed by a grenade. 
The fascists afterwards would argue that it was not coincidental that Italy's war effort had gone downhill after Mussolini had been wounded. Nonetheless, discharged from the army in June of 1917 because of his wounds, Mussolini's thoughts turned to dictatorship, to redeem Italian failures, and he had a candidate for dictator himself. He planned a trenchocracy, uh, that's to say a rule by veterans of the Great War, Mussolini would later share in the disappointment that many Italians had over Italy's fortunes in the war, half a million dead, and ultimately disappointed territorial hopes. And this would lead also to the founding of the fascist movement. In March of 1919, Mussolini forged a new political movement in Milan, gathering together bands of veterans. His political movement, powerfully shaped by the experience of war, came to be called fascism. I want to turn now to discuss another seemingly ordinary soldier, this time an ordinary German soldier of Austrian background, Adolf Hitler, and his career in the First World War. Adolf Hitler had been born in Braunau am Inn in the Habsburg Empire, not in Germany, in 1889 to a middle-class family. He was an unremarkable young man, a dreamer, a slacker, who dropped out of high school to study art in Vienna in 1907. Now, we tend at this remove to perhaps romanticize aspects of Viennese cultural life. Uh, we think of the beautiful waltzes, the balls, the avant-garde art of this period. But Vienna had another side as well, and that's the side that Hitler shared in. A bohemian netherworld with darker currents of Viennese life. Antisemitism, populist mass politics, chauvinist pan-German nationalism, and racialist thought, all of which Hitler simply soaked up like a sponge, even as he slipped into uh, a bohemian underworld. To escape military service in the Habsburg army, which he condemned as an ethnic zoo, Hitler moved to Germany. Nonetheless, his reaction to war, when it at last came in August of 1914, was an ecstatic one. War at long last gave Hitler a sense of purpose, and he recalled it afterwards as the greatest time of my life. He participated in the August Madness in 1914 in the city of Munich, where he was at the time, uh, as a struggling artist. Um, In fact, a photographer, years afterwards, on hearing that Hitler had been on that spot celebrating the declaration of war, afterwards was actually able to find his face in a crowd uh, that he had photographed that day. And Hitler, already wearing a ridiculous mustache, nonetheless, as we see in that photograph, had... Uh, a face that was glowing with enthusiasm and with a sense of finally having met his destiny. Hitler, who had avoided military service in the Habsburg army, now volunteered for service in a Bavarian regiment and served for almost the entire war on the Western Front. He claimed afterwards to have participated in that mythic battle experience, the Battle of Langemark that we discussed earlier uh, in an earlier lecture. Uh, That battle at the start of the war in which allegedly young idealistic German students had gone forward in waves after waves uh, to their deaths singing the German national anthem. Hitler's job was the dangerous one of being a dispatch runner. That's to say jumping up out of secure trenches and hustling across the landscape to carry messages uh, given the uh, otherwise unreliable state of communications at the time. And in this dangerous task, he distinguished himself enough to wear uh, to win what was really quite a rare decoration for someone of his lower rank, an Iron Cross first class. Uh, It's a bitter irony that he was recommended for this decoration by a German Jewish officer. 
Hitler, however, did not rise dramatically in the ranks. And what this suggests to many historians is that some of Hitler's own superiors felt that um, his uh, adjustment to trench warfare might have been a little bit too thorough and too spooky in ways. Um, uh, he seems not to have had very close friendships with other soldiers, even as he was enjoying the war. Hitler was then caught in a gas attack near the end of the war at Ypres on October 13th to 14th of 1918, and he was sent to a military hospital in the east of Germany, in Passavalk. While he was there in hospital, he heard the news of Germany's defeat. According to his own testimony, he experienced a mental breakdown and claimed to have had visions at that moment, having gone blind but seeing supernatural visions, which revealed to him that he had a personal calling to restore Germany's greatness. And in words that later would take on a fateful significance, Hitler records in his memoirs that at that moment he decided to become a politician. He nonetheless would retain, even in his future political role, a conviction that had been shaped by the war, that politics, essentially, and war were a continuum, and that the war itself had been an experience that he sought to recreate. He did so in the movement that he shaped, the political movement called Nazism in Germany. Looking ahead a little bit, and we'll talk more about this in later lectures, but after the war itself, after German defeat, Hitler, seemingly aimless, and having grown so accustomed to military life and military service, he remained in the army after the war was over. But then he encountered a political movement that he joined and increasingly reshaped in line with his own ideas. This was a party that came to be called the National Socialist Party, or the Nazis for short. And Hitler would take a leadership role in this party and soon rise to prominence as the leader of that movement as a whole. In the process, Hitler very much admired another political leader, Benito Mussolini, and his fascists. And many aspects of the Nazi party, in fact, were imitations of the fascist movement itself. Like the fascists, the Nazis were very strongly affected by the war experience. As Hitler launched his political career, this obscure man presented himself rhetorically in ways that had everything to do with the experience of the First World War. In his rhetoric, in his speeches, in his whipping up into a frenzy of the followers of the Nazi party, Hitler would often present himself rhetorically as a living representative of all of the unknown Trent soldiers of the First World War. He would argue that just like other ordinary unknown soldiers, he had special knowledge. He had experienced the trench community, that supposedly idealized and perfect form of social organization that had been welded or forged in the trench existence itself. The experience of war, he argued, had given him, as other soldiers, unique insight. In the leadership cult that was quite deliberately cultivated about the person of Hitler by Hitler himself as well as later Nazi propagandists, it was also claimed that the First World War had, in a very decisive way, actually formed Hitler's effectiveness as a leader. Um, it's a commonplace uh, that Hitler obviously had tremendous rhetorical skills and skills at propaganda. And we'll be speaking much more about propaganda in the First World War in a later lecture, but it was claimed that Hitler's unique powers as an orator actually derived from the First World War. It was claimed by some propagandists that uh, 
A mysterious alteration of Hitler's voice, of his vocal cords, had supposedly taken place during the war itself as a result of being gassed in the trenches. And the claim here was obvious, some sort of mystical transmutation, some transformation had taken place during the course of the searing experience of the First World War that determined Hitler's later political successes. And it was alleged gave those vocal cords, that voice, a compelling, almost mystical, supernatural power. Hitler would often claim to be channeling the wartime experience itself as he spoke to the German people and offered them, so he claimed, horizons of glory ahead. Uh, I think in a really compelling formulation, uh, the preeminent biographer of Hitler, uh, the historian Ian Kershaw, concludes uh, in a phrase that I'd like to quote that the First World War made Hitler possible. And we'll be examining in later lectures precisely how some radical movements growing out of the First World War gained momentum, among them the Nazis, as a result of this conflict itself. We've examined in this lecture men and their psychology who came to enjoy the war too much. We'll examine the interaction in our next lecture of the experience of human psychology and the practice of war and a crucial set of novelties, the total war of technology. Lecture 15, The Total War of Technology. In this lecture, we'll have the opportunity to look more closely at the fascinating theme of the role of technology in total war. Um, in line with our one of the themes that we've been weaving through the, the course of the continuous shocks of the new this clearly is one prime example of how novelty would have to be dealt with and assimilated uh, on a steady basis throughout the war. The, the accelerating technological change and its accelerating destructive potential as well. Clearly a tremendously important and dynamic element of the Great War as an industrial war, as total war, was the role that technology would play within it. The character of the First World War was symbolized by the impersonal steel helmets that were mass-produced to replace the glorious plumed uniform caps, the industrially mass-produced machine gun, in turn an instrument of mass death. And in this lecture, we'll also examine the fascinating evolution of tanks as new forms of weaponry that sought to and, sought to and eventually would overcome the immobility of trench warfare, a perennial challenge uh, of the fighting on the Western Front, also, the frightening use of a devastating weapon, poison gas, on the battlefield, submarines at sea, and then also fascinating economic weapons, the use of ersatz or substitute materials synthesized for strategically vital purposes. These examples of remarkably quickly accelerating scientific advance also illustrate a very important point, the yoking of technological progress, those things that we're so proud of in modern life, to the uses of total war. In this industrialized modern war, technology would play an important role as it evolved with startling rapidity, and contemporaries understood this. David Lloyd George is quoted as speaking of the war of the engineers as being a crucial aspect of the entire conflict as a whole. 
This war would be marked by technological races to imitate, if the other side invented it first, a particular technology, to improve upon it quickly, to adopt any innovations that the opposing side might have come up with, in a constant race for the employment of this murderous technology. In a fascinating phenomenon, this dizzying technological change would often be overlaid with reassuring older interpretive frameworks. Now, that sounds very abstract, but one key example that we'll be exploring in our next lecture has to do with the air war, how the fighting of fighter aces in the skies was often depicted in terms of medieval chivalry. Clearly, even modern technology could be shoehorned into older conceptions that gave people at least the sense that something recognizably familiar remained, a phenomenon we'll explore in more detail in other cases as well. Another fascinating dynamic to watch in the course of our discussion is how technology would impose its own dynamics on the war. Technology, very clearly, had played a role in creating the stalemate of the trenches. We've referred already in earlier lectures to the key concept of the primacy of the defensive, the advantages that the defensive side had from the start of the war as those who were defending trenches clearly were in a better position than those who were exposed attacking them. But this wasn't a, a, a universal rule that would apply at all times. Rather, it was the technology that had given the defensive its primacy. By the war's end, and we'll observe this in later lectures as well, technological change now seemed to be shifting the uh, the the supremacy to the offensive side again in a swing of the pendulum. So clearly, technology itself was not setting rules in stone, but instead was part of a dynamic process. And this could also have devastating results for ethical systems. What I mean by that is, as we'll see later, technological imperatives, the imperative to be in there first with the most destructive technology, the fastest, could over time trump traditional moral considerations. It could reconfigure codes of behavior as to what was humane and what was not and what was necessary in warfare. This lecture will consider several archetypal examples of technological change. Some other examples of technological change we'll discuss more elsewhere. For instance, aircraft will be discussed in our next lecture on the air war, and while, we'll, while we will discuss submarine warfare in today's lecture, we'll also address it in more detail later as well. The first not very high-tech, but nonetheless very suggestive role of technology and of mass production uh, took place in changes in the appearance of the soldiers themselves, as steel helmets and drab uniforms became the order of the day. This clearly was probably one of the most emblematic aspects of the war's industrial nature. Earlier glorious plumed uniform caps, such as had been worn by the armies of the 19th century, were now replaced by steel helmets. Soldiers, as a result, now increasingly appeared interchangeable and anonymous, and some of them even spoke of themselves as being merely workers in a huge war machine. But there were compelling reasons for this change, uh, dramatic as it was in aesthetic terms. Some 85% of wounds, as we've already mentioned earlier, had resulted from exploding shells, shrapnel, little fragments of, uh, of shell and explosive. And thus, greater protection was required for the soldiers than the traditional headgear had afforded. 
In particular, the head and the neck needed to be shielded. In the case just of one example of traditional headgear, the German Spikes helmet uh, that's so famous from the start of the war, the, the uh, spike-topped Pickelhaube was the term in German, simply left the head and the neck too exposed. And the Germans, along with the other armies as well, now adopted steel helmets that enclosed this vulnerable part of one's form. In 1915, for instance, the French adopted new helmets that were called Adrian helmets, and these soon became so popular that they were taken up by the Italians and by the Russians and some other Eastern European countries. Uh, These Adrian helmets afforded more protection, though some soldiers complained that they made them look like, uh, like firemen because they bore some resemblance to the design of firemen's helmets. Shortly thereafter, the British came up with their own version of the steel helmet, this was the so-called Brody helmet named after its inventor. Its form, interestingly enough, was modeled on a medieval helmet and, perhaps not accidentally, evoked associations of the age of chivalry. Now, this is a key example of the theme I mentioned just a moment ago of new technology and novelty being understood in older terms with all the reassuring effects that that could have. The United States also adopted the British Brody helmet Uh, and it would be worn uh, for decades afterwards in the United States Armed Forces. From 1916, German forces also moved to a steel helmet. Uh, The German word literally was steel helmet, Stahlhelm, which also resembled 16th century designs worn uh, by uh, soldiers in Europe. Uh, Once again, a a fascinating phenomenon. On both sides, you had soldiers wearing uh, designs that had pedigrees going back to the Middle Ages. In the case of the German Stahlhelm or steel helmet, um, it also had other interesting features that were suggestive of the industrial nature uh, of the war and the challenges of the new trench warfare. Um, when one sees pictures of the German steel helmet, uh, what's remarkable about it is that it also has on either side of the helmet, over the, the temples of the soldier, um, heavy protruding metal lugs um, that are somewhat reminiscent of the bolts in, in Frankenstein's neck uh, from horror movies. Uh, these heavy protruding lugs on either side of the helmet were, on the one hand, intended to give ventilation, but also potentially were supposed to allow for the attachment of additional heavy metal plates over the helmet itself to offer further protection to sentries or to machine gunners. And on occasion, uh, some of the soldiers were even issued with chest plates uh, that provided armor. Um, you saw repeatedly suggestions that soldiers could wear armor of a sort, and this was a, once again another example of that odd return to older forms, in this case of the age of chivalry, uh, that were uh, reassuring to modern sensibilities. At the same time as steel helmets replaced the initial glorious uh, plumage that had been featured in traditional armies, so too the uniforms now changed their form. Uniforms assumed drabber and muddier colors, and in general were plainer and simpler than they had been in the past, quite decisively to attract less attention from snipers or soldiers on the opposing side. This trend uh, was not started by the First World War alone. In fact, it had begun earlier after the Russo-Japanese War, uh, but now it became universal. Uh, Though in some cases, uh, there was reluctance to give up the old uniforms, and in particular, 
Some proportion of the very heavy French casualties at the start of the war can be attributed to the fact that their uniforms, sky blue tunics and bright red pants, uh, formed tremendously useful targets for the opposing side. But perhaps more than any other technological artifact of the First World War, there was one particular weapon that summed up more than any other the reality of this industrial, technological, mass-produced war, and that was the machine gun. The very name itself uh, suggests the mechanized nature of this killing machine, and indeed it was the perfect symbol for the deadliness of the industrialized battlefield. The machine gun itself had been developed far earlier. It had been perfected uh, though many people had worked on the notion of a of a machine gun that uh, would fire automatically without repeated uh, necessary pullings of a trigger, but was automated, it had been perfected by an American inventor, Hiram Maxim, in 1884. Now, traditionalists in the European armies had resisted the introduction of the machine gun. Um, many of them probably felt subconsciously that their their privileging of the cavalry and glorious cavalry charges. Many of the officers have been trained in this most prestigious arm of the military services that the machine gun would simply spell the end of the age of the cavalrymen uh, and would fundamentally transform war as they'd known it. Many traditionalists scorned it as being only fit for use out in the colonies and in imperial warfare for the slaughter of masses of natives, as indeed had been the case, uh, for instance, in the destructive battle of Omdurman in the Sudan in 1898 when a small British force had wiped out a far larger Sudanese army uh, in spite of its ferocious and heroic attacks. The machine gun, moreover, was made a crucial weapon in practice in spite of the conservative resistance of traditional military elites in Europe by the very logic of the war of attrition. Total war itself made the machine gun uh, a weapon that simply made sense in both economic as well as tactical terms. Just to give a, a crucial example of how this phenomenon worked, one might mention that some of the most famous marksmen in the world were the professional uh, military men of the British Army, uh, which at first had been very small before it was expanded in a process that we'll discuss in a later lecture under the pressure of total war. These military professionals were trained marksmen who are famous for being able to shoot 30 rounds a minute. 30 rounds a minute. Now, compare this famed rate of fire with that of the machine gun. A machine gun could deliver an intense rate of fire using belts of bullets that were simply fed into the machine gun, able to fire 600 rounds per minute at ranges of over 1,000 yards. So compare that rate of 30 rounds per minute to the rate of 600 rounds per minute. And just to, to further underline the point, it should be mentioned that the operator of a machine gun didn't even need to be a skilled marksman. Quite to the contrary, a machine gun could simply lay down a devastating field of fire. And all that the machine gunner had to do, barring jams of the, the belts of ammunition that were fed in, was simply to swivel the machine gun on its mount. And in order to lay down this devastating field of fire, all that a machine gunner might have to do is not exercise great skill of aim, but simply to tap the barrel to move it along the field of fire. Tap, tap, tap could deliver murder in terms of a rate of fire. The mechanized fire of a machine gun and the fact that one machine gun crew could hold off mass armies 
once again reinforce the strength of the defensive side in the trenches. And paradoxically, this new technology simply further bolstered the stalemate, the deadlock, and the strength of the defending side that we've mentioned uh, in earlier lectures. Now, however, we should consider a technological innovation which would, over time, start to break down that primacy of the defensive, that deadlock. And these were tanks. A new weapon, uh, given the code name at first of the tank, uh, in order to disguise what it truly was, an armored battle wagon, uh, and the name stuck, nonetheless, this euphemism, this new weapon, the tank, would eventually break through the trench stalemate. But its importance and how it could best be used was only slowly recognized and learned, which was natural given its novelty. Now, people had earlier certainly thought about the notion of uh, of castles on wheels uh, or of battle wagons. Leonardo da Vinci's uh, Renaissance Man sketches uh, certainly included such a plan as well. Uh, but during the progress of this war, this was put into action. An experimental British armed tractor was set up as a secret project, and this project was supported by no less than Winston Churchill, who was thinking of ideas uh, as, less fortunately, Gallipoli, uh, which might be able to provide a key to reversing the stalemate or the deadlock. These first armored tractors were not very reliable. They were extremely prone to breakdown and problems, uh, and their speeds were not considerable. They would roar along at about two to four miles per hour, uh, ultimately uh, only in their first stages of development. And a first few were used at the Somme in 1916, not to decisive results because the numbers were not significant enough, nor indeed was their use familiar enough for this purpose, but they were ready for mass use by 1917. And the breakthrough in this regard, using this New technology came at the Battle of Cambrai on November 20th, 1917, when British tanks were moved forward. Over 400 British Mark IV tanks advanced and actually tore a hole in the German lines. Their tank treads were able to simply move right over the trenches, and though many certainly would break down, uh, they were able to achieve a remarkable result in practice. The British forces advanced five miles as a result of tearing this hole in the German line. And even though this advance of five miles by the standards of trench warfare was tremendously dramatic, uh, reinforcements could not be brought up in time to turn this into a real uh, decisive breakthrough. The French also built tanks, but by contrast, the Germans purposely neglected them. Instead, in a calculated decision, the industrial resources that were necessary for the building of tanks were instead poured into the building of submarines, as this was seen as a truly decisive uh, form of uh, uh, weaponry. By the war's end, uh, when it became clear that the tank was going to make a difference, uh, the Germans, who at first had um, mostly used captured tanks, um, uh, and had outfitted them and repainted them with German insignia, uh, the Germans had started to attempt a tank program, but only had 20 versus the hundreds of tanks that were on the Allied side available by the end of the war. Uh, and the military historian Keegan judges that Germany's inability to keep up in the arms race of building tanks was one of the worst mistakes made by German leadership during the war itself. We need to turn now to... 
a truly devastating and horrifying weapon that was a tremendous shock to contemporaries themselves, but illustrates with great eloquence, a dreadful eloquence, the technological imperatives of the destructive potential of industrialized war. And this was poison gas. Poison gas was an innovation of the First World War and unfortunately has been with us since as a reality. It's been used in our own lifetimes in warfare, uh, including the Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s. Now, official opinion had already been aware of the dreadful danger that this sort of warfare might represent, and chemical warfare of this variety, in fact, had been forbidden by international convention. But such conventions went by the board, given the pressures of total war. The use of gas warfare was pioneered by a remarkable German scientist by the name of Fritz Haber. Fritz Haber is often considered the father of chemical warfare, which is, is an odd title to end up with. Uh, he was really a remarkable man. Fritz Haber was, to the very core of his being, a German-Jewish patriot, a man who considered that his duty was to do everything that he could in terms of his scientific acumen and his abilities to speed Germany to a decisive victory. And parenthetically, I might note that this, this theme of the, the tremendously eager participation and patriotic participation of German Jews in the war effort is something that we'll be returning to at certain points during the lecture, uh, because when later, uh, in the 1930s, German Jewish patriots who had participated in the war were defined by the Nazis as enemies of the German people, it was a very bitter reversal for so many of them, uh, giving the lie to their earlier nationalism and patriotism. Fritz Haber, in addition to being a German-Jewish patriot, was a brilliant chemist who headed the very prestigious Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin for chemical studies. Uh, He would later win the Nobel Prize for some of his researches. But Haber now turned his talents to the use of the resources of Germany's extensive chemical industry, to deploy the new weapon of gas warfare. And indeed, he personally supervised the first mass attack that was mounted. This gas attack came as a dreadful surprise to the Allies on the Western Front. The Germans used the chlorine gas that had been produced on the Western Front on April 22, 1915. And we might very well mark this as the beginning of modern chemical warfare. On April 22, 1915, near Ypres, at a place that should be familiar to us, the village of Langemark. Langemark, you'll recall, the year previously, in 1914, had been the site of uh, a since-then legendary attack of, of supposed attack of German student idealists who had gone to their deaths in waves of self-sacrifice singing Germany's national anthem. Um, and though this was a failure, it was celebrated in propaganda in this same spot at Langemark, Allied defenders ignored revelations of a coming attack because news had filtered out that the Germans were about to test some terrible new weapon, uh, and the attack, when it came, was a dreadful one in terms of its surprise and its novelty. Chlorine gas, as it penetrates the, uh, the breathing system of a human being, poisons the windpipe and the lungs, and the lungs soon fill up with fluid so that quite literally a victim drowns. And precisely because this weapon was so new and the shock of its novelty so considerable, only crude improvised countermeasures existed at first. The attack um, surpassed the expectations of German uh, planners. 
in fact ripped a four-mile gap into the Allied lines. German commanders, who were themselves startled by the effect that it had, had not prepared in advance sufficiently to actually exploit it. A natural, the natural response should have been probably to, to pour in reinforcements quickly and to use the opportunity to create a real breakthrough. And some historians judge that if it had been exploited properly and deployed in greater mass, the gas weapon, uh, this devastating weapon could have achieved a breakthrough. Fritz Haber certainly believed so. And later he would complain that this chance for perhaps winning the war at a stroke using this technology had been lost. Now, the use of gas, once this dreadful news poured out, was condemned by the Allies. And the Germans probably could never shake ever since the, uh, uh, the stigma that attached to their being the first to use this weapon. The Allies condemned this as an act of German frightfulness. Uh, but their response, given the imperatives of, of total war, couldn't be to abstain from this war. Instead, they soon moved to replicate it. By September 1915, they were producing their own gas, and in a dialectic which would be repeated throughout the war, one side or another would take the technological lead in this gas warfare. Uh, the British laboratories at a secret location at Porton Down, where ever more sophisticated uh, killing chemicals were developed, uh, soon was employing a thousand scientists and any number of test animals uh, to produce this dreadful weapon. And the weapon evolved. At first, the use of gas warfare was very imprecise. Um, uh, as it was released from tubes, uh, it might very well waft back on one's own troops, uh, the side that had released it. And soldiers on all sides grew to hate gas with a total ferocity, whether it was their own use of gas or someone else's. The use of gas masks also had a, a paradoxical uh, result. The use of gas masks further slowed down infantry, even further and the alarms that continually went up of gas attacks and the, the sirens and the clanging of bells that went up and down the trenches um, further sapped energy that could have been used in the war itself. So paradoxically, poison gas, which was supposed to break open the war and create a breakthrough, ultimately ended up contributing to the stalemate, paradoxically. On December 19th, 1915, in precisely an example of this sort of acceleration, the Germans deployed a new gas that was even more destructive, phosgene. This was a, a, a gas with a deadly delayed action. Next year, the Allies were using the same gas at the Battle of the Somme. In July of 1917, the Germans introduced yet another gas, what came to be called mustard gas because of its peculiar mustard smell. Uh, the technical term for it is dichloroethyl sulfide, which blistered the skin and attacked the throat and lungs. The chemical also tended to linger in affected areas and on bodies of those who were dead. Um, just recently on a, on a trip to Verdun, um, I spoke with a tour guide there who mentioned that just recently uh, she had known of a woman who had picked up shells on the battlefield itself um, and as a result uh, had experienced poisoning of the skin. And this is decades afterwards. The gas was now also delivered by shelling rather than by more imprecise methods. By 1918, 20 to 30% of all of the shells produced by all of the fighting powers contained gas rather than explosives. An estimated 66 million gas shells were produced on all the fighting sides, and some 113,000 tons of chemicals were employed. One can just imagine the environmental damage as well as the human damage. By the end of the war, one in six casualties were from gas. 
In total, it's estimated that about 90,000 people died from gas. Of these, remarkably enough, 62% of the total were Russian soldiers on the Eastern Front, some 56,000 men. Uh, Gas, in spite of these numbers that um, in the popular imagination are are usually larger in terms of deaths, nonetheless uh, held a special horror, a special terror for soldiers who were exposed to it precisely because the the notion of of, of strangulation, essentially, or of, of drowning in one's own body carried such special horror. Among those who were gassed was Adolf Hitler, whom we spoke about in the last lecture. And during World War II, Hitler would avoid using poison gas, even though gas masks were often carried by soldiers in World War II just in case. Um, it's not precisely clear why Hitler avoided using gas Um, Many historians suggest that it was not out of humanitarian motives or out of pity for ordinary soldiers like himself uh, who had experienced gassing. He seems to have believed that the Allies would respond just as they had in the First World War with new and improved gases, and he seems to have believed that they had nerve gas ready, which would have been destructive beyond what the Germans could answer technologically at that point. Uh, A further outcome of some very recent research, which is, is... tremendously suggestive of this process of evolution as well, suggests that German forces may have been experimenting with biological warfare during the First World War, but not against human beings. Rather, it was directed against pack animals and horses uh, being delivered to the Allied side. Um, It was suggested by uh, some technological experts that one might think of um, the use of biological warfare, the throwing of germs out over Britain, for instance. Uh, but apparently German authorities drew the line and said, this is unacceptable. What's fascinating to observe is how the drawing of lines changes over time. Submarines and other weaponry also took on greater importance. Um, in naval warfare, instead of conventional surface ships, submarines and mines became preferred technology Submarines could not follow the earlier rules of naval warfare, which included giving warnings before sinking, and thus crafted a new moral code in line with their technological capabilities. Germany built 380 submarines during the war, but their use, as we'll see in a later discussion, turned into a political disaster. Other new weapons could include flamethrowers, which were terrifying to those who were on the receiving end, but could be very dangerous to employ if the flamethrower's reserves of of fuel were hit, as well as high explosives and and massive new artillery. Germany's famous Krupp works produced monster guns, including the one nicknamed the Big Bertha after the daughter of the uh, producer, and also long-range artillery capable of firing uh, over 70 miles. Another tool of the war was the so-called Ersatz, which is a German word meaning substitute or replacement or, more bitterly, fake. As Britain's naval blockade of Germany that we'll be discussing in more detail really started to hit, crucial imports of strategically important materials were lost, cut off, especially saltpeter from Chile for fertilizer and for explosives was no longer available. The necessity was to somehow synthesize these materials, and the development of substitute ersatz materials allowed Germany to continue the war long after it otherwise would have had to shut it down. The process of fixing nitrogen from the air, rather than needing to import uh, um, the material from Chile, was a crucial innovation, and without it, Germany probably would have lost the war almost immediately. The man who developed the technology to fix nitrogen from the air was that same scientist, Fritz Haber, 
And when he won the Nobel Prize in 1918, it was precisely for this invention. Other synthetic products included synthetic rubber and other crucial war materials. The Germans also consumed ersatz food products of very poor quality, including war butter and notorious war bread. By 1918, in Germany, there were more than 11,000 ersatz products, uh, many of them of very dubious appeal. The new weaponry also carried new implications. These weapons, as we've already seen, could seem to produce new moralities, breaking through earlier taboos about what was acceptable. At the same time, many older forms of war remained. Despite wireless communications, for instance, carrier pigeons were also held ready just in case the modern technology broke down. And even as transport was increasingly mechanized on the Western Front, one and a half million horses were mobilized in this war as well. And it's estimated that a third of them might have died under fire from disease or from overwork. In our next lecture, we'll examine probably the archetypal instance of the role of technology in transforming the war, the air war. Lecture 16, Air War. After our previous consideration of the remarkable role of technology and its accelerating progress in the context of total war, it's very appropriate for us to turn now to an examination of a new kind of war, one quite literally that had to be pioneered and learned as it was going on, the war in the air. While the war in the air was not yet decisive in World War I, as it would assume tremendous importance in World War II, it certainly was a frightening portent of what future conflicts would hold, especially after this new weaponry had been pioneered and then perfected. This lecture surveys the rapid improvement in early airplanes. We'll examine the growth of the myth of the fighter ace as a legendary figure, but we'll also discuss ways in which the lived reality of fighter aces, in fact, uh, violated some of the the heroism that surrounded the the legendary image, will examine how the fighter ace was treated as the knight of a new order of chivalry, redeeming a model of heroism high above the muddy trenches and contrast that with the lived reality. We will also follow the evolution of ideas about how air war could be deployed, including the beginnings of bombing from the air, which would later take such a toll of civilian life in World War II. We need first, obviously, to consider where the matter of flight stood before the war itself began. The potential utility and terror of airborne weapons had been well understood or anticipated prior to 1914, if not yet fully put into effect. After the first airplane flight of the Wright brothers in 1903 in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, many writers of speculative fiction, today we would say science fiction, imagined a coming war in the future, transformed by fighting in the skies. Probably the most remarkable example of this was H.G. Wells' book, The War in the Air, from 1908. In addition, balloons had certainly been used for observation in earlier conflicts, and planes, too, had started to be used in colonial warfare against non-Western peoples. Now the question arose how the use of air war would uh, would run in the First World War. 
experts had debated what model of aircraft would be more promising. And this would be worked out in practice, as it turned out. The question was whether lighter-than-air aircraft, that's to say dirigibles or balloons, or heavier-than-air propelled aircraft, like airplanes, would be most useful. The major powers had established air branches before 1914, and France had gone furthest in this direction and had the most developed. On all sides in the First World War, there were about a 1,000 planes when the war broke out, and these numbers would increase exponentially in quick order. In spite of earlier speculation, uh, such as in science fiction works and popular fiction, about the usefulness of planes in combat, in fact, airplanes were mostly viewed by military men at the start of the war as being mostly useful for the ordinary tasks of reconnaissance, essentially replacing the earlier role of cavalry in determining where the enemy was located and what movements were taking place. Aircraft also, it seemed, could play a useful role as artillery observers or range finders. Uh, And this certainly was part of the role that aircraft would play in the First World War. But by a very interesting process of evolution, uh, a dynamic set in uh, which increasingly changed the nature of the role of at least some airplanes. If observation was important, it soon became important to eliminate the enemy's observers, and thus the way to air combat and individual dogfights, the stuff of legend of the fighter aces, was at last opened. And thus, in a process very similar to the one that we outlined in many cases when we earlier spoke of the total war of technology, the Air War II would see an incredible rate of advance and transformation. And technological advantage could shift from one side to the other with remarkable rapidity in the course of several months. By the end of the war, certainly, a whole range of different planes was developed. These included fighters, they included new types of planes like seaplanes, as well as more long-distance bombers. New approaches to how air war was conducted were also tried out. Long-range bombing and the use of aircraft carriers was also pioneered. The air forces expanded enormously. British air forces in 1914 had fewer than 300 officers, 300 officers and about 1,800 men. By 1918, four years later, the British forces had over 27,000 officers and nearly 300,000 men working in different capacities of support as well as flying. Production of airplanes also of necessity exploded as the use of air war intensified. By the war's end, just for example, French industries were building as many planes every day as France had owned at the start of the war in 1914. By contrast, Some countries less industrially developed, like Austria-Hungary and Russia, were not able to keep up in this competition and fell behind. New types of planes also proliferated as the result of experiment in new technologies. Many of these were biplanes, but experiments with single and triple wing planes also grew. Prominent models included the French Nupor and the Schwa, the British Sopwith Pup and Sopwith Camel, and the German Fokker triplane. Uh, Indeed, uh, as one drives on one's morning commute uh, in our own times, one might very well encounter artifacts of these days. And what I mean by that is uh, BMW cars. Uh, Today's German car manufacturer, BMW, the Bavarian Motor Works, uh, during this period built plane engines during the war. 
And today, still, the logo of this company actually hints at those origins, uh, showing an abstract image of a white propeller and a blue sky. Photography, which was an adjunct of the observation capacity of airplanes, improved steadily as well, as did wireless technology towards the end of the war to allow planes to communicate their observations to the ground. Weaponry, likewise, also moved from the very primitive, that's to say, uh, opposed pilots shooting at one another with, with pistols or with shotguns to much more elaborate and lethal weaponry, including mounted machine guns. Now, very obviously, the question of how to deploy a machine gun on an airplane was a formidable engineering problem at these times. Uh, the danger was clear. Uh, a gunner who was too enthusiastic could end up shooting off his own propeller, and this obviously would result in disaster. At first, in an improvised fashion, metal plates were mounted on the propellers so as to deflect one's own bullets. Uh, But this was not a panacea. Uh, Problems could emerge here as well. Um, If a machine gun was firing and hit one of these metal plates upon the propeller, well, the propeller was protected. But what uh, what if the bullet ricocheted back towards the pilot or another member of a crew? Uh, At the same time, repeated hits, even of an metal-clad propeller uh, could certainly produce metal fatigue and blow away the propeller at long last as well. This engineering challenge was finally solved by a Dutch engineer who was working for the Germans by the name of Antony Fokker. He produced a gear, an interrupter gear, which synchronized the propeller with the firing of the guns so that the bullets each time, barring disastrous malfunction, would be firing between the propeller's blades as the uh, uh, propeller uh, propelled the plane through the air, uh, not endangering the flyer uh, and the gunner. This invention, which uh, was remarkable for its time, uh, gave the Germans air superiority in the West, but it did so for less than a year. Soon, this innovation was imitated and replicated by the Allied side as well. And here we see an indication of a constant phenomenon that was at play throughout the conflict, superiority in the air, precisely due to such technological advances or uh, tactical advances, uh, shifted back and forth from the Allied side, that's to say the French and the British, to to the side of the Germans on the Western Front in the war itself. This showed the typical dynamic of technological races, because each side's technological edge would very quickly be imitated, reproduced, or improved upon by the enemy. In 1918, the last year of the war, the uses of air power took a dramatic leap forward into the practice of attack and long-range bombing on the Western Front. And we'll speak more about bombing towards the end of today's lecture. I want to proceed now to talk about some of the, the aura of heroism and of hero worship that surrounded very quickly the figure of the fighter ace. And indeed, the term itself was a word that was developed during the war to to indicate a a fighter pilot who had many kills to his credit. The myth of the fighter ace ran as follows. Far above the muddy trenches, above the stalemate and the deadlock, where the poor devils, the infantry down below, were slogging it out, high up in the skies, these airmen, were seen as daredevils. They were knights of the air. They had managed to overcome the horrors of the trenches to recover a chivalric, a nobler, 
and cleaner form of warfare in the clouds and in the skies. And this form of heroic warfare would allow an emphasis on the role of the individual. The individual's heroism mattered for something. Individual skill and chivalry could make a difference. And we see in remarkable ways paralleling our earlier discussion of stormtroopers and their alleged recovery of a personally heroic form of warfare, even in the trenches, that this phenomenon was in some ways quite related. In a paradox that we already have encountered in our discussion of the use of technology in total war, we see here as well that modern technology could be combined with or fused with a seeming revival of older traditions. So too in this case, over and over again, the fighter aces were celebrated as being knights of the air, looking back to the earlier age of chivalry. And the images that were associated with this proliferated as well. To give but one example, German planes were painted with iron crosses, making them redolent of earlier medieval times. A powerful myth of the admired fighter ace was also used in propaganda as an example of what one's own side could achieve with sufficient will, sufficient heroism, and daring. The fighter ace was even said to be a new physical type. It's a very interesting set of of mythologized images that soon accrued to the figure of the fighter ace. In some ways resembling that, uh, uh, the figure of a motor car race driver, fighter aces were said to all be thin, quick, extremely alert, possessed of a certain controlled nervousness, as well as total awareness of their surroundings. Uh, Whether or not they actually had noble birth, they all supposedly shared a certain common aristocratic bearing and knightliness. And they were all said, this was obviously an idealized image, to value fair play and gamesmanship in combat. It was said that fighter aces were in fact so noble that they respected even their enemies and stories circulated, and certainly there were some cases to back this up, of dramatic and noble gestures like fighter aces throwing wreaths down upon the uh, the graves of fallen foes, uh, their own enemies whom they had shot down in order to show gestures of respect in spite of the fact that these men were enemies. Fighter ace heroes included many, but the prominent among them were British aces Edward Manock and Alfred Ball, and especially the German Red Baron, as he was called, Manfred von Richthofen, in his famous red fighter plane, all of these men, as it turns out, were killed in the war. I want to speak a little in detail about Richthofen personally. Um, Richthofen scored the highest number of victories in the war, that's to say 80 kills, as they were called, and he was decorated with Germany's highest medal, the Paul Le Merite. It's a little bit of a paradox that Germany's highest decoration bore a title that was in the language of the hereditary enemy, the French. It was more uh, popularly known as the Blue Max Medal. Um, And what truly is striking is the way in which the exploits of this so-called Red Baron were used for propaganda on both sides, in fact, in a public relations campaign. His enemies, the Allies, would uh, uh, depict him in propaganda as cruel and vicious in his approaches. There was an element of truth to that as well. But at the same time, the Germans played him up as an example of modern heroism. Uh, He himself had been born in Germany's eastern provinces, where his aristocratic family hailed from, uh, from Breslau, in fact, uh, today in Poland. 
uh, Richthofen was, as the, the very name von Richthofen suggests, uh, of noble birth. He hailed from an old Prussian family that had become famous in serving Frederick the Great in his wars of the 18th century. And as was accepted practice in these old aristocratic families, uh, Richthofen had first signed up for the cavalry, uh, the, the, the very respected and traditional branch of the prestigious armed forces. Uh, soon, however, as it became clear that the cavalry was not going to come in for its expected share of glory on, uh, in the course of the First World War, Richthofen instead uh, entered the air service in search of adventure and of fame. And he indeed would serve as a pilot over that titanic battle of Verdun, the, the blood mill of Verdun uh, below him, as it turns out, that we had discussed in an earlier lecture. What's fascinating to observe is how Richthofen himself, in addition to the German propaganda authorities, developed a legend around the figure of the Red Baron. Uh, he was named the Red Baron because of his famous red plane that he had actually painted in these colors to set himself apart and to quite distinctively uh, and in a taunting way uh, provoke his enemies uh, by his very conspicuousness. Uh, he developed a, another habit that became famous of, uh, of commissioning a little silver cup to be made with the, the date and the name of his kill. Uh, and uh, as these kills mounted, so too did the number of his silver cups. Soon, Richthofen was competing against himself in trying to increase the number of his scores, of his kills, which by the end of the war, um, close to the end of the war as he's killed, uh, had numbered 80. At the same time, and this is what I meant earlier by um, the reality of the air war not always matching these heroic myths, uh, Richthofen, as he tried to uh, uh, increase his numbers of kills, uh, didn't always sally forth looking for the strongest of opponents. He was not averse to chasing down slower planes or inexperienced enemy pilots in order to increase his own personal record. And contemporaries who knew him and admired him in many ways nonetheless were realistic about his character. They noted that he enjoyed this. He saw it not only as a necessary evil, but as something in the nature of a game. And even Richthofen's own brother, who was also a fighter ace, at one point called him a butcher. Uh, Richthofen preferred to think of it as gamesmanship, sportsmanship, something like hunting. His enjoyment uh, reminds us of similar phenomena among the stormtroopers, those men who enjoyed war too much. Richthofen, at 25, was made leader of a fighter wing. Such were his skills. And this fighter wing came to be called the Flying Circus because, just like stormtroopers would be, uh, it was shuttled around as necessary to the most crucial parts of the front. He emphasized among his uh, subordinates discipline. He conducted debriefings after every mission to re-examine what had gone right and what had gone wrong. And his powers of instruction were such that many of Germany's other fighter aces for the rest of the war had in fact been his pupils. But as the war dragged on, Richthofen changed psychologically. A wound might have contributed to this in part. As the war dragged on, he seems to have been thrown into a cycle of despair, one in which he faced the impossible task of heightening his own legend. Uh, he, he started to pursue that to him, magical number of 100 kills uh, as a aim that he sought to achieve. 
And yet it seemed clear to him that at some point, uh, this sort of existence would have its end. Uh, his own teacher, for instance, had died in a, uh, in a collision, a mid-air collision with one of his own pilots. Uh, so even very skilled pilots could be brought down by accident. And it didn't become clear to uh, Richthofen uh, until the very end that the price that he'd have to pay would be his own life. Indeed, in April of 1918, uh, his own death took place. And the circumstances of that death are, in fact, to this very day, shrouded in mystery and debate. Uh, It's unclear whether it was a Canadian pilot uh, who was caught in a larger uh, melee in the skies uh, who brought Richthofen's plane down, um, um, shooting him and killing him in the process, or whether, on the contrary, it was Australian troops stationed below who were firing uh, on the airplanes uh, who ultimately were the ones who had brought this about. Nonetheless, it's clear that his plane went down. We will never know, apparently, precisely how. And in a gesture that did accord with these mythologized versions of what it meant to be a fighter ace, uh, a full military funeral was organized for him with full military honors by Australian pilots uh, on enemy territory. When Richthofen finally had gone down, pursuing his own legendary status in, in what ultimately turned out to be a race to death, He was only 26 years old. After Richthofen was killed in April of 1918, the last leader of his squad was a man who would play an important historical role later in the 20th century. Uh, At this point, he was still a trim, not, as he later was in life, expansive fighter ace, Hermann Goering, who later became commander of the Nazi Air Force in World War II and would be instrumental in the changes that took place in a devastating war in the air. In reality, great dangers, as is obvious, accompanied the role of airmen, who are often imperiled by their own technology and its drawbacks or its flaws, as well as the, uh, the enemy and enemy fire. Many accidents took place in training. Training itself was often only several months long. And in a very real sense, fighting in the air was so new that its tactics had to be invented and improvised, and many of them, indeed, remarkably, still form the basis for air war today. British pilots experienced horrendous uh, rates of casualty, about 50% in the course of the entire war. Um, It also has to be mentioned that, um, it might simply be stating the obvious, but that not all pilots went on to be fighter aces. It's estimated by one study that only about 5% of fighters acquired this status. Many more were shot down by fighter aces before they had a chance to gain the necessary experience. And in spite of the myth of lone heroism, of the duels and the skies that surrounded the fighter aces, in fact, massed formations and mass battles uh, were in fact increasingly important. Uh, and Richthofen's organization of a, of a flying wing, the flying circus itself made that clear. I want to turn now to examine a very important key case of continuity between this total war, the First World War, and how aspects of its destruction were later perfected in the Second World War, uh, and indeed are still with us today. And I mean by that in particular, the beginnings of bombing, the beginnings of bombing. Beyond the role of observation or fighting in the skies, The role of aircraft in bombing was also pioneered in the First World War. It wasn't brought to the later perfection, I I use the phrase ironically, uh, but certainly was pioneered in this sense. 
Um, at the start of the war, planes could throw grenades or small bombs, but by a certain inevitability, uh, eventually planes were ever more outfitted with this equipment and soon bombs weighing thousands of pounds could be dropped from planes. The aim in this bombing was not only to damage the enemy's war effort behind the lines, uh, but also, most certainly, to create panic and demoralization. And what this implied as well was an increasingly indiscriminate targeting of civilians as well. The bombing, in spite of its tremendous inaccuracy at the start of the war, uh, increasingly underlined the totality of war, as civilians would become the targets and victims of this war. There were sporadic first uses of bombing, uh, including a a plane that flew over Paris and dropped bombs there in 1914 and Belgian towns as well. Uh, But a horrifying um, profile that loomed up in the skies of air war was that of the Zeppelin. That is to say, an airborne dirigible of enormous size and shadowed contours that the Germans used in order to start bombing Great Britain in January of 1915. These Zeppelins, as they were called, were hydrogen-borne dirigibles named after Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin, a pioneer in uh, this aircraft, who had built the first one in 1900. Eleven of them were ready for use as the war began, uh, but they proved very vulnerable to enemy fire from the ground. Even though they were capable of achieving significant altitudes, they weren't always safe. Um, And also strong winds or bad weather uh, was another thing that could really disrupt their plans. I mean, there are cases of of Zeppelin simply being blown away uh, in the North Sea as a result of strong winds. During the war, 123 Zeppelins were used by the Germans, and almost 80 of them were shot down or collapsed on their own due to technical problems. The Zeppelins, however, certainly created terror. They mounted more than 50 raids on Britain in the First World War. Their major raids ended in 1916, not out of humanitarian concern, but because a new weapon had been developed in order to fulfill the same task it was hoped more efficiently. They were replaced by long-range bombing planes, like the twin-engine Gotha bomber. Alarm and panic in Britain increased, in part for a simple reason. Great Britain felt that uh, it had been immune from modern war on its own land. The concept of splendid isolation had been a key concept and now, very clearly, had broken down. The anxiety that would follow would be most significant, and this too was yet another example of the uh, shock of the new that had to be dealt with. A concerted bombing campaign now began. The German campaign uh, with long-range bombers, the Gotha bombers, in 1917 to 1918, specifically targeted London. While the losses, especially when measured against the horrific record of the Second World War, by this bombing campaign of about 1,400 people killed by bombing in Britain were not in any proportion to the, the later devastation of World War II, But nonetheless, the event itself left a tremendous impact. Uh, In London, anxieties grew on the part of workers about whether whether their factories would be bombed. Uh, uh, Morale certainly had taken a blow. And at night, thousands would sleep in the subway stations uh, in what they hoped would be underground security. Uh, This is another case of scenes that are very familiar to us from the Second World War, Uh, actually having at least a preview, in a sense, during World War I. 
the impression that was created was very strong on all sides. And after the First World War, one would sometimes hear among military thinkers and military planners uh, repeated almost as if it were a, a dictum or a law of war that, quote, the bomber always gets through. The bomber always gets through. Now, this clearly wasn't entirely true because in tandem with the development of long-range bombers, uh, there most certainly already was the development of anti-aircraft positions, uh, searchlights probing the skies uh, um, in tandem with these anti-aircraft installations. Uh, but even more crucially, in sort of a dialectical process that we've already seen uh, in more detail when we discuss the uh, the growth of gas warfare and the evolution of gas warfare with both sides surpassing one another in technological advance, so to here one could see a exchange of this sort of warfare as the British responded in kind. The British prepared to respond en masse against German targets in part in retaliation against this targeting of London and other British targets, but also simply because one couldn't allow the enemy to have a monopoly on this form of war, it was felt. And thus, British forces at first targeted uh, Zeppelin bases in Cologne, in the Rhineland, uh, and in Dusseldorf. Uh, They also sought to target in what they hoped would be the most efficient and cost-effective way certain other industrial targets, in particular the factories producing poison gas in Germany. Uh, but the uh, inexactness of bombing technology in the First World War was still considerable, and the results were still disappointing. But the very severity and seriousness of the situation was such that reorganization was felt to be necessary in Great Britain. And thus, a, a historic event took place uh, nearing the end of the war, as on April 1st, 1918, uh, the first independent air force, that's to say not just an adjunct to other fighting forces, but the first independent military uh, organization devoted to the air war, the British Royal Air Force, was established. The British now moved on to larger plans that would finally only come into fruition in the Second World War, plans for long-distance bombing of Berlin. As it turns out, the distances uh, were too great and the technology at the disposal of the British forces was still too limited in order to really bring this plan into full effect. But even these hints of what lay in the future, what had been thought of, were suggestive. The terrible legacy of this air war still lay ahead in the mass bomber raids of World War II. But the fact that mass bombing, paradoxically, had not yet been tried out fully in World War I ironically made the idea even more appealing to many military planners, precisely because its full potential had not yet fully been explored. In the course of today's lecture, we've examined uh, a form of warfare that had to be pioneered and had to be learned as one went along. We want to examine in our next lecture a form of war that had been fully expected and, in fact, people thought would be decisive, the war at sea. We'll recall that uh, the naval arms race had done a lot to uh, increase tensions and ultimately create the poisonous international atmosphere in which the First World War would break out. But surprises were at store in the war at sea as well, which we'll examine in our next lecture.
Lecture 17, War at Sea. In this lecture, we'll be considering the war at sea. Though the naval arms race before 1914 had very much contributed to those growing tensions that we had earlier described that finally erupted in World War I, the role of the great navies turned out, in fact, during the conflict itself to be deeply ambiguous and also marked by stalemate. One of the major themes that we've been weaving through this course is the extent to which the First World War, the actual experience of the conflict, represented a series of shocks or novelties or surprises. And in this sense, the war at sea was most definitely a surprise uh, in that it didn't turn out at all as earlier planners or observers had expected. Uh, indeed, this was, uh, in many cases, deeply embarrassing. The lead-up to the First World War had represented an enormously expensive naval arms race, and now, in fact... Uh, the war at sea turned out to be uh, not a uh, resolute and conclusive battle, but instead a confusing series of encounters. Indeed, the only giant British-German naval clash even approximating the sort of apocalyptic battle that had been expected previously was marked by confused sparring and ultimately an indecisive result. By contrast, a slower form of naval warfare or the use of naval weapons was the naval blockade that was imposed by the British Navy on Germany's economy. It was a far greater effect, uh, an economic weapon that tried to choke off Germany industrially and economically. We'll examine the really tremendous debates among historians concerning the real impact of the naval blockade on the German home front, on civilians' diets and civilians' health, and we'll also examine how Germany's shift to a new form of warfare, another example of the shock of the new, unrestricted submarine warfare in 1917, in turn threatened the British economy, but also had the result of fatefully antagonizing the United States and bringing it into the war against the central powers, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Turkey. Let's start first by considering some of the expectations that had preceded the war uh, and that indeed uh, marked the outbreak itself as attempts were made to put into action some of these earlier expectations. Many pre-war tensions between Germany and Britain had centered on the naval arms race. From 1898 on, as Germany starts to build an ever larger navy, seemingly challenging British preeminence on the seas. But paradoxically, within the war itself, the expectations of how the war would unfold on the seas were radically overturned. In the years preceding the First World War, a new class of battleships that simply made all others obsolete in terms of their gunnery, uh, in terms of their armor, uh, had revolutionized the naval buildup. These were the so-called dreadnought battleships, uh, which soon were coming to the fore in all of the major arm, uh, navies. Britain's navy was the largest, uh, simply because for the British, the existence of a large navy was essential, crucial to the defense of its global empire and global interests. Uh, many British would keep in mind that phrase, Britannia rules the waves. It seemed to be a matter of uh, existence for the British Empire. And it was precisely because of this existential importance of British domination 
of the seas, that the German navy, as it was being built up, was seen as a symbol of the German empire's dynamism, modernity, and potential threat to the British as well. All of the great powers had large navies, and that included Austria-Hungary, which we don't usually think of as a naval power, but which needed this particular weapon in order to underline its status as a great power. Naval blockades had been very important tools of war in the past. And indeed, during the Napoleonic Wars, uh, Great Britain's role in the conflict had uh, included naval blockades. Germany, in its wartime planning, thus looked back to earlier patterns of warfare and expected that the British would, as had been seen in the past, uh, would be mounting a close blockade of the ports of Germany, that's to say stationing of ships close by to the ports uh, that held Germany's traffic of imports and exports and would intercept or block off any trade that might be going on at the time. Uh, That was the expectation, that a close blockade close to German ports uh, would be affected. And one of the ways in which they thought they might counter this close blockade was by the use of a new weapon, submarines. Uh, We think for good reason of submarine warfare as being especially identified during the First World War itself with the Germans, but in fact all sides were experimenting with this new weapon. Uh, Germany in 1914, when the war opens, in fact, as it turns out, had fewer submarines at first than Britain or France or Russia, but it did have newer ones. Submarines at this time were viewed mostly as defensive weapons, as ones that would be able to frustrate uh, the onslaught of an enemy navy uh, that might be able uh, to also um, defend against the possibility of a close blockade by sallying out from ports and uh, engaging the close blockading battleships of an enemy side and sinking them. Well, the First World War opened as on land, so too on sea, with initial encounters that really overturned many of the expectations that had been held in mind at the start of the war. The first task of the British forces, essentially, was to bottle up the German navy, to make sure that it could not set out to sea and represent an existential threat to the British uh, by dominating uh, the lanes of sea traffic. And in this case, geography, as it turns out, would play a very important role because the British were so positioned that they would be able to uh, really accomplish this task of bottling in German uh, forces quite effectively. The British Navy was positioned with a grand fleet uh, stationed at Scapa Flow near the Orkneys uh, between Scotland and Norway. And this grand fleet then was in a position to uh, really very effectively screen the 200 miles of sea lane between Norway and Scotland. And then the other uh, access point to the open seas and to the Atlantic was a far narrower strait. That was the channel uh, with the Straits of Dover, where the channel fleet was stationed, uh, um, an expanse of 20 miles here that was very effectively cordoned off by British forces. British forces were also at the same time in the eastern Mediterranean, Uh, where, in fact, they were reinforced and aided by a group of Japanese destroyers, very far from home, uh, but exercising some of Japan's naval power as well. While the French, by contrast, as allies of the British, were responsible for the Western Mediterranean, uh, in particular, keeping Austria-Hungary bottled up uh, into the Adriatic. 
the Russian Navy and its naval forces found themselves in a difficult position bottled up into the Black Sea because of the control of the Dardanelles that the Central Powers, uh, and in particular Ottoman Turkey, retained, and uh, bottled up in the Baltic. At this point, when earlier expectations would probably have prophesied a huge, overwhelming encounter between the British and the German navies uh, right at the start of the war, by contrast, and contrary to these earlier expectations, British and German commanders showed extreme caution. Extreme caution. In part because of uh, an awareness, perhaps even an exaggerated awareness, of just how much had been poured into the resources that they had in their own hands uh, as military commanders. They were aware, as the saying went at the time, that while uh, generals on the land might be fighting army, uh, army battles that might or might not have decisive results, an admiral, by contrast, in charge of great navies of dreadnoughts could very well lose the entire war in one afternoon if the encounter did not go his way. And it was as a result of this this mood of caution, uh, this uh, awareness of just how much was at stake in naval encounters led to indecisive battles at first. A confused encounter took place in Germany's uh, sea territory, the Battle of Heligoland Blight uh, of August 28th, 1914, in the North Sea. In this Battle of Heligoland Blight, British forces under Admiral Sir David Beatty nearly faced a disaster. And this was exactly the anxiety uh, that British uh, admirals had from the start. But they did end up defeating the Germans in their own territory. This defeat, on a smaller scale, made the German Kaiser, Wilhelm II, who uh, wanted very much to to, uh, protect and to shield that precious project of his, the German Navy, it made him very wary of risking battle afterwards. At the same time, and this is one of those surprises or shocks that marks the experience of the First World War, the new role of the submarine, not just as a defensive weapon, but as a fearsome offensive weapon, was now demonstrated. Uh, Just to give one example, one that was very vivid in the minds of British naval commanders, on one day, September 22nd, 1914, close to the start of the war, one German submarine, the U-9, and the U stood for Unterseeboot, uh, the underwater ship, the U-9 sank three British cruisers in one hour. This was a dreadful toll. Uh, at the same time, the British weren't averse to experimenting with this weapon as well, and British submarines very stealthily crept into the Baltic Sea and operated later through the war from Russian ports, harassing German naval forces in the Baltic. Now, too, the German Navy, rather than uh, advancing towards an apocalyptic sea battle, as had earlier been expected, instead emphasized raiding activity. German forces concentrated at first on commerce raiding, that's to say uh, either seizing or sinking enemy uh, commerce and uh, uh, merchant ships, or threatening troop shipments as they were moved uh, across the seas as well. The German Mediterranean cruisers Goeben and Breslau raced to Constantinople, where they were turned over uh, to Ottoman Turkey uh, and ultimately were helpful in bringing Ottoman Turkey into the war on the side of the Central Powers, that's to say Germany and Austria-Hungary. The East Asian squadron of German battleships under Admiral Count Maximilian von Spee 
which formerly had been based in the German protectorate of Qingtao, set off for the Pacific as it became increasingly clear that that German protectorate would come under attack by uh, other imperial or colonial forces. Spee then uh, essentially took off on a rampage of the Pacific and the South Atlantic. He smashed a British force that had been sent to intercept him off of the coast of Chile in the Battle of Coronel on November 1st, 1914. And this was uh, of fateful significance because this was the first British naval defeat in a century and a tremendous blow to the prestige and the self-concept of the British Navy. Sailing then to the South Atlantic, Spee was ambushed in an attack that he had at first planned on British wireless station uh, on the Falkland Islands. Uh, He was intercepted there by a British squadron on December 8, 1914, and Spee himself was among those who were killed in the battle. The Allies then also caught up with and sank the remaining German raiders that had been creating havoc in the sea lanes, the Emden, which had operated in the Indian Ocean, uh, the Königsberg, a battleship off of East Africa, and the cruiser Karlsruhe, which raided in the Central Atlantic but then blew up accidentally. The British gained uh, a very important advantage in naval warfare and in other forms of warfare by intercepting or finding in wrecks the German code books. Uh, The first of these was recovered from a German ship sunk off uh, Estonia in the Baltic Sea, and other code books as well for the other German naval codes were collected and brought together in a decoding operation, top secret, run by British naval intelligence uh, called Room 40. That's how secret it was. Only its uh, uh, geographic location uh, within the, the halls of the uh, naval ministries was uh, was revealed as a, uh, a code name for it. Uh, the reality then of this uh, co- decoding project uh, was that the British had advance warning of many German naval plans and eventually also broke the German diplomatic codes, which would take on a very uh, great significance later in uh, diplomatic sparring. Uh, on January 24th, 1915, uh, another battle then loomed up, the Battle of Dogger Bank in uh, the North Sea, which yielded a British victory against German forces, which had been shelling British coastal towns in another example of raiding. Um, and e- but even in this battle, no decisive ultimate result was achieved. The main German force managed to escape. And this only further underlined the caution and reinforced the caution of Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, who henceforth kept the Navy very close to port. It seemed now that the sea war, in a sense, was stalemated in ways that remarkably and uncannily resembled the stalemate on the Western Front. That allowed a new and tremendously, over the long term, effective weapon, the naval blockade, to come to play. Because submarines and torpedoes had, as new weapons, changed naval warfare uh, and had made life tremendously dangerous for cruisers and other battleships, as the opening stages of the war made clear, the sort of close blockades, the uh, near stationing of battleships uh, to intercept commerce close to an enemy port were made impossible. Instead, it became necessary, as the British discovered, contrary to German expectations, to impose a distant blockade. That's to say, a far more thorough interception uh, at far off of the enemy's ports, far off the enemy coast, of commerce or of ships intended for enemy ports. The British set about this with a tremendous methodical carefulness and efficiency. 
They established even a ministry of blockade, which not only intercepted ships at sea, but also prevented neutrals that were neutral countries that were close to Germany's borders itself from trading with Germany by setting up mutually advantageous economic agreements or monopolies uh, that guaranteed that uh, the goods that were transported would not go to the central powers. And thus, ultimately, over the long term, this blockade proved to be a very formidable economic weapon. On November 1914, starting the blockade, Britain declared the North Sea a war zone. Armed British merchant ships patrolled north of Scotland uh, and uh, uh, enforced the blockade itself. Uh, And the same was true of naval forces, uh, obviously, in the Channel. At first, British forces only intercepted weaponry and very clearly military supplies. But eventually, in the context of the totality of total war, where even food, for instance, could become a factor in terms of which side was winning or losing, eventually more and more items were added to a list of strategically important materials that were banned from being moved into Germany. And in the process itself, German commerce was strangled. Germany as a modern economy uh, had been tremendously dependent on its industrial exports and the imports of raw materials from overseas. Uh, German imports plummeted, German exports plummeted. Germany itself faced a crisis in terms of uh, the raw materials that it had to work with. And indeed, uh, by one estimate, Germany at the start of the war only had stockpiled about six months in terms of crucial supplies like nitrates that would be very important for explosives as well as for fertilizer in agriculture. And one needs to just imagine what the experience of this blockade would mean in terms of German views of Great Britain in particular. Though the Germans had started the war with an invasion of France, Great Britain now loomed up to a great extent because of the blockade itself as very much the arch enemy, even surpassing the hatred of the hereditary enemy, the French, for the Germans. The British, it was argued, were fighting in an underhanded, treacherous way. Uh, They were especially uh, evil in their conduct of the war. And it became um, almost the style among some German nationalists no longer to greet one another if they met in the street by saying hello or good day. Uh, Instead, this was replaced with a ritualistic statement, may God punish England. And the correct answer on the part of another nationalist would be, yes, may God punish it. This gives us some view of the... uh, tremendous antipathy towards the British that would be underlined not just in submarine warfare, but also in propaganda that we'll be discussing in a later lecture. There came now, finally, what seemed to be, after a period of indecision, perhaps the titanic apocalyptic battle that had been expected. This was the Battle of Jutland. German planning during the course of the unexpected twists and turns of the sea war uh, had soon moved towards hoping to lure a portion of the British fleet into a trap in terms of naval warfare and then to destroy it and to even the odds uh, and to, as it were, whittle away at British naval supremacy. What, What remained a little bit unclear was why the British, who after all had a naval advantage, would allow themselves to be lured into a trap, uh, but nonetheless wishful thinking played its role here. The German Admiral Reinhard Scheer, commander of the high seas fleet, agitated for something to do for his navy. He agitated for aggressive action in 1916 after a period of quiescence. 
British forces were to be lured into an ambush at the Skagerrak. There they would be attacked by subs and fast ships, and it was hoped it would be sunk and a decisive result achieved. The Skagerrak uh, is the strait between Norway and Denmark's Jutland Peninsula. So this was seen as a, a, a tremendously promising location for just such an ambush. However, this is where decoding operations of the British naval intelligence came into play. Uh, having decoded German communications planning this, British Admiral Jellicoe also moved his forces towards Skagerrak. So there was sort of an ambush plan and a counter-ambush plan as well. And the result was the largest naval battle in history, the Battle of Jutland. It's called the Battle of Skagerrak by the Germans, but the Allied side used its name, the Battle of Jutland, which began on May 31st, 1916, there in the waters between Norway and Denmark. The British forces that had been moved up in this counter-ambush were far larger than the German as the enemies moved closer together, and something on the order of about 300 ships engaged in this conflict. The British uh, lost two ships in quick succession, so the battle was not starting well for them. Uh, But then the traditions of uh, British seamanship won out as the British managed twice a maneuver, uh, which is called in naval military history, crossing the enemy's T. That's to say, moving one's own line of ships into an advantageous position where all of one's ships can open fire on the exposed line of the enemy. And twice in quick succession, the Germans were threatened with annihilation by the British Navy, rather, and the German forces withdrew. Uh, Speaking to the confusion of this battle, the British Navy lost them at several junctures during the battle, and by the early hours of June 1st, 1916, the Germans slipped away rather than being pursued and annihilated by the British. Arguments have raged afterwards and indeed to this very day about whether the British Admiral Jellicoe might have let slip the opportunity to completely crush the German naval forces facing him decisively. On November 1916, in part because of this sort of acrimonious debate, Admiral Beatty succeeded Jellicoe as commander-in-chief of the Grand Fleet. Because the British had lost more ships at this battle, it's often been considered a German tactical win but not a strategic victory in the larger terms of winning the war, a local triumph rather than something ultimately really decisive. The German planned ambush had failed. And the German conclusion from now on was that more investment was needed in submarines as a decisive weapon that could turn the war. Let's turn our discussion then to this formidable submarine warfare or U-boat war. German Admiral von Tirpitz had urged extensive submarine warfare, responding, in a sense, to the British blockade. On February 4th, 1915, Germany declared that the seas around Britain were a war zone too. If if the British had made that declaration about the German sea lanes, so too the areas around Britain. And British ships, they announced, would be sunk on site, and no guarantees would be made for the safety of neutral shipping. Chancellor Beethmann Holweg was opposed to this. He sensed the dangers to international opinion and especially uh, the opinions of an important neutral power, the United States, and his, his worries turned out to be prophetic. In spite of countermeasures and technology that was developed to fight the submarines, like nets or listening gear or depth charges that could blow up submarines, submarine warfare proved massively destructive. But that very dramatic destructiveness also tended to horrify public opinion abroad. Just to give some examples, on May 7th, 1915, the British liner Lusitania, which was on its way from New York to Liverpool, 
was torpedoed by a German submarine, and it sank in less than half an hour with the loss of over 1,000 lives, among them 128 Americans. Now, the reality was that the Lusitania uh, was, in fact, carrying contraband ammunition, uh, which was banned by the German blockade, and German officials had issued warnings. But the outrage when this passenger ship was sunk was enormous. Uh, And in fact, German celebration of this event in propaganda that we'll discuss more in a later lecture made the public relations effect internationally even worse. Uh, Outcry was heightened again with the sinking of the British liner Arabic on August 19, 1915, again off the coast of Ireland. And American firm protests forced Germany to alter its policy in September of 1915 and simply suspend this unrestricted submarine warfare. Disgusted with what he saw as Germany's official meekness, Admiral Tirpitz resigned. Nonetheless, Germany felt itself forced to return to unrestricted submarine warfare. On January 1917, in a a calculated risk, a gamble, uh, resembling in many ways the Schlieffen plan, with a full awareness of of the, uh, the hazards involved, German leadership turned back again to unrestricted submarine warfare at the insistence of Germany's war dictators, Generals Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Statistics were at the very heart of this gamble. Because German military planners had poured through shipping figures and analyzed Great Britain's economic needs, uh, they were certain that even though submarine warfare would likely bring America into the war, they thought that Britain could be strangled economically before this ultimately had a decisive result. Submarines, in other words, were expected to choke off Britain in about five to six months, well before the Americans arrived. On February 1st, 1917, Germany declared unrestricted submarine warfare. And, as many German planners had already taken into account, the United States entered the war against Germany on April 6, 1917, as a result of outrages uh, of the variety earlier discussed. German experts had estimated that sinking 600,000 tons per month of shipping would strangle Britain, and during the first months, this actually seemed to be working. British planners were tremendously worried. In the spring of 1917, only one month's grain reserves were left in Great Britain, and a quarter of the ships were being sunk. Their anxiety was high. As it turns out, the anxiety was probably a little bit uh, heightened uh, or exaggerated, because as it turns out, careful rationing and planning was able to, um, uh, to obviate the worst of these bottlenecks, And also, um, a simple change in organization, as it turns out, of how shipping was set to sea uh, could make a tremendous difference. In April of 1917, the civilian leader, the prime minister of Great Britain, David Lloyd George, insisted, in many cases overruling the uh, received wisdom of the naval authorities, on the use of the so-called convoy system. A convoy simply meant not allowing ships to sort of trickle across the sea lanes alone in the hope of evading German submarines, but instead organizing them into packs, organizing them into larger groups called convoys that then would be protected by battleships or uh, uh, special cruisers that were actually devoted to the task of eliminating submarines should they attack. And these turned out to be tremendously effective. The convoys by summer of 1917 had reduced the shipping losses to only 1% of the entire uh, bulk of shipping that was being sent across the seas. So ultimately, the submarines, as it turns out, had failed in their promise. 
And this gamble, the gamble of unrestricted submarine warfare, taken in full awareness that neutral opinion, and in particular American opinion, would be so outraged at what was seen as a barbaric German weapon, uh, had misfired, had miscalculated uh, entirely. Uh, The Germans, for their part, argued that the... um, Submarine warfare was but a response to British economic warfare uh, and uh, the suffering that imposed upon Germany's civilian population as well. Uh, We'd already mentioned in an earlier lecture the extent to which uh, technology itself could create new moralities. Uh, In the case of submarine warfare, the submarines were simply, uh, as experts argued, unable to follow the earlier conventions of warning ships Before they were sunk, Uh, the submarine itself was tremendously vulnerable if one of these ships turned out to be a decoy uh, that was armed and able to fire back at the submarines. Uh, The result was that in what was announced as a a new morality dictated by the technology itself, uh, submarines would sink uh, merchant ships without warning. And in terms of propaganda, uh, the German submarine warfare uh, was held up by the Allies as an example of barbarity uh, far exceeding that of the, the far slower and in many ways uh, much uh, subtler um, economic blockade. Finally, it needs to be noted that the very phenomenon of navies being cooped up and not sallying forth into those enormous apocalyptic engagements that have been expected at the start of the war also created what one might call a, a tinderbox, a, uh, a, a potentially explosive revolutionary situation in the ports of those navies uh, where uh, sailors were essentially left idle for great stretches of time. And in particular, the confinement of the German and the Russian navy, uh, which also was uh, bottled up in its ports, had tremendously negative effects on crews that were left without work in the ports. Uh, There, harsh naval discipline could produce disaffection on the part of the troops, Um, Also, the drawing off of especially talented German officers from the battleships and instead uh, stationing them with the submarines um, meant that, in many cases, uh, some of the most talented leadership was taken away and instead heavy-handed authoritarians were left in charge of the fleet. The results of this sort of claustrophobia of being bottled up in port included things like the mutiny in the German fleet in August of 1917, which portended far greater mutinies to follow in the last stages of the war, and later participation of both German and Russian sailors in larger revolutions, to a great extent, looked back uh, to this frustrating inactivity during the course of the war. If the naval war and its worldwide scope already suggested a lot to us about the geographic totality of the war, We'll explore this theme further in our next lecture about the global nature of the First World War. Lecture 18, The Global Reach of the War. In this lecture, we'll be considering the global reach of the war, its worldwide nature. In our earlier lectures, we've been examining repeatedly the phenomenon of stalemate, 
Uh, the sense that the war dragged on and on without a clear and decisive victory being achieved. We've talked about stalemates uh, on the Western Front. We've talked about the elusive nature of victory on the Eastern Front for all that it was more mobile. Uh, we've even described the sort of stalemate that seemed to obtain in the war on the seas as well. It seemed that the powers opposed to one another were too finely balanced to produce an outright and immediate victory. So the question then obviously arose, how to break the stalemate? A crucial way that was of tremendous allure to policymakers and to military leaders was to break the stalemate by way of expanding the conflict. One might gain other allies and add to the strength collectively of one's own side. One might be able to draw in colonial resources from one's own imperial possessions around the world. Uh, the enemy in this way might be hemmed in on all sides and a decisive result might finally be achieved. The global nature of the war involved many theaters which we'll consider in this lecture. We'll examine the fighting in the European overseas colonies, in Asia, Africa, and in the Middle East, as well as the use of colonial troops from a very different context on the Western Front. Then we'll turn to the diplomatic sparring for the sympathies of neutral states and international opinion. We'll consider Switzerland's role as a haven for diplomats and spies and their devious activities, and we'll examine attempts to sway American sentiment for either side. Finally, we'll examine the economic dimension of the global war, with increasing American loans, for instance, leading to a truly profound tectonic shift in international finance. If in some sense this entire lecture will be concerned with one of our major themes of the course in a very vivid way, the notion of the totality of this total war, we'll also see by the end of this lecture that another one of our themes also very much comes into play. And that's the theme in particular of the implications of the First World War for our own times. Because shifts and transitions in politics and in economics were underway in this global war that most certainly have reverberated into our own times. We need, first of all, to consider the global nature of this conflict. In a very real sense, the First World War was not the first war with a global reach. Earlier wars of the 18th and the early 19th centuries, the Seven Years' War and the Napoleonic Wars, had already had a global extent. But there was something new in this conflict, and this was due in part to the intensity of the overseas high imperialism of the late 19th century, which had uh, divided up entire continents under European domination. Uh, this, in turn, intensified the global nature of World War I, because inevitably those empires, those colonial possessions, would be drawn in to the conflict itself. And in addition, the globalization of the modern economy, which we think of as a phenomenon of our own times, but which is very much a part of the late 19th century and the early 20th century, then disrupted in a dramatic way by the First and Second World Wars, the globalization of the modern economy also meant that the war would have worldwide effects, even in areas that were spared the direct fighting or which remained neutral. They still would be affected economically by the reality of the war. Let's turn first to the colonial dimension of this conflict and the war in the colonies. German colonial holdings were attacked immediately. There was a sense almost of the, the war playing itself out, not just in Europe, but also in the backyards of the colonies uh, in Africa and Asia as well. 
Now, in, as it did so, there was a sense on the part of many Europeans that this was a very dangerous development. War spread to the colonies in spite of earlier European urgings that the non-European natives must not see imperial powers of Europe at war among themselves. The anxiety in previous years had been that this would undermine colonial prestige. It would undermine the aura of the Europeans as a, an organized and a monolithic force and might very well produce a new sense of assertiveness on the, on the part of native peoples. Uh, these earlier anxieties about the effects of seeing inter-European fighting uh, were trumped uh, as events eventually took their course uh, by the imperatives of victory and total war now. In Africa, most German forces were very quickly overwhelmed by Allied forces in Togo and in German West Africa. In Cameroon, they held out longer until January 1916 against uh, a combined British, French, and Belgian force. The significant exception to this quick overwhelming of German possessions most certainly was German East Africa. There, German and African troops, uh, that's to say troops that were mustered and trained by the Germans as colonial forces that went by the name of Askari, were under the control, under the command of General Paul von Lettau Forbeck, who became a great hero of the German popular home front. General Paul von Lettau Forbeck held out until after the end of the war in Europe against the British forces that were pursuing him, uh, fighting a war of maneuver and of quick movement, uh, also a very costly war, as it turns out, uh, involving more than 120,000 deaths on all sides. In the Far East, uh, Australians, New Zealanders, and Japanese, who were allied with the British, quickly took over German Pacific Island possessions. Japan, which had been allied with Great Britain since 1902, declared war on Germany early in the conflict, not out of concern for the violation of the neutrality of Belgium, uh, but for reasons that were closer to home and involved geopolitics. Japan declared war on Germany on August 23, 1914, and attacked Qingtao, the German protectorate on China's Shantung Peninsula. This German protectorate was defended very bitterly by 5,000 Germans, and they held out for two months against a mostly Japanese force, um, Incidentally, this uh, attack also involved the violation of Chinese neutrality in the process, showing how uh, even the initially uh, expressed concerns for international law would be trumped by the fighting itself. Uh, Japan went a step further. Japan hoped to use the war itself, and especially the way in which the European great powers were concentrating on events within the European continent itself as an opportunity for imperial gains in China. Japan was pursuing its earlier course of, of not becoming a victim of Western imperialism by becoming a predator itself. Japan gave the Chinese the so-called 21 demands of January 1915. And these extensive demands for subordination to Japanese control would have made much of China a Japanese protectorate. The British, who were worried by this assertiveness of Japanese politicians and military leaders, mediated and tried to scale back some of these demands. At the same time, 
the suspicions toward Japan of another Pacific power, which later would be associated with the Allies, uh, the United States, were heightened. Uh, and this represented a, a very interesting friction uh, in the Pacific uh, area and within uh, East Asia, uh, even on the part of powers that supposedly were making common cause. Inevitably now, imperial resources and manpower would be drawn into the conflict. Germany's colonial holdings were quickly lost, and we'll recall that because Germany had been late in participating in the scramble for colonies of the late 19th century, it had fewer holdings, in fact, to lose. But the empires would turn out to be a very significant resource for the British and the French war efforts. In 1914, Britain declared war for the entire empire, and its troops, the troops of the empire, fought for the British cause uh, in, on the Western Front as well as in other theaters of the war. These involved Australia, New Zealand, India, South Africa, and Canada. The dominions and dependencies, as they were called, actually contributed more manpower, more troops to the war than did the United States when it entered the war uh, later in the conflict. Dominion troops made great contributions outside of Europe uh, and were able to thus relieve British forces that were holding the line on the Western Front. Australian and New Zealand troops, the so-called ANZAC forces, fought in the Middle East. They had fought at Gallipoli, as we had discussed in an earlier lecture, uh, as did the British Indian Army as well. Uh, This represented really tremendous reserves of manpower. In New Zealand, 20% of all adult males enlisted in the conflict. Uh, It's estimated that the British Indian forces mustered a million men. From 1916, conscription, that's to say the draft, in place of the earlier liberal idea of voluntary uh, enrollment in the armed forces, conscription was instituted in the British dominions as well as in Great Britain itself. It needs to be mentioned this was not welcomed universally. For instance, French Canadians very much objected to uh, finding themselves involved in a conflict that they uh, didn't recognize as being their own. At the same time, the British came ever more deeply to not only understand, but also seek to recognize the importance of the empire as a whole to their war effort. This was symbolically summed up in the forming of the so-called Imperial War Cabinet, in 1917, so well along into the conflict itself, which included the prime ministers of the dominions and representatives from India. Now, this was intended to be a, uh, an, a, a, an organ or a, uh, an institution which would start to represent a, a sort of collective leadership for the empire as a whole. And while it was not initially effective, while it ultimately didn't have uh, the sort of uh, voice that one might have expected for it, it nonetheless, for many people, symbolized the promise of a greater role for the peoples of the empire in the future of that institution as a whole. Indeed, many of those who came from different regions of the empire felt that there was an implied promise in their participation in the conflict. They felt that their contributions in the war and their standing up in this hour of need of Great Britain or the mother country would be rewarded with greater independence and self-rule afterwards. Uh, We've talked about the way in which uh, the uh, involvement in the First World War, the sending of troops, 
uh, and in particular the participation in the catastrophe of the Gallipoli landings had been a crucial moment for many Australians and New Zealanders in, as it were, forging their own national identity as distinct from their imperial identity uh, within the British Empire. Expectations were also raised in other colonial lands, especially in India, where it was felt that the measure of participation in the war itself and, and contribution to the imperial war effort would result in greater autonomy, maybe independence to follow. And it hardly needs to be stated that in addition to these tremendous contributions of manpower, the economic aid that the Dominions offered, the food that they produced, the resources uh, that they could uh, contribute, were also very important in funding the British war effort too. The use of colonial troops was a very important, but at the time controversial measure as well. Colonial troops provided, in a very real sense, immense reservoirs of manpower for the Allied side. British Indian troops, for instance, were brought not only to fight in the Middle East, but also brought to the Western Front, where many of them, unaccustomed to the rigors of European winter, uh, were uh, uh, had a very hard time of it. Uh, in addition, obviously, to the, the horrors of the front itself. France, for its part, drew in many tens of thousands of African soldiers from its colonies in West Africa and Northern Africa. The numbers are truly astonishing. It is uh, supposed that somewhere in the number of about 2 million Africans served, whether on the Western Front or within the fighting in Africa itself, uh, either as soldiers or as uh, carriers uh, of uh, material. Uh, and it's estimated that of that number of 2 million, some 10% of these African participants died uh, as well. In some units there, uh, casualty rates were equivalent to those of the Western Front, uh, making very clear that this uh, experience had greater resonance uh, beyond simply the Western Front. At the same time as these colonial troops were being used and brought over to Europe as well, uh, German propaganda very loudly denounced what it said was the, the barbaric practice of bringing non-European peoples to fight what it was assumed were the superior Europeans um, at the same time, scurrilous and racist rumors were spread uh, that the uh, colonial troops uh, represented uh, uh, a force for uh, the destruction of civilization and that they were allegedly cannibals uh, and the like. Uh, paradoxically, some of these same rumors about those colonial troops could be spread by some of their own commanders as a way of frightening uh, the enemy side as well. The colonies provided also not just manpower in the shape of soldiers, but also laborers, uh, porters or workers in factories uh, and the like. Asians and Africans were also brought over to work in France as manual laborers, and among them uh, would be um, a key example of sort of the rising expectations uh, that grew out of the experience of the war, a Vietnamese nationalist and later communist leader Ho Chi Minh, uh, who would go on to a, a career uh, in Vietnamese politics. Let's turn to examine the war in the Middle East because it represented a case of some of the surprises that the war brought. Before the war, the Ottoman Empire had often been called the sick man of Europe, and it was assumed that this was a, a power in decline. To the contrary, the, the Ottoman-Turkish performance in the war really was quite surprising uh, in that uh, it managed to last uh, to the very end rather than collapsing in the opening stages. 
In the strategically important areas of the Middle East, Ottoman Turkey was aided by German advisors and a German Asia Corps as well. And this was seen geopolitically as a serious threat to British interests in that part of the world. In particular, Britain needed to protect the vital Suez Canal through Egypt, twice attacked by Turkish forces, and to control Persian oil wells, as oil was becoming ever more a strategic resource at this time as well. Uh, To this end, Britain annexed Cyprus in the Mediterranean in November, and in December of 1914, Egypt became a British protectorate. The use of troops from the Dominions in the Middle East, especially from India, made clear their importance. The British launched a campaign in what was then called Mesopotamia, and today is called Iraq. In November of 1914, British and Indian forces landed in present-day Iraq and occupied Basra, and then launched a larger campaign into the hinterland. The campaign ended in a disaster. After a siege of five months, overextended British forces had to surrender. On April 29th in 1916, at Kut al-Amra, a Turkish army took vast numbers of British soldiers prisoner, uh, British and Indian forces. Prisoners were led off on what amounted to a death march to Anatolia, and of nearly 12,000 who had been led off into captivity, a third died, while the rest existed in a precarious and emaciated state. Uh, these reverses were then uh, again overturned with a second campaign by the British that took Baghdad on March 11th of 1917, and the British also occupied Persia in 1917. At the same time, in the rearward areas of the Ottoman Empire, the British had also been uh, participating in encouraging the so-called Arab Revolt. We'll speak more about it in a later lecture when we talk about attempts to subvert enemy populations. Uh, But in this case, Thomas Edward Lawrence, a British archaeologist, helped to encourage the Arab uprising against the Ottomans, led by the Arab leader, the Hashemite Emir of Mecca. Arab forces took the port of Aqaba in a dashing raid and were able then to coordinate their own uprising with British campaigning in the Middle East as well. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia, as he came to be called, later became disillusioned with British policy that we'll discuss in a moment. British successes in the Middle East came at a welcome time. On December 9th, 1917, General Edmund Allenby, who had launched an offensive from the Sinai, captured Jerusalem. This was much-needed good news at a time when the Allied uh, side was experiencing reverses, uh, and it was turned into the cornerstone of an effective propaganda campaign, which took on some of the almost religious overtones of a crusade. The regaining of the holy city of Jerusalem was celebrated as an Allied success. Later, moving further, Allenby also took Damascus in October of 1918. And it was very clear to all observers that these events, even taking place in the context of the war itself, were in a very real sense laying the groundwork for a future redrawing of borders. In a very real sense, even as the war was going on, people would be thinking to what happens after the war? How does one prepare for a future order of international politics yet to come? Wartime diplomacy would end up shaping the Middle East and many other regions as well that we'll examine in detail in later lectures. But in the Middle East in particular, the consequences of wartime diplomacy would reverberate down to the present day. In particular, the Balfour Declaration. Jewish nationalists called Zionists 
who hoped to establish a homeland for the Jewish people uh, uh, from their dispersed state uh, around the world in uh, uh, Israel, organized units during the war to support the British campaigns, hoping to win concessions once the peace arrived for their plans. Uh, The British, likewise, to gain support of Jewish communities internationally, also sought to diplomatically lay the groundwork for this support. On October 31st, 1917, a declaration was issued in this direction in the name of the British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour, in which it was stated that the British government viewed, quote, with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, end quote. This statement of principle, however, left many questions of practice and how this would work out in practice still wide open. And at the same time, other agreements had also been worked out, albeit in secret, which tended to conflict with precisely this sort of statement about what the future might hold. In particular, the secret Sykes-Picot Agreement. In practice, all the sorts of promises that were being made in the Balfour Declaration or in British encouragement of an Arab revolt in the hope someday of establishing an uh, an Arab nation-state, these promises about the future of the Middle East were being trumped by secret negotiations taking place away from public scrutiny by the Allies. In particular, the secret Sykes-Picot Agreement of February 1916, which was agreed by British and French uh, representatives. The British were represented by Sir Mark Sykes and the French by diplomat Georges Picot. This Sykes-Picot Agreement carved out spheres of influence in the Ottoman territories uh, for peacetime. It was agreed that Britain would end up controlling Mesopotamia, And France, for its part, would control Syria and Lebanon. In practice, these promises, whether the ones made out in the open or implicitly, or the secret diplomacy being conducted behind the scenes, were in conflict. And uh, most certainly, the turmoil experienced in our own times in the Middle East has everything to do with this complicated context uh, of the First World War. The war's stalemate could also perhaps be broken not only by pursuing warfare in the colonies or the Middle East, the war stalemate also might be broken by gaining allies for one's own side to tip the balance. Winning allies would also have a very significant uh, result in terms of worldwide public opinion because it would seemingly reinforce the justness of one's own cause if one were attracting ever more neutral powers to one's side. At the same time, on the part of those who might want to join one or another coalition, joining the apparently soon-to-be-victorious side also could promise to give the country that was joining a share in the upcoming division of spoils and the peace settlement. One was always looking forward to what would the result of the war be? What would the peace bring? The sympathies of the United States among the neutral powers were clearly a tremendous prize to be won. And this led to very many attempts to sway American opinion, uh, access to American loans, and perhaps even American joining of one or another coalition. Uh, The amounts uh, of resources and of capital which was invested into this uh, enterprise was enormous. The Germans apparently spent about $100 an astronomical sum 
for that day, $100 million in their pursuit of winning American sympathies uh, before uh, uh, losing them uh, unequivocally uh, before American entry in 1917. Uh, at the same time, the British mounted a perhaps subtler effort to sway uh, makers of public opinion and journalists and leaders uh, of American politics uh, through sophisticated British diplomacy. At the same time, as the sympathies of American patricians and uh, American elites often lay with the British or with the French, for whom they felt cultural sympathies, many American immigrants of more recent vintage uh, didn't share those affinities. Irish Americans, for instance, or German Americans uh, were vocally against involvement, uh, and this created a lot of very vigorous debate uh, in uh, the American scene as well. President Woodrow Wilson sought to be a mediator and peacemaker from outside and tried to invite the warring powers to come to the bargaining table, to come to some sort of agreement of compromise, uh, but on both sides, his offers uh, simply did not meet with a welcome reception. Other allies might join for other reasons. I want to examine just a few of them. We've already mentioned Japan. Japan's aims were geopolitical, to seize German holdings and to use the opportunity of dominating China. This was ultimately a course of aggression that would end in World War II, another strand or trajectory of continuity. China, for its part, came to join the Allied side late in the war in August of 1917, due in part to diplomatic pressure from the Allies, but also in part out of the hope that by joining what it saw as the winning side, it might be able to avoid the predatory inroads of Japan, one of the Allies itself, a paradox of sorts. Portugal, for its part, which one doesn't think of as a European great power at this time, joined the Allies hoping to expand or at least protect, its African imperial holdings. After the United States entered the war, in sort of a cascade effect, Latin American and South American nations joined as well, caught up in the momentum of wanting to be on the winning side when the dispositions for the peace were made. We want to consider also the policy of revolutionizing, uh, as the term went. Revolutionizing was a policy practiced by both sides of seeking to subvert the enemy, to weaken the enemy, by enlisting that enemy's discontented minorities on the principle of my enemy's enemy is my friend. Germany sought, for example, to revolutionize their enemy's own backyard by cultivating ties with Irish rebels who were fighting against British domination. They sought to revolutionize the uh, discontented minorities of the Russian Empire by uh, initiating ties with their representatives uh, abroad or in exile. They also sought to encourage, as we'd earlier mentioned, uh, the Turkish declaration of holy war or jihad to, to muster the Muslims worldwide uh, into uh, the participation on the side of the central powers. The Allies, for their part, uh, France and Great Britain and Russia, cultivated the numerous discontented minority nationalists of Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire as part of this effort. Diplomacy in neutral states by both sides sought to sway public opinion. We've already mentioned the case of the United States. Switzerland at this time uh, was fairly jam-packed with international diplomats and spies who were engaged in their devious plans for uh, either secret channels of communication, 
uh, ties to minority nationalist exiles who claim to have the ability to mobilize their peoples for one or another cause, uh, and revolutionaries like Lenin, who at this time was in Switzerland thinking about how he might be able to use this war for his own revolutionary purposes. In conclusion, we want to discuss some of the important global economic dimensions of the war. World War I, in its identity as a modern total industrial war, was also very clearly an economic war. The war brought an enormous shift in international economic relations. In particular, caught up as it was in the activity, as well as the enormous expense of the war itself, Europe's status in international economic terms began to decline. Europe's share of industrial production, uh, of worldwide industrial production, declined from 43% in 1913, the year before the war broke out, to 34% by 1923, after the war, owing to advances and economic boom that was taking place in North America, South America, and Asia. Uh, this boom, not coincidentally, was in part related to the, uh, uh, the tremendous demand for goods, and for industrial production and for food uh, that the war was creating in Europe and in other theaters of the war. Patterns of loans and debts, the flow of capital, also were overturned during the war. The United States, at this crucial juncture, became a net exporter of capital for the first time and gave out enormous loans to Great Britain, which then in turn lent to other allies uh, in the support of the war effort. By the end of the war, Britain, which earlier had been the banker of the world, now owed the United States $4.2 billion. New York replaced London as the banking capital of the world, and European powers lost markets and assets overseas. Countries not involved in the fighting directly, like Brazil, Argentina, uh, China, India, and Japan, they participated uh, to some extent, but uh, uh, not, not as fully as the European great powers, experienced economic booms at the time. In the U.S., exports quadrupled from 1914 to 1917. And before 1917, when Americans enter the war, uh, the British uh, AJ Ta- historian A.J.P. Taylor, with his uh, characteristic sarcasm, uh, notes that Americans combined virtue and profit. In economics, as well as in so many other ways, in politics, the world would never be the same after the war itself. Bearing on a major theme of our course, the implications of the Great War, these were transitions that are still playing themselves out in our own times uh, that we've explored in today's lecture. Lecture 19 the war state. In this lecture, we'll be examining a crucial phenomenon, the growth of the wartime state, the way in which governments took on new powers and new obligations and responsibilities at a time of total war in order to mobilize entire populations and economies as well as armies. Total war clearly would put new demands on the state, on governments of all different nations as they sought to mobilize for victory. The extent of the demands that were being placed upon them and the extent of the new requirements of a total war would become clear 
at the start of the war with shell shortages uh, on the combatant sides, on all the combatant sides, which had not planned for a protracted conflict. And all of these powers then, of necessity, were engaged in a competition to reorganize the state. There would be many different routes taken in this reorganization. There would be greater or lesser success, a topic that we'll be considering in detail in today's lecture. Uh, Indeed, in today's lecture, a whole host of major themes really come together uh, from our course as a whole. Uh, On the one hand, the growth of the wartime state was uh, eloquent testimony to the totality of war, how total war would make unprecedented new demands. Another one of our themes, the shock of the new, was most definitely present here as governments would take on roles that uh, certainly would have been out of the ordinary uh, even years previous. And then finally, probably in the largest sense, our final theme of the implications of the Great War for our own times comes into play here as well. Because the ways in which we'll see wartime states operating are most definitely ones that still contribute to how we understand the state, what the state can do, what the state should do, in our own present day. A crucial outcome of the war itself, thus, was the development of a new concept, a new model of government and of state power, which needed to meet the challenges of total war, victory, and survival. The huge economic demands that the war would make were only dimly perceived before 1914. And with a quick, sharp shock, the combatant powers were made to realize these new demands when epidemic shell shortages at the start of the war revealed the problem in all its scale. From immediate expedience and improvised measures over the course of the war, there eventually arose a new vision of the modern state as a central and total organizer. States needed to expand in order to deal with the challenges of mobilization. In some countries, this required a more expansive view of the role of the state, which could really mark a radical break with traditions of a limited state that had been so important to the philosophies of classical liberalism, uh, enshrining the liberties of the individual. Uh, By almost a perfect irony, in the case of those empires that were more authoritarian and had not made concessions or fewer concessions to democratic forms of organization, they equally would have to try to incorporate some democratic or pseudo-democratic way, at least, of mobilizing popular energies. The most clear example of the new scale of demands that was being made by total war involved the size of armies themselves. The need to field and supply mass armies was an obvious priority on all sides. And the scale of this commitment and this need was truly prodigious. In 1916, to give just but one example, Germany had five and a half million men in uniform with all of the challenges that provisioning and arming and moving such a vast number of men would require. But it didn't stop there with the armies. In fact... The entire society was implicated, including not just the battlefront, but the home front. The home front is, as a coinage, almost a perfect expression of a very deep truth about total war. The home front, meaning those who were not at the front lines, but instead at home, working in the factories, working in the fields, or engaged in the civilian life at home, 
very clearly had to be involved in the war effort as well. Not through combat, but through industry, by sharing in the enthusiasms whipped up by propaganda, by a certain commitment to the will to sacrifice as a whole. Economic control was in particular a great challenge. One reason why so many people had expected that the First World War would be quick once it came was precisely out of an awareness at how expensive modern war was. The notion was that it simply wasn't possible for war to drag on for years on end precisely because of the enormous expenses involved. And yet, lo and behold, it would now be necessary to prepare for the long haul. The planned allocation of materiel, of production, of what we in a very dehumanizing way called human resources, meaning labor and manpower, and the food supply would demand expanded bureaucracies to undertake precisely these new tasks. At the same time, it would be necessary for the state to take on new obligations as well. This included uh, making provision for the families of those left behind by the soldiers, whether these were uh, the wives and children of soldiers at the front or they were widows or elderly parents, the state now had to make provision for precisely these people in order to sustain morale and a sense that one uh, was rewarding those who were making the ultimate sacrifices in the war itself. And out of this provision for the families of those serving at the front, on the home front, uh, there arose the notion of separation allowances, as they were called. That's to say, stipends or a certain subsidy which allowed those who had lost the breadwinner in the family due to someone being in the field or dead to nonetheless maintain the economic uh, livelihood. And uh, very clearly, this was a, a sense of obligation that underlay the later concept of the welfare state, celebrated as a new model of a far more interventionist uh, government which would take upon itself obligations towards the civilian society as a whole. At the same time, it was true that price controls and planned economies, the project of a rationally organized regulation of the national economy, the nationalization or taking over by the government of branches of industry and transport, even the concepts of compulsory employment, and the regulation of labor, who was to work when and where and for how long, were the order of the day as states expanded their powers. And this compulsory uh, uh, mobilization of labor uh, would also involve not just the drawing of men away from their civilian lives into the mass armies, but also to take their places the movement of women into new jobs, new capacities and new responsibilities on the home front, not least in the factories as well. But ultimately, to my mind, there's one prime symbol of the power of the state as it mobilized in the First World War. No better symbol, to my mind, of the state power could be found than the adoption of daylight savings time. Uh, as governments simply decreed that time itself would now be harnessed to their efforts to increase productivity, not to waste precious hours of daylight uh, to the tyranny of an unchanging clock. Germany was the first to institute daylight savings time, uh, and in this competition for efficiency, Britain followed soon after. And in the United States, daylight savings time was instituted in the last months of the war as well. 
So in a very real sense, in terms of implications for our own times, uh, when you and I get up groggy, unsure of what time it is because the time has just changed, uh, any resentment we might feel towards this dislocation has everything to do with the mobilizations of the First World War. The imperative of mobilization also would imply new compromises and political departures, ones that might have been unthinkable to more conservative political leaders just recently. An example, unions, rather than being uh, distrusted and discriminated against actively, were now often enlisted to help in the war effort. They acquired a new role in the process. Unions, on the one hand, would engage in uh, a patriotic commitment not to strike so as to disrupt the war effort as a whole. And in turn, union leaders were given a voice in consultation about economic planning, uh, consultations about the conditions of workers, which now took on existential importance for the state itself in order to succeed in war. In this spirit of cooperation as well, socialist political leaders entered the governments in Britain and France, something that earlier uh, was would have been uh, tremendously controversial. In this mobilization, wartime states could follow different paths to achieve control, and not all states were equally successful. Let's examine uh, key examples of this. First of all, the case of Imperial Germany. Germany had been an uneasy mix of authoritarian rule and pressure for more democratizing change before the war, and those paradoxes, that kind of split identity, most certainly affected its war effort. Economically, Germany was unprepared for a long war. Resources had not really been stockpiled. It's estimated maybe about uh, six months' worth had, had, uh, had been collected. Germany was very vulnerable to the sort of economic blockade that we described in our lecture on the sea war, as before the war, it had imported about 20% or maybe as high as 30% of its food from abroad. It now fell to visionary planners to consider how to move beyond improvisation to systematic organization. The man who played a key role here was the patriotic German-Jewish industrialist and businessman Walter Rathenau. He was a visionary planner. He was the head of the German General Electric Company, who volunteered to organize the so-called War Raw Materials Board to coordinate the German economy. Government controls proliferated, and indeed this management got down to the point where there was even an imperial potato office in charge of rationing this crucial resource. At the same time, the economic changes were profound. Smaller businesses, which were alleged to be less productive and and less uh, successful in economies of scale, were often shut down by central planners and large industries given preference, like the huge chemical combine IG Farben, which was established in 1916. But there were paradoxes that haunted uh, even this uh, uh, concerted German war effort. Though it was marked by a certain authoritarian spirit, it was often less efficient than was believed at the time. The state of siege law decentralized aspects of the war effort and gave individual military commanders in different parts of Germany control over their own areas in a way that might actually have inhibited a national policy of central coordination. Uh, Paradoxically, the militarization didn't always make matters more effective. And most synonymous with that militarization was the growth of what's often called the silent dictatorship, 
of Generals Hindenburg and Ludendorff from August of 1916, once they had risen to the great power of the Supreme Command and established what amounted to a military dictatorship in Germany. Kaiser Wilhelm II was increasingly pushed to the margins. And there's a paradox here that at the same time, Allied propaganda continued to portray him as an evil mastermind that had launched Germany's war effort and continued to control it. Increasingly, he was left out of the loop and very much resented what he saw as his own mistreatment by Hindenburg and Ludendorff, whom he sometimes referred to as the Siamese twins, not fondly. While even the mere threat of their resignation sufficed for Hindenburg and Ludendorff to win again and again their own way, they were able to evade political responsibility by acting behind the scenes. Hindenburg's popularity was symbolized by a huge wooden idol that was established to him in Berlin that really represented a, a trust in his leadership. In fall of 1916, this military dictatorship duo launched the so-called Hindenburg Plan. It was an approach that was later ironically called war socialism, a term that would have terrified German conservatives before, but was now being used by the government in order to organize the war effort. As one of its key aspects, the so-called Auxiliary Service Law of December 2nd, 1916, drafted all men in Germany from 17 to 60 years of age for war-important jobs. New goals were set for arms production. Machine guns were to be uh, expanded, uh, the production of uh, cannon as well, uh, by astronomical proportions. Trade union representatives were added to committees and a corporatist model, as it was called, was introduced in order to steer the German war effort. Uh, there were even suggestions that women should be drafted, but this, at least for now, was too radical. Forced labor uh, from Belgium and Poland, people under military occupation, was used by the Germans in violation of international law. While Germany attempted this ambitious centralizing control in a very militarized authoritarian way, paradoxically, it was not always the most effective or efficient and often gambled by neglecting civilian needs. As war production was emphasized, civilian needs might fall by the wayside. The case of Great Britain is an interesting contrast in this regard. Great Britain's liberal traditions shaped its war effort. At first, in the opening stages of the war, the liberal government of Asquith was in spirit, many felt, unsuited to the war, more passive, less prone to energetic direction of the war effort. That would have to change. Lord Kitchener was made Secretary of State for War and uh, pursued these goals. After a shell shortage scandal of the sort that was to be found in many combatant countries, British liberals accepted conservatives into the cabinet in May of 1915, really representing vividly the sort of domestic truce that was supposed to obtain in this time of national emergency. In 1914, Britain was also unique among the great powers for not having conscription, not having a draft, but instead following the liberal tradition of a volunteer army. In quick order, it fielded the largest volunteer army in the world of a million men. War Minister Lord Kitchener had created a mass volunteer army uh, called the New Army to replace the decimated professional troops, the, the British Expeditionary Force that had taken a beating on the continent. Many so-called PALS battalions answered his call. These were units where friends could sign up and together enlist and be ensured that they would serve together. The side effect of such a strategy was that in some cases entire communities could be decimated uh, in short order, uh, given the losses on the Western Front of such local PALS battalions. 
in spite of expectations that in economic terms, business as usual would continue as a popular phrase of the time went, it needed, in fact, as many increasingly recognized, to be reorganized and structured. In July of 1915, a so-called Ministry of Munitions was established under David Lloyd George, a really remarkable British politician uh, who went by the nickname sometimes of the Welsh Wizard. He was uh, often considered the People's Tribune of the radical wing of the Liberal Party, in many ways, a populist politician, one who was bursting with energy and dynamism uh, and uh, tremendous ambition as well. And he threw himself into the work of reorganization of the British war effort. The munitions ministry dealt with a shell shortage scandal, as we mentioned a moment ago, built a huge staff of 65,000 officials and introduced new control and drive into mobilization for war. British unions cooperated with the government. British businesses were allowed huge profits, but could be shut down if they were inefficient. Pub closing times, something that continues to our own times, were decreed to maximize productivity and not have workers wasting their time in public houses rather than in the factories. At the same time, food rationing and rent control regulated living standards to guarantee a certain minimum of welfare. Breaking with long-standing liberal tradition at long last, in January of 1916, conscription was introduced, emphasizing the increasing role of the state even in a liberal state like Great Britain. Also indicative of this process was the so-called Defense of the Realm Act, or DORA, by, known by its acronym, an act that was passed at the very start of the war, which gave the British government extensive new powers to arrest dissenters or to shut down offending newspapers, a radical expansion of state power. When Asquith's government fell due to a lack of confidence, it was replaced by Lloyd George's coalition war cabinet. His ambition had reached its height now. He was prime minister at the age of 53, attaining this rank in December of 1916. And uh, we'll speak in a later lecture about how how he yet further would transform the British war effort. In France, the French war effort was beset by ambiguities. It was less successful in industrial expansion. On the other hand, it was spared the food shortages seen elsewhere. In part, this had to do with the geography of the German occupation. Those northeastern areas that had been occupied by the Germans represented uh, many of the key industrial areas of France itself. Uh, The loss of industry was stunning. Uh, The occupied areas included some 75% of French coal production and almost 80% of its steelmaking capacity. But in the hinterland, France's agricultural potential still remained. The improvised economy that resulted was marked by what was sometimes jokingly and self-critically called system D in French, meaning to simply muddle through or improvise. Political divisions of the previous decades in, in French democratic life reasserted themselves. France also reeled from its huge losses at the start of the war, which gave a special poignancy to many of these debates. France had borne the initial brunt of the German invasion. In the first 16 months of the war, France had experienced almost half of all of its wartime casualties, with more than 600,000 killed. And French politics also was marked by this sort of turmoil. Following the initial announcement of the Union Sacrée, the Sacred Union, René Viviani's center-left government had expanded to include all of the major parties in sort of a a government of national unity. Eventually, the great orator Aristide Briand succeeded Viviani, but through the first three years of the war in France, 
civil and military officials struggled over who would control the war effort. Would it be dominated by civil officials or by the army? The French army mutinies in 1917, uh, the result from the disastrous Nivelle offensives in the Champagne that we've discussed in an earlier lecture, marked a decisive crisis and really introduced a revolutionary new force into French domestic politics. Extensive reorganization would be undertaken under civilian leadership. From fall of 1917, under the new premier, Georges Clemenceau, a radical politician and a journalist, uh, possessed, oddly enough, of some similarities to David Lloyd George, the dynamic British politician. Likewise populist, likewise ambitious, and determined to bring the war to a successful conclusion. Less successful cases in the adventure, we might call it, of the growth of the wartime state and of mobilization uh, were, not coincidentally, the much more conservative and authoritarian multinational empires of Russia and Austria-Hungary. First of all, they were not able to call upon the powers of nationalism to mobilize their people, but beyond this, they were also much more conservative and less advanced in terms of their own industrialization and organization. Russia, for its part, could only effectively arm about a fourth of its soldiers. And there were disastrous cases of Russian troops being sent into battle with instructions that even though they had no rifles, that they should move up to the front and pick up rifles from the first dead men that they saw. Even the legendary and allegedly characteristic immense patience of Russian peasant armies might finally start to break down in a sort of fury as it became clear even to these peasant soldiers that their lone lives were not being taken seriously. Uh, In a great mistake as well, politically, uh, that we mentioned in an earlier lecture, in 1915, after the great defeats of that year, Tsar Nicholas II himself took over personally military command of the Russian armies, and thereafter he would be personally blamed for disasters. Some 76% of Russia's industrial base by 1917 was devoted to war production, and that was an impressive figure, but ultimately that industrial base itself remained too small and inefficient to keep up with the demands of war. We might add to that also the tremendous burden of millions upon millions of refugees that had fled into the Russian interior after the great defeat, uh, the great retreat as well, of 1915. Austria-Hungary, the other conservative empire's structural problems, resembled those of Russia, though on a smaller scale. And in particular, this was a very ominous event. A pillar of this multinational empire's stability seemed to collapse with the death of the aged emperor Franz Josef in November of 1916. He'd been working at his desk only a few hours previously, testimony to his great sense of obligation Uh, which often was recognized with a sense of personal loyalty by different ethnic groups of the Habsburg Empire, it wasn't clear whether the empire would last long uh, after his own death, uh, and that's precisely what would transpire, the collapse of the empire. But for now, he was succeeded by his grandnephew, Emperor Karl I, who was tremendously popular because of his youth and his vitality. He was known uh, at large as the People's Emperor, and many great hopes were vested in him. Karl I reconvened the parliament, which had been suspended during the war, in May of 1917, but his hopes for reforms were shattered by the almost immediate 
ethnic conflicts and demands for autonomy by some national groups which were voiced uh, ceaselessly within that revived parliament. In conclusion, we want to examine on sort of the broadest theoretical scale some of the liabilities or the problems that could confront any of these wartime states in the context of a war economy and its demands. Inflation was a phenomenon that was consciously and deliberately used by the wartime powers as a way of growing uh, uh, or expanding their wartime economies. In part, this was done out of the expectation, which seemed reasonable at the time, of not having to bear the costs of the war ultimately, in the final analysis, when it was all over oneself. The expectation was, rather, that reparations would be paid by the defeated uh, coalition, which one always assumed was not oneself, but the other side. Inflation, thus, the increase in the money supply, the running of printing presses, as money eventually would lose some of its purchasing power, increasingly lose its purchasing power on the home front, was pursued as a deliberate strategy. And war loan drives were intended to encourage people to buy war bonds as a way of soaking up some of this inflated currency. The real exception to this trend, however, was Great Britain, uh, where taxes there paid for about a third of the costs of the war effort itself. But in the other warring powers, uh, taxes uh, were seen as too much of a risky burden to impose at this volatile time. At the same time, the ravages of inflation in particular and the transformations uh, and transvaluations, in a sense, of who was worth most in the new wartime economy could produce large social changes. Social and economic realities on the home front were transformed as some groups fared better than others on the home front. And some of those reversals of status could be tremendously disruptive and and anxiety-producing to a great many people. Uh, To give but some examples, skilled industrial workers, uh, metal workers in particular, uh, who were crucial to the production of munitions, were prized, sought after by the booming wartime economies, and also rewarded with rising wages, which, in greater or lesser measure, could at least keep up with the inflation that was eating away at the purchasing power of an ordinary person on the home front. By contrast, middle-class citizens, uh, teachers, um, uh, officials in local bureaucracies who were on fixed incomes, who earlier had enjoyed a sense of status elevated above that of the proletariat or the middle class, might, to the contrary, find their own status sinking now and their purchasing power being eroded ever more steadily by inflation. By contrast, there certainly were some winners. The owners of particular war industries on occasion flourished enormously, winning enormous fortunes that the governments, in fact, allowed them as an incentive for wartime productivity in production. But the sight of such millionaires or billionaires flaunting their wealth at a time of growing social privation could start to tear away at the sense of social unity that had been so important symbolically at the start of the war. A further element that over time would undermine trust in the government was the existence of the illegal black market for food in particular. As wartime conditions on the home front harshened, ever more people participated in the black market. 
And by participating in this illegal activity, themselves in some sense were already putting themselves out of, outside of the bounds of legality, weakening their trust in a government that, after all, even though people clamored for it, was not capable of provisioning the home front sufficiently. Social tensions would also grow between those who could afford to buy on the black market and those who could not. Let's conclude by considering the overall result of this phenomenon. The experience of the growth and the vast expansion of the power of wartime states produced something profound, a fundamental break in practice as well as increasingly in thought with earlier classical liberal conceptions of a limited role of government and a sphere of privacy where the government should not intrude or coordinate. Instead, and this had everything to do with the wartime context, in a time of total war, states were increasingly expected to mobilize society and solve problems. Populations might actually clamor for more state involvement to meet the emergency of the hour. And the growth of the power of the state was matched by the increased prestige of ideas of collectivism, of the state providing for the society at large. Ironically, as we've seen in our investigation today of the track records of mobilizing wartime states, more democratic states could turn out to be very efficient, while ironically, German ambitions for total mobilization, authoritarian as they were, were flawed in practice, but nonetheless, in a dreadful sort of paradox, would often become an ideal for many later planners thinking about how to organize for total war precisely because of the scope of their ambitions, even if not fully realized. We've discussed in today's lecture the crucial phenomenon of mobilizing wartime societies through the state, and we'll examine the concept of propaganda, the mobilizing of hearts and minds, in our next lecture.